Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Stephen Greenhouse was a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014 and covered labor and the workplace. His latest book is Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he joins us today from New York City. Hello there, Mr. Greenhouse. Great to be here, David. We had you on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and if you want to hear that, conversation between Ralph Nader and Stephen Greenhouse. Go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour podcast and listen to it. It's uh, pretty remarkable. You write in Beaten Down, Worked Up, the decline in workers' bargaining power is, of course, closely related to the diminished might of America's labor unions. This is incredible. Labor unions, you write, represent only 6.4% of America's private sector workers, and 10.5% of workers overall, that's the lowest percentage in more than a 100 years, more than a century. Are unions ever going to make a comeback? We keep thinking that the, the solution to bringing back a, a middle class is a union, but can they come back? First, great to be here, David. Thank you. You know, very tough times for the nation, especially hard for essential workers who face such a dangerous time. So, you know, one of the reasons I wrote my book was to explain that, unfortunately, unions and worker power overall have gotten much weaker. And as a result, you know, we've seen, you know, decades of wage stagnation and way too much income inequality and also workers being treated like, you know, dirt, you mm-hmm. know, like SHI. And, and unfortunately, we've seen far too much of that right now with COVID-19. I mean, and I think a lot of us have been saying, you know, work, you know, companies don't show enough concern about what's bothering workers about their safety. And now we're seeing it in spades with the way grocery workers are treated and subway workers are treated and meatpacking workers. So a big question now is that with this huge surge of worker anger and activism and walkouts and sickouts and strikes, might that somehow turn into a resurgence of labor? In my book, I point to some, you know, shoots, some promising shoots, you know, some unions that are really doing a good job and growing while unfortunately some of the unions aren't. Mm-hmm. I write about, you know, one of the mo- biggest, most effective union locals in the nation, the culinary union in Las Vegas, which is more than tripled in size in the past uh, three decades. I write about, you know, immigrant hotel housekeepers who have good, strong middle-class lives who raise two, three kids on their own. They don't need, you know, welfare. They don't need Medicaid. And, and I really show that a, a good union that's smart, that organizes well, can do a great job. And there are other, you know, some other smart unions that are really turning things around. But the big problem is that corporate America, backed by the Republican allies, including Donald Trump, try very, 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 very hard to cut unions off at the knees to cripple them, to weaken them. We saw that in Wisconsin. We've seen that in Iowa. We've seen that in Michigan, where the Republicans 
you know, their buddies are, are corporations and the corporations want to weaken unions. So Republicans, you know, push to get rid of unions, but Republicans also see that unions often help Democrats because Democrats fight, you know, for more generous social security, for more spending on education, for more Medicaid. And Republicans say, Oh, that's all big government. We don't want that. So the, you know, the Republicans across the board are trying to weaken unions. I think right now, as we talk, David, you know, the Republicans are pushing for this, you know, $250 billion for small business. And the Democrats just say, we need money for state governments to keep them from going bankrupt. We need money for hospitals. But I think a lot of Republicans say, well, there are a lot of union members who work for hospitals and a lot of union members who work for state government. And we don't want to help them, but we're always happy to help state government. I think one of the big problems we face as a nation when you ask, can unions grow again, is there's one of the two major political parties is one of its principal goals is to, um, as Grover Norquist says, you know, shrink unions so much that they can get it to uh, go down the bathtub drain. Um, right. And and unions are important because they played the biggest role of any institution society in creating and building the middle class and creating uh, fairer, a fairer economic society. So in Beaten Down Worked Up, you give a, a brief history of unions in this country. When did unions have the most power? When were the numbers their highest in this country? It was it was really after World War II from the late 1940s, 1950s, 1960s into the 70s. And in the book, I explained that during the Great Depression in the 1930s, you know, the typical American was really struggling, struggling. You know, they were not middle class. They were like struggling even to be in the working class. And then I explained that in the late 1930s, there were some huge unionization victories, like the great Flint sit down strike in the middle of winter in 1936-37 that succeeded in unionizing, you know, the world's largest company, General Motors. And that really opened the door to large scale unionization and millions unionized after that victory. And through World War II, then it was really after World War II when unions were at their strongest that unions played a pivotal role in building the great American middle class. And people, a lot of people forget that. You know, you know, there's a lot of truth to the bumper sticker. Unions, the folks who brought you the weekend, and they brought us. And they died for the weekend. I mean, and they, they died for the weekend. You know, yeah. I write about a strike of you know twenty thousand female garment workers in 1909. They weren't fighting for a forty-hour work week. They were fighting to go from fifty-six hours to fifty-two hours. And those women were so brave. And the police beat the crap out of them. And 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 politicians just looked looked askance, looked aside. And you know, these heroic women, you know, won major gains and and inspired a lot of male workers in, in, in years afterwards. But, you know, it was really in the 1950s and 1960s that, you know, unions, you know, won great wage gains that really enabled people to, for the first time, buy cars and buy houses. And that really, it was the steel workers and the auto workers and the machinists that really, you know, played such a big role. What was Taft-Hartley? And had Taft-Hartley not been passed, would unions be stronger today? What What is Taft, the Taft-Hartley? So um, I'll get me to do some background, David. So World War II, unions are getting very strong. Um, they, uh, you know, put on pressure to unionize, and employers, you know, kind of said yes rather than risk a strike, and that would screw up production during a strike. So unions became very strong in World War II. But during World War II, they faced President Roosevelt. 
uh, enforce kind of a, uh, not a, not a wage freeze, but very, very tight wage controls. So coming out of World War II, workers were incredibly frustrated. They felt their wages weren't beginning to keep up with inflation. So in 1946, there was a huge wave of, wage of, wave of strikes, some of which made big wage gains and, and took baby steps towards building the, the middle class. But a lot of Americans were fed up with uh, the inflation right after the war and with all the strikes after the war. So the Republicans won control of Congress in, in late 1946. And then they, much like today, David, they declare war on unions. So they passed this law called Taft-Hartley because from basically 1935, when Roosevelt passed a very pro-union bill called the National Labor Relations Act through 1947, unions grew very fast and very strong, and the Republicans didn't like that. So they passed this Taft-Hartley bill that had numerous provisions that weakened unions, that made it harder for unions to grow. What are some of the examples? Uh, so-called right to work, this you know anti-union fee bill that says any state could say uh, private, sector, private sector workers can't be required to pay any dues or fees to the unions that bargain for them, that win raises for them, that hold grievance procedures for them. And, and you know, that basically encouraged a lot of workers to, to stop belonging to the union. So just because 6% of my listeners belong to a union, they, they might not understand this. If you are working in a union shop, you can enjoy all the benefits that the union negotiated for you but not have to pay dues. Right, right. And, and union people say that's unfair. These people are, quote, free riders, that, you know, they can get all the wonderful benefits of belonging to a union. They can get the pensions. They can get the health coverage. They can get the 3% or 5% raises a year. If you get fired improperly, you can get the union to represent you in a grievance procedure. And a lot of workers are happy to pay union dues for that. And in non-right-to-work states, every worker has to contribute, you know, to, you know, to maintain their share of paying for the union. But, you know, the, the Republicans enacted Taft-Harley to really weaken unions very much. And just so we're clear here, there are some states that are right-to-work states, some states that are not. California, I believe, is not a right-to-work state. Right, right. So if there are certain shops that are strictly union. If you want to work on certain television shows or certain movies, you have to belong to a union. But the Hollywood liberals have discovered that they can make their TV shows and their movies in right-to-work states, and so they don't have to pay union wages. Right. I mean, the union, they they still have to work to try to unionize the workers in those states, and unions often feel there isn't as much incentive to try to unionize workers in, in, in right-to-work states because the workers can opt out of paying any money to the union. You know, some people I spoke to say, you know, why should you pay for the cow when you could get your milk for free? If you can get all the wonderful benefits of a union without paying for it, why pay? And, and union members say until they're blue in the face, you know, and solidarity is important. Uh, you know, we're providing important services and people should show solidarity because unions not only help you as a worker, but they really help build a fairer society. Let's go back to the Democrats for a second, because you say the Democrats are pro-union. An argument could be made that the Democrats take unions for granted. It's where else are you going to go? I remember one of the debates, one of the debates was held in the Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta. 
and Tyler Perry is Medea. I know Tyler Perry because he's anti-union. He makes his movies and his TV shows in Georgia because it's a right-to-work state. And they uh, held the debates, the Democratic debates. I believe it was MSNBC who held them at the Tyler Perry Studios. And not a single Democrat complained that Tyler Perry is anti-union. We didn't talk about or any, didn't hear any questions about Georgia being a right-to-work state. You would think the Democratic Party, that would be the, the first thing they'd be concerned about. Uh, you make a good one. The Democrats have a complicated uh, history and stance toward, toward unions. The Democrats, you know, when Roosevelt was a president, he was a very anti-union, very pro-union president. He passed the landmark law, the National Labor Relations Act, um, that really, you know, was the Magna Carta, you know, giving American workers a federally protected right to unionize. And that really was the basis, the foundation for the wave of unionization that we've experienced, and it still gives workers very important rights. On the other hand, we've had some recent presidents like Bill Carter, Bill Clinton, Same Jimmy thing. Carter, who were, in, you know, a little sympathetic to unions, but they didn't fight for unions. And, and, and even Barack Obama, he was more pro-union than Carter or Clinton, but he didn't, he never really went to the mat to fight for unions. I think, you know, in the, um, Democratic uh, presidential primary this year. Never before have we seen so many Democratic candidates, t- you know, talk so outspokenly and aggressively in favor of expanding unions, building unions, strengthening unions. Because I think they've seen two things, David. One, they see unless unions are stronger, we're not going to be able to do much about wage stagnation and income equality. And two, they realize. Hey, if the Democrats are going to win, if they're going to win back Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, it will really, really, really help if unions were stronger to help counter the Republicans. Yeah. And I think the Democrats finally, a lot of the Democrats finally get it. Yeah, let me push back on that just a little because Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee. He kicked off his campaign by holding a front fundraiser in Philadelphia in the home of one of the largest union busting attorneys in America, and yet he was endorsed by the firefighters. And to me, that suggested that unions might be just as decadent as they were in the late 50s and early 60s and 70s. Like, why are firefighters supporting Joe Biden when he clearly is not pro-union? And then you mentioned the culinary union in Las Vegas attacking Bernie, spreading these false, uh, these rumors that that he's going to take away your union health care. There's a sense that unions are self-serving. They're, they're only interested in their membership, not the greater good of, uh, of Americans, that they were against Medicare for all because that's the one, that's the cudgel they use to keep people in the culinary union or the housekeeper's union. Where, you know, you're, where are you going to go? You, you have to stay in this union because your health care depends on it. So I, I, I'm going to dissent in part. David. Good. Uh, I mean, yes, some unions are selfish and myopic and others are wonderful and, you know, fully back Medicare for all and, and hold strikes to help, you know, to help, like, like the fight for 15. The Service Employees Union really financed that effort. And that was to help millions of 
fast-food workers, none of whom are members of the service employees union, but, you know, the union realized that wages are too damn low in the United, in the United States, that not enough attention is being paid to low-wage workers. So that union said, we are going to mount a crusade to lift low-wage workers, and indirectly it helped members of the service employees unions. Okay, so Biden and the firefighters. Yes, it was very unfortunate that Biden... You know, his first fundraiser, the very day he announced, was at uh, the home of an anti, uh, of a union busting attorney. The firefighters, they've loved Biden forever. They are not Bernie lovers, and I think they wanted to, you know, you know, get on the train against Bernie very early and very early, and also earn some favors with Biden by being first to endorse him. What happened between the culinary union? And Bernie is extremely complicated. You know, the, you know, I think the culinary union has an excellent health care plan, not perfect, but for, for what are typically low wage workers, hotel housekeepers, dishwashers, they have a very good health plan. They pay nothing in premiums. It's not perfect. And, and they were worried that, you know, if and when we move towards Medicare for all, something might go wrong and their workers might end up with, without as good a plan, that whatever plan comes out of Medicare for all might not be as good. Bernie's people said, look, you know, if you're a hotel housekeeper and things are slow as they are right now with COVID-19 and you don't work for two, three months, you lose your health coverage. Won't you be much better off for Medicare for all? And some of Bernie's people were shitting on the culinary union's plan saying it's really not good at all. And I think the culinary union, you know, they have pride because they fought for decades to win one of the best health care plans in the nation for low-wage workers and all these Bernie people crapping all over it. And they thought that's not fair. They're not, you know, showing showing what, you know, recognizing what we achieved. Now, also, you know, the people who run the parent union unite here, I think they sympathize with a lot of what Bernie's about, I mean, really, I mean, you know, detailer, um, but I think they really worry that Bernie couldn't win, you know, that, you know, they like a lot of Bernie's ideas, but I think that, uh, you know, a lot of Americans might not be eager to vote for a 78-year-old Jew from Brooklyn who took his honeymoon in Moscow. So I think, you know, while I think that union was very sympathetic to Bernie's ideas in many, many ways, they just thought, you know, he's someone who maybe isn't going to be able to beat Trump. So maybe oh, they, oh. They, they punched him more than they had to. Yeah, but all institutions are self-perpetuating. It's more important that the institution stays in place than yeah. the, the people who belong to it benefit. So that if you're offering Medicare for all, you're making unions superfluous because it forces the unions to provide something besides benefits. It's forcing the unions to get you better wages and more protections by providing a health care plan to to your members you don't have to work that hard that's so so, so um am i making to, myself clear because yeah, yeah. So after world war ii you know one of the great labor leaders of the 20th century was walter ruther who headed the united Auto workers and did wonders in the late 1940s and 1950s winning these landmark agreements that provided uh, health care coverage uh, and, and you know, good wages and health care coverage and pensions. But in the late 1940s, uh, Congress under Republican control was doing, you know, very little to raise Social Security. And he as a union member said, you know, we got to push Social Security, you know, to help all Americans. 
And one might say, well, that would undermine unions because, and then he would, and he was pushing for national health service, just like Britain, because he wanted, you know, just like many unions now, many unions now want Medicare for all. And many unions, like Sarah Nelson of the flight attendants union, uh, people from the national nurses union say it would be better to have Medicare for all because we're sick and tired that whenever we hold a labor negotiation, employers say, well, our healthcare premiums are going up 28% and we have to, make you pay $2,000 more a year for health coverage and that thus we're not going to have money for, for raises to you. So a lot of union, I mean, there's a real division within labor about mm-hmm. whether to support Medicare for all or not. Some say it would be great for society. It would be fair for society. It would help hold down costs and it would, you know, remove a huge headache every time they bargain. Others, as you say, David, realize one of the main reasons a lot of workers vote to join unions is they can get good health coverage and, and unions want to maintain that premium, that prize that attracts workers. So I I think deep down, most union leaders would like to move towards Medicare for all, but they think, you know, they see the public opinion polls. They see a lot of Americans are not very enthusiastic about it. And I think they fear that it's not a winning issue right now in the election. Okay. We're talking with Stephen Greenhouse, who's the author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And I just started. It's a great read, and I'm hoping you'll come back more often. And we have an interview with Stephen that Ralph Nader conducted on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, which you can download as a podcast. And it's great to hear Ralph talking to Stephen. You know, I'm getting older, and I'm moving further and further to the left. I've almost become radicalized, and I don't know where it's leading. And the way I justify moving further to the left is we need to hear from the left that, at the very least, in in the public square, we need to hear from leftists. All we hear are from neoliberals and conservatives. The labor movement, I believe should be lousy with Marxists. And there was a time before World War II and during World War II where labor unions had Marxists in them and they were run by Marxists. Did I read in your book or maybe I... Is it against the law for a union to be run by a member of the Communist Party? Yeah, so... So one of the specific provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act passed in 1947 by the Republicans was union. no union leader could be a communist. If you were a member of a union, uh, an official in the union, you had to basically sign a pledge that you were not and are not now a member of the Communist Party. Is that constitutional? Uh, it was upheld back then by, by the Supreme Court. So a lot of, you know, you know Communist Marxists are some of the very best organizers that organized labor had in the 1930s and 40s. They did some of the very best organizing, especially among workers of color in the 30s and 40s. They were organizing farm workers. They were organizing, uh, uh, you know, African American farm workers, uh, Latino farm workers, you know, Latin farm workers. And then, you know, when, after Tariff Hartley, when unions basically had to purge, uh, all these communists to make, you know, the, House and American Activities Committee happy, you know, that, you know, that really hurt the unions because they lost many of their best organizers. You, you. Um, let, let me just say something about Medicare for all very quick. Yes, 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 yes. You know, if we are starting from scratch, I'm all for Medicare for all. And, you know, and many union leaders would say, let's do that. That's a great idea. But now 
you know, many union members are happy with the health coverage. Many are not, but many are happy. And I think a lot of union leaders say, while in their heart of hearts, they might want Medicare for all, they realize it's not a winning political issue because many of their members and many non-union Americans are worried about losing their health coverage. And many of them, you know, don't love their health coverage, but the fear, you know, you know, you know is better than you know. So it's, it's, it's crazy. So, uh, but I think, you know, deep down, most labor leaders support Medicare for all, but they're worried that it is such a divisive political issue. And, and for them, the main thing is to get rid of Donald Trump because he is, and his National Labor Relations Board and his Department of Labor and Eugene Scalia, the labor secretary, was long corporate America's, you know, main lawyer in attacking all new workplace protections. So unions say that for their future, for the survival in the future, they need to pick a winner who will uh, defeat Trump. And I think many of them, as I said, like lots of Bernie's ideas. They like what Bernie wants to do in income inequality and, and wealth tax and, 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 and uh, you know, free tuition, but they worry that he, you know, he can't win. And I think, you know, they think Biden's okay. They don't, a lot of them aren't enthusiastic about Biden. One of the surprises about Biden, if you look at his labor platform, it's much further to the left than any labor platform that we've seen probably since Harry Truman or FDR. And it's really very good about calling for all these bold, aggressive steps to strengthen unions. Now, it's kind of easy to do that because you need 60 senators to enact it and, and, right. you know, you know, so I mean, it's easy to call for these things. So I think, as I said, every Democrat, you know, you know, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie, they all had great labor platforms and, and Biden does too. And I think, you know, far more than with Obama or with Carter or with, or with Bill Clinton, the Democrats see that you know, for the future of America to build a fairer economy and for the future of the Democratic Party, they need a stronger labor movement. Okay. I think I brought up Schumpeter on the show before to be smart, but I think I said Schopenhauer. But is it, is it Schumpeter who talks about uh, creative Schumpeter. So, yeah, it's Schumpeter. Creative destruction. Schopenhauer is a very hard to com- comprehend uh, moral philosopher. Yeah, okay. Schumpeter is a great economist, yeah. Okay, so he talks about... The creative destruction. Creative destruction. Where, for whether we like it or not, there's been some serious destruction, and it's about a month old, and it's doesn't seem to be ending. Uh, I don't. I don't see it. I think we're. I mean, you saw the banner headline in the New York Times yesterday. This is perhaps the Great Depression, or worse. Can we rebuild this economy? Are we capable of rebuilding the economy to even look like something FDR would have wanted? I I think Trump and Congress have monumentally screwed this up. And one of the main reasons is, as I, you know, the theme of my book is they don't pay enough attention to the workers' concerns, you know, ab initio from the very beginning. So in Europe... You know, what we saw in, in, in Britain with Boris Johnson, we may not love Boris Johnson, but he and France and Germany and Denmark did a very smart thing. Basically, they said, they told companies, don't lay off all your people the way they're doing in the United States. We're going to pay 80, 90 percent of, of the salaries of your workers. So you keep them on the payroll so they don't all panic. They don't have to run to unemployment insurance. And that 
once we get the economy up and running again, you'll have your people there. In the United States, we've gone through this insane economic mayhem over the past four weeks. 22 million workers have, you know, you know, you know, have filed for unemployment. Lots of small businesses have gone out of business. You know, if, if again, if we had done what Europe did and said, here's money for 90% of your workers' salaries so you can stay in business, you don't have to panic, we wouldn't have this colossal mess. So now we have this really scary colossal mess. I live in Manhattan. So many places here are going out of business, you know, restaurants, hardware stores. It's like scary. So like, how do we get that up and going again? And then again, Europe... It's much better because, you know, the companies, you know, are kind of in a deep freeze. They're not going under. They're just like waiting for us to come out of this. And then I guess if you pump a lot of money into the companies, into consumers' pockets, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll come back again some. I mean, people will still be, still be scared to go out, but you could do it. But I think the United States has been so much more to use the shepherd of phrase creative or maybe not creative destruction, but destructive destruction. Yes. The, the uh, destructive would, of the creatives. It, it will be it will be much harder. And and you know, Donald Trump is so benighted in so many ways. It's you know he does so many things wrong. And like yes, we need to support small business, but he's not doing enough to support government. He's not doing enough to support hospitals. Uh, right. You know, twelve hundred dollars is a nice thing, but it's not you know it's not going to help people for many weeks. So you know, Europe. You know, because it's much more attuned to workers' concerns, it has, you know, social democracy in its blood, unlike the United States, where we're much more, you know, war capitalist, ignoring workers' concerns. And I explain all that at length in the book. You know, you know, one of my main points of the book is that the United States could become more like Europe and treat workers with more, more respect and listen to them more closely and have, uh, like these works councils, like German company, every German company has, where, where, you know, they sit down with workers on, on all these different issues to listen to their concerns. If we had that when this horrible pandemic hit, you know, things would be much, much better thought out. Uh, there'd be much more protection sources. I mean, just unethically believable, you know, you know, this, this, um, Smithfield plant in Sioux Falls, uh, owned by a Chinese owned company. By, yeah, but like, but it's in the, it's in the United States. And we regulate it. And OSHA should be there, and the CDC should be there, and the South Dakota government should be there. And it's unbelievable that 644 workers at one facility have COVID-19. And if we were a nation that cared about workers, you know, that would not be happening. Or people uh, cared about people, cared about, you know, th- th- my quarrel with the Democratic Party is they talk about working families and families and workers and the middle class as though people who live on the streets or are in prison shouldn't be represented. We, we should only concern ourselves first with the least among us, work our way from the bottom to the top. When, when COVID-19 strikes, you don't bail out the corporations. You first ask Who's living on the street? Are they vulnerable to this virus? Who's in prison? Who's in a detention center? Who's in a nursing home? The hospitals. That should be the first thing that Washington, D.C. thinks about before they worry about corporate America. But they this trickle-down theory rules supreme here. And, well, this is uh, to be continued, I hope. We've been talking with Stephen Greenhouse he is the author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. 
I am in the middle of it. It's a great read. Stephen wrote for the New York Times for decades, so he knows how to tell a story and make it readable and so that you know where you are. And too, too little is known about the labor movement. I watch my kids go through the California school system. They learned how to be entrepreneurs. They learned how to set up a lemonade stand. They never were taught how to organize. They don't teach the history of the labor movement in this country, in our schools. Is that on purpose? Is that corporate It's certainly on purpose in some states. I think, you know, in some states that are, you know, somewhat more liberal with a greater union tradition, I think they try to make sure that, you know, they teach about the Triangle Fire and the Flint sit-down strike and the Memphis 1968 sanitation worker strike. And, I, you know, you know, in ways the main, you know, I have several purposes of this book. One is for people who don't know, who know very little about labor. I try to, like, explain in a very accessible, readable way, this is what the labor movement is about. This is what it's achieved. This is what it can do in the future. This is how Republicans and business have, are, are trying to stop it to death. But here, But here are some examples where, you know, worker groups and unions are really doing a great job despite management and, and Republicans trying to stump them to death. So, um, and not enough is being taught about unions. And, and, and you know, it's crazy, you know, that, uh, you know, Republicans are always talking about entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs helping small business, helping small business. It's not nearly enough about helping workers. And that's one of the big problems we face right now. Um, I was mad. You know, I love Scorsese, and I've watched The Irishman seven times on Netflix. But it is a disservice to the American people to only make movies about the mafia and labor unions and the racketeering that went on. Did the Justice Department in the 70s, did they succeed in getting the gangsters out of the unions? So... You know, unfortunately, in the 50s and 60s, you know, we had some very, very corrupt unions. The longshoremen, you know, on the waterfront, you know, the Teamsters, the hotel Ma- workers. By the way, made by Elia Kazan on the waterfront, yeah. who yeah. named names. I mean, he was, yeah. he, he, he was, uh, anti, uh. Whose grand, his granddaughter is in, um. Yeah, she's proud of him. But the plot, the plot, the plot against America. Yeah, she's proud, his- she's proud of Elia. Yeah. Um, As is Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro, I might so, so unions are much, much less corrupt. And I always say, you know, at this point in American history, I would argue that unions are less corrupt than, than big business and certainly less corrupt than the Trump administration. There's still too much corruption. There's this terrible scandal in the UAW, but there's so much corruption in corporate America, the pharmaceutical companies, the oil companies. I, th- I think unions are are much more honest. So the Irishman, you know, it, terrific movie, a little long, uh, you know, very anti-union because it's telling this horrible st- story of union corruption from the 1950s, 60s, 70s. One thing, you know, the final scene when when um, what's his name is dying, Robert De Niro is dying. There's the the nurse with him. The nurse is in the orange is the new black, and like I wanted her to say, you know, uh, you know. I have a great job. I have great benefits. And it's my union that, you know, that's really fought for me because I would have helped uh, be a counterweight to yes. <laughs> all the anti-union stuff in the film. And and uh, Elia Kazan, who directed On the Waterfront, I think it was Schulberg uh, who wrote it. He, uh, but, yeah. he, he named names. Elia Kazan named names. And 
Elia Kazan's reputation was rehabilitated specifically by Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. They they made sure that he got honored by the movie academy. So they uh, they have some answering when they come on this show. They're going to yes, yes, they're yes. going to be in my hot seat. Before you go, and thank you so much. We, uh, pick up beaten down, worked up the past, present, and future of American labor by Stephen Greenhouse. If you want to learn about the history of labor unions in America and how different it is from Europe's history, and I have a lot of great stuff about the five for fifteen and about the red for ed teacher strikes and you know, the culinary union in in Nevada and how when Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania all flipped from blue to red, unfortunately, how this traditionally red state Nevada flipped to blue thanks to a union of housekeepers and dishwashers. And right. so, you know, I have a lot of current stuff, too, about what, you know, how unions can still kick ass when they have their act together. Right. Before you go, you covered labor for decades over at the New York Times. This past month, I read somewhere close to 30,000 journalists are either being furloughed or asked to take a pay cut. Is journalism a profitable venture? Has journalism been ruined by venture capitalists who rack up debt? You can make money running a newspaper. I, no, it's, it's very hard to make money running a newspaper. And there are many, you know, you know, this failure has many mothers and fathers. Part of it is, you know, the Internet. You know, newspapers, you know, the old Sunday New York Times used to weigh five, six, seven, eight pounds with tons of real estate ads and help wanted ads and automobile ads. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the help wanted ads are, you know, on you know, what companies now? I, I, you know, and the real estate ads are on Zillow and, and, and you know, and, and, the, and the auto ads are all on the internet. And, and that has really deprived newspapers of their bread and butter. And that's, and, and they've really suffered terribly. So that was like the first wave of creative or destructive destruction to use Schumpeter. Now with unions, with, you know, with a lot of um, media companies really weakened, then we have these vulture venture capitalists taking over that try to like squeeze the remaining blood out of them. You know, some of them have not, you know, some of these newspapers have these wonderful downtown buildings like the LA times did and the New York times did. And, and, you know, so like in the LA times, the venture capitalists, you know, bought it to sell the Chicago Tribune building and to, and to sell the LA Times building. And, and they're just like squeezing it. So that was a real problem. And now we have this horrendous crisis where newspapers that were already not profitable, they are no longer getting restaurant ads and they're no longer getting movie ads and, and, and they're not getting much of the real estate ads because you know, cover 19 and, and, and shuffling in place has really cut business so much. So that's, you know, newspapers have already been through several waves of deep crisis. And then this is yet another deep crisis. And, you know, the venture cat, you know, the, the vulture capitalists are not going to say, Oh, I'm going to step up and, and, and pump a hundred million dollars into the Wichita paper or the St. Louis paper to keep it afloat. They're, go, they're just laying off workers. And so that's why there's this emergency effort in Congress to enact a law that would, you know, give money to keep, you know, to rehire all these, all these reporters and, and keep these papers afloat. But you could bet your bottom dollar that the most demagogic, pre- most demagogic press hating, uh, president in American history is not going to run to, you know, sign any law that's going to give money to keep newspapers afloat. But just they- like, 
what he's doing with the post office. You know, right? He's going to bail out. Conservatives hate the post office. They they think it's socialism, and they you know they're rushing to help small business and every business. But the one thing they're not rushing to help is the post office. And maybe they want to you know they want to kill the post office to make it harder to have mail in ballots too. Right. You lose the post office, you lose America. It's one of the, yeah. I mean, it, it drives Republicans crazy that there's a government institution, quasi-government institution that that works so well. With all these workers of color who are union members. Yeah. Right. That's where, right. That was the, yes, that's a whole other issue. Before you go, and I promise to keep it short, this has been going on for a month. I mean, it's hard to believe that March 3rd was Super Tuesday and... I thought Bernie was going to be president. That's, you know, what, five weeks ago. A lot happens in five weeks. You're stunned. I think most of us are stunned. I think we're beginning to, if we're privileged, if we're not on the front lines, uh, we're putting on our oxygen mask and we're beginning to look out the window and see, you know, how far away we are from land. This is a tortured metaphor. I'm going to move away from that. Are you worried that there's something out there that you're not saying? Because we always think to look to the past, the financial crisis, the dot-com bust, the Great Depression for guidance. This is different. And uh, so, do you think so, you're missing something? Are we missing something? I'm sure I'm missing something that I don't realize. You know, um, uh, you know the unknown unknowns. Um, no, I think, you know, what's, you know, one of the good things coming out of COVID-19 is like workers have really been emboldened and are stepping up. They're saying, you know, traditionally American workers are very scared of speaking out and, and, and pissing off their bosses because they might get retaliated against. But people are so scared for their lives. They're saying, I'm not worried about my boss, boss so much. I'm much more worried about being killed by COVID-19. So we're seeing this wonderful wave of activism. Now, the question is, can this be converted into increased worker power long-term, increased unionization long-term? And the jury is out on that. On one hand, many workers are emboldened. Well, these worker leaders are coming out of the woodwork. They're being trained. Hopefully, they'll remain leaders for years to come. On the other hand, 22 million people just lost their jobs. And I think workers, you know, a lot of them are going to grow more scared. But maybe things will become so bad, as with the, the Great Depression, we'll see – Maybe, you know, millions of workers stopping to watch Netflix and stopping to watch HBO and stopping to play video games and actually go onto the street and protest. I don't know. The mentality of workers is much different now. But I think things might be so broken. I mean, if we reopen the economy when it's when Trump orders the economy open, even when it's very scary to go out there, even when we don't have enough testing kits and antibody kits to ensure people are safe, we might see a lot of workers rebelling in some way, shape, or form. Now, a lot of the rebelling is just people saying, screw this, I'm staying at home. Right. And, and you know, when I, when I was interviewed by Ralph Nader, he was saying, you know, why hasn't the AFL-CIO gotten millions of workers to demonstrate in Washington to protest how Trump has mishandled COVID-19? I said, Ralph, you know, people are scared to go out right now. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think labor strategists are trying to figure out a way in this weird, scary age of, of COVID-19 to rally workers. You know, there are these strikes at McDonald's because the McDonald's um, were not providing masks and hand sanitizer, even hand soap. And so the workers 
instead of, you know, holding a strike with picket signs, they got in their cars and they blocked the drive through. So that was their way of striking kind of a newfangled innovative strike right. in the age of COVID-19. So, you know, and, and, you know, someone like me who writes a lot about labor says, well, COVID-19 might make it much harder for workers to organize because you can't meet face to face or you can't have, you know, when you're trying to organize a union, it's great to have 200, 300, 400 people in a, in a room. They really get jazzed and it really builds solidarity. You can't do that anymore. So like you do it by zoom and it's, it's okay, but maybe not as effective. So, it is, but uh, so you, know, you know, I think some of the unknowns are, you know, how you know how bad is the unemployment going to be? How long is it going to last? How scared are workers going to come? And are the is the anger of workers and the solid and the solidarity of workers are the anger solidarity going to kind of trump no pun intended the fear? And so far, it is overcoming the fear. Right. Um, but you know we have an NLRB that is Trump's and all that. You know Trump may believe he was a great friend of workers, but his National Labor Relations Board is incredibly anti-union. It's like pulling out the stops to make it harder to unionize. So, on the one hand, there is all this healthy worker energy and boldness to fix things in the fa- in, in, in the face of COVID nineteen. On the other hand, you know Republicans and Trump and his NLRB are trying. Very, very, very hard to undercut workers right now. Great, great. I hope to be continued. And again, everybody should listen to Stephen Greenhouse's conversation with Ralph Nader by going to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website and downloading it over at the website or on iTunes. Stephen Greenhouse has written many books, The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and his latest book is Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. And Great to be here, David. Can you stay on the line so I can beg you to come back? I'll be happy to come back another day if I'm still alive, yes. Okay. I'm trying very hard. hard yeah. <laughs> okay, stay on the line for one second. Oh, do you have a Twitter feed? Do you... Yes, I do. How do people follow you on Twitter? Greenhouse NYT is in Thomas NYT. Great, and the book is great. Uh, it's and I, I'm ashamed to tell you how little I know about the the labor movement, and I am a beneficiary of unions. I, my the Writers Guild of America is been my bread and butter, and uh, I should know more uh, about it than I do. I'm. I'm I learned it from what makes Sammy run. The the founding of the the Writers Guild is depicted in what makes Sammy run, written by somebody who named name who, who became a turncoat. Anyway, to be continued. Stay on the line for one quick second. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. We are coming to you live from Liberty University. And please give a warm Liberty University greeting to Congressman Alan Grayson. Hello there, Congressman Alan Grayson. Holy cow. Oh, wait, am I allowed to say that at Liberty? Thank you, 
Uh, we, you know what's Get great? The left track. What are you talking about? This is states' rights. If if Liberty University is open, we're open for business. I should mention that I con- always wanted a laugh track. It's the only way that my jokes sound fun. <laughs> and we also have your friend, the Prime Minister of England. Please welcome Prime Minister of England Boris Johnson. <laughs> He's not ready. You know what? Laughter. Okay, that's not funny. I apologize. Congress, too soon. Too, too, soon. too soon. Actually, too soon is the name of the first person in Wahoon to contract COVID nineteen. Too soon. I thought too soon was was going to be the name of your hit your hit comedy album. That people are still doing that. Yes, I should mention. Speaking of hits, that Congressman Alan Grayson is the author of High Crimes: The Impeachment of Donald Trump. Now out in paperback. Go to impeachbook.com and buy this. Now more relevant than ever. I want to ask you about Ron DeSantis, your governor. I want to ask you when Disney yes. World should reopen down there in Orlando. But first, let's talk impeachment because. He is a miracle. He, I mean, Donald Trump is an inspiration. He gets up every day and fights the bad fight, but he, he nothing stops him. In January, the General Accounting Office reported that Donald Trump could not ignore congrats, congressionally mandated funding for Ukraine simply because Donald Trump didn't want to give them the money. Donald Trump is now looking for a scapegoat for his mismanagement of this pandemic, and he is blaming the World Health Organization and has announced that he's going to withhold the $500 million to the World Health Organization until further study. Is that is that a ground for impeachment? Yes, that's abuse of power. It's squarely a ground for impeachment. And actually, in the book, we, 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 we go into the first subject, the constitutionality of the payment, withholding the payments to Ukraine at some length. But I already sound not funny to myself, so maybe I should stop there. <laughs> Is the World Health Organization a, a scapegoat? And have you ever had scapegoat? And what does it taste like? No, is the world is the World Health Organization a legitimate scapegoat? There is some. No, no. no for God's sake, let, let's let's think this through, okay? Let's 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 apply a little bit of rational thought to this subject, okay? The virus is now worldwide. Um, if it stews in Brazil or India or Nigeria um, indefinitely then we're going to get reinfected over and over and over again until we either get to herd immunity, which may not even exist for the COVID virus, or alternatively, everybody is vaccinated, which could be years and years and years away. So the only way to deal with the, the a virus effectively is to deal with it on a, a national, international, and worldwide basis. What is the only organization that could possibly accomplish that? Go ahead. Tell me. The United Nations and the World Health Organization is an arm of the United Nations. The World Health Organization is the only tool conceivable, not just available, but conceivable, that would help to fight the virus in places like Brazil and Nigeria, where it could stay for years and then come back over and over and over again to the United States, even if we eradicated it from our shores. 
So it doesn't make sense. It, the same thing was true of Ebola. It was it was the, the WHO that kept Ebola from stewing in Africa and coming to the United States over and over and over again. Well, Nothing has changed. There's only one way to solve this problem on that basis, and it's through them. It doesn't... It doesn't matter if they were almost as bad as Donald Trump uh, in in mismanaging the situation in China, because they are literally the only tool available to deal with the problem worldwide. And they they address polio, malaria, Ebola, HIV, malnutrition, mental health issues throughout the world. It goes on and on and on. But they did kind of downplay the the fatalities coming out of China. I mean, they're, they're, I'm hearing this from reliable sources that on January 14th, the World Health Organization said that there's no clear evidence of human to human transmission of COVID-19. So, if you're the president of the United States, who should be frog marched in front of the Hague, but you're getting information from yeah. When when you think about what's happening, right. We'll get to it later, I guess. But when you think about what's happening right now in prisons and and uh, in, in those concentration camps that we have on the border with Mexico, and, and you realize how many people are being infected in those federal institutions, it does sound like a good case to go to The Hague. Yeah. But I don't want to take you off a subject. Well, I, want, I do want to talk you, you about go ahead. I, I'd like to talk to you about bail reform and why we have close to half a million Americans sitting in jails simply because they can't come up with bail and they're not a And risk. now they're all going to get infected and many of them are going to die. And they're not a, a flight risk. But before we get to that, is there any defense that Donald Trump can summon in terms of bad advice from the World Health Organization? Bad advice no, from... No, that, that is not... No, that is not a defense that Donald Trump could ever summon under any circumstances because he doesn't listen to anybody. Right, right. He can never say X gave me bad advice or Y gave me bad advice because it's, my mother would say it went in one ear and out the other because there's nothing in between. And yet he's being enabled by a Republican Party that's just as nefarious as he is. So, yes, and the, the, they have inflicted him. They always regarded Donald Trump, all those smart conservatives, always regard Donald Trump as a useful idiot. Well, now it turns out that he's a useful, fatal idiot. 28,000 Americans have died so far from COVID-19. 600,000 have the uh, the virus. Had Barack That's more than that. Well, because we're not testing yet. We can't even test. Uh, look, uh, you know, there's all there's all sorts of evidence that it's much more widespread than that. I'll give you one example. I referred earlier to the fact that that detainees are being held in con- under conditions that make it almost impossible to avoid getting infected. Mm-hmm. Guatemala had a plane load of them come back, had enough tests to test all of the people on the plane, and found that 75 percent of the detainees were infected with the virus. Now, with 75% of the detainees at one federal facility, what is the odds that it's 0.2% in the rest of America, the way you you just described? that That's not possible, okay? The, the numbers must be much higher than that. 
You're saying in that, Germany. Hang on, in Germany. Yeah. Go ahead. Which has which has far less of a COVID nineteen problem than the United States. In Germany, they took one town, they tested everybody in the town to see if they had the virus, and ten percent of the people had the virus and didn't know it. Right. Right. You're saying that we shipped Guatemalans out of the detention centers here in the United States back to Guatemala. Guatemala has the tests. We don't. And what percentage of them came back infected with the virus? 75%. That's incredible. And we just had a 2,000 death spike here in New York because now they're counting the the nursing homes and the, and the people who've died at home from the virus. They weren't counting that. So other countries are able to handle this. South Korea has... South Korea has pretty much wiped it out. They were able to go to the polls this week and vote. Why can't it's not we... not just that. It's that the, the death count day by day is, is barely moving any longer in South Korea. They... they you know they 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 came up immediately with policies that actually worked. They had massive testing. They devoted huge numbers of people to skip trace to, to tracing the population. In other words, if people were were showing symptoms, they had to get tested immediately. And and they they didn't resist like Americans might. Um, they had to get tested immediately. Everybody who got tested had their contacts traced for the past week. All those people were checked to see if they had any symptoms. And everybody went into quarantine who looked like they might have symptoms or they had been exposed. And so the rest of the population, which is in South Korea's case, you know, that's the, the unexposed population is well over 95% even now. Those people were able to get on with life. And that's an entirely different approach than we've seen in the United States, where Donald Trump is stomping all over the testing that, that the states want to do and trying to prevent it from happening. Is this bad governance? If you were to ask, if you were to go to the Federalist Society, there would be, the, there would be people there who would defend Donald Trump. Is this bad governance or bad philosophy when it comes to states' rights in, in Washington, D.C.? It's horrible governance. So, you know, the, the 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 person who was in charge within USAID, which is a federal agency, the person who's in charge of this kind of disaster relief for USAID, said that recently that it's the worst misgovernment in the history of the United States, and I, I think that's true. I can't think of a, another example. I mean, we we've, we've taken a problem that other countries had earlier than we did, and rather than learning from their successes or even learning from their mistakes, we've come up with our own mistakes. You know, we've taken a problem that did not originate in the United States, that came to us in exactly the same way it came to Portugal and Germany and, and Sweden and, and Japan. It came to, the, came to them from overseas. And in our case, we've botched it so badly that we have the highest number of COVID corpses in the entire world. We are number one. It's exactly the way that Trump promised us. He has made America number right. one again. Right. Right. Well, will the American people wake up 
and say 40 years of Reaganomics has laid bare the bankruptcy of our tax code, which makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. And the first thing we have to think of when a pandemic strikes, the first thing we have to think about are the people living on the streets, not the people living in the penthouses. Will we change as right. a people? Bail out people, bail out people, not corporations. Um, these checks that that they mailed out to people and, and deposited in their accounts, they're smaller than the bailout money that Mnuchin now has his hands on. They just decided to give $5.8 billion to American Airlines. The entire market capitalization of American Airlines is $5 billion. Explain, that to, my, explain that to my listeners what that means. Okay, sure. Uh, the government has established a, a bailout fund that's roughly half a trillion dollars. Um, the person who gets to decide, in theory, uh, w- without any sort of oversight by the president or anybody else, the, the person who gets to decide who gets the money is Steve Mnuchin. He's not even given any sort of legal formulas or guidelines. It's basically, how do I feel about this company? How do I feel about that company? When I go back to Goldman Sachs, are they going to give me business in the future? And so on. Right. That he can do what he wants with, with the money, uh, the, as long as it's directed to a corporation rather than a human being. Um, they just announced that $25 billion, the first money coming out of that slush fund, $25 billion is going to the airlines. Uh, they're dividing it up among several airlines. American Airlines is getting $5.8 billion of that money. If you go on, on Google and you Google American Airlines stock, you will see that the market capitalization of the company, American Airlines, the stock trading on the New York Stock Exchange, the market capitalization of that company is $5 billion. So that means we could buy, so, the government could spend $5 billion and buy up all the stock. Buy the entire company, right. Buy the entire company for less than the amount that they're handing to the company as a gift. But there's a reason we don't do that. We don't nationalize. We don't nationalize. What is the reason? Well, well, I'm just, you know, I can't agree with you. Otherwise, we don't have a show. The, the reason is that, that, that corporate welfare is so, so deeply ingrained into the system that we do it reflexively without even thinking about it any longer. But we don't run. We can't run an airline. We we can't nationalize an airline and then expect Washington D.C. to run American Airlines. Well, you know, the last time this happened, what, during the SARS crisis, something very interesting happened in China. At that point, the Chinese had already taken over Hong Kong. The Hong Kong stock market collapsed. The Chinese government went in and bought the shares at a low level. And then, when the shares recovered after the SARS crisis was over, the Chinese government sold those shares at a profit. Now, if the totalitarians can figure out how to do that, why can't the capitalists? Be, I, I would think that that reeks of totalitarianism, where the, the government buys a, a corporation. It makes sense when you crunch the numbers, but it goes contrary to everything this country believes in, which is the free market. But and how you you just described bailouts. The, the bailouts are contrary to everything this country believes in, like the free market. 
you're supposed to be able to provide goods and services to people in exchange for their money, not get handouts from the government. Right. That's the capitalist creed. I agree with you. I'm just trying to understand how these people justify this this horrible behavior. And I can't imagine during the height of the Great Depression the instinct of Washington to to not turn to the people who are unemployed to try to figure out how to get them working again. But now we have these intermediaries, these buffers, corp- corporations. They're the, the drivers of jobs. Are they? When we bail out these companies, do they create jobs for the taxpayers who are bailing them out? In this case, no. You, you know, in the case of the GM bailout, it, it, it worked. In the case of America Airlines, I seriously doubt that it's going to work. I mean, we're, we're not going to have as many flight attendants two years from now as we do now. We're not going to have as many flight attendants a year from now as we do now. I'm not sure exactly how long it's going to take for things to get back to normal, if they ever do. But the, 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 the fact is that when, when we bailed out General Motors, those jobs were actually saved. Uh, when we bail out American Airlines, it's not clear to me that that's going to be saving those jobs at all. There are fundamental changes underway in the U.S. economy that are staggering. I think that for a long time to come, there are not going to be a lot of people taking cruises. To give you one example... I think that we're going to see oil remain closer to $20 where it is now per barrel than $65 where it was six weeks ago for a long time to come. You know, regardless of how much oil is actually pulled out of the ground, which is about 60 million barrels a day, when the price drops from $65 a barrel to $20 a barrel, you just took a trillion dollars off of world GNP. There are, there are massive fundamental changes in the way that the economy is going to be that have nothing to do with the number of people on any given day who get sick and die from the virus. We're, we're, seeing, we're going to see dramatic changes in the savings rate. People are going to be scared to spend money because they might get unemployed again. Mm-hmm. We're going to see dramatic changes in, in, in how people spend their money. Once you get used to not going to Disney World, you're not going to go back to Disney World. I'm sorry to say that because that employs 50,000 people right here in where I live. But those people who were going to Disney World a month ago, they're not coming back anytime soon. They're going to be in the habit of not spending their money that way. If you work for an auto company, there's no obvious connection between that and the virus except for the fact that very few people in the next couple of years are going to have enough money to buy a car. And so on. I mean, there's going to be reverberations here that are just enormous. So to say, well, we'll just hand more than the entire market capitalization of the company over to American Airlines to preserve those jobs is to make a big assumption about what the economy is going to be looking like in 2021 that is probably wrong. And the... The money still exists. People sold stocks. People are selling things. There's money, cash on the sidelines, which means private equity is winning. No, 
That's not true. There's not, there's not a lot of cash in the sidelines. So do we have to worry about all the land being bought up by private equity, all the homes being bought up by private equity? No. You know, I, I've gotten to know some of those people over time in the course of my 62 years or so on planet Earth. Everyone seems to think that they're really smart. Most of them are not. Okay, that is basically arithmetic masquerading as intelligence. Mm-hmm. And they, the fact that they have had at various times in the past a lot of money sitting in their pockets doesn't mean that they're particularly good at deploying it. They, there's not a lot of money sticking in people's pockets right now. You know, most of that money came from the stock market bubble. Um, and the stock market bubble is, I think, rather rapidly deflating. You know, it, it took almost four years for the stock market to bottom out during the Great Depression. You know, we've already seen a very substantial drop in four weeks. So I, I would not assume that private equity is going to, you know, be able to buy up everything everywhere the way that we thought Japan was going to do in 1990. That's, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think that essentially even the rich are going to be tapped out um, as this gets deeper and deeper and deeper. What causes, we'll see. What causes people to be tapped out? Debt? Rich people who... Yeah. Well, I mean, the only way you could actually go bankrupt is if you have debt. If you don't know anything to anybody, then you can't go bankrupt. So it'll be, it'll be worse for people who either have debt or, you know, have some kind of oh, debt-like arrangement. You know, they're, I mean, they're, they're, there are derivatives that are enough like debt so that doesn't matter whether they're debt or not. Uh, you know, this, either, there's exposure that, of various forms that isn't called debt, but it amounts to the same thing. And whoever has that is going to end up uh, in trouble over time. And the people who live a quiet life don't rack up credit card debt, don't owe too much on their student loans, have a manageable mortgage that they're paying or manageable rent, they'll they'll be okay. But if you spent the last couple of years living extravagantly, you're in trouble. What about a Jubilee? Well, I mean, the main thing, the, the main thing before you get on to Jubilee, the main thing is, is what occupation you have. I mean, you know, we had 10% of the, of the population that's working at home before the coronavirus. Now it's 63%. But 10% of the population was working at home before the coronavirus. And those people in general, aren't affected at all. Um, You know, at the other extreme are people who couldn't possibly get their work done uh, under uh, current conditions. Um, Shoe salesmen, for instance. Uh, Transit workers. Transit workers, right. You know, the, the, the real difference is, I mean, there'll be substantial difference between the, the, the leveraged and the the savers, that's true. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if you if you drive down the block you live on and you look to your left and you look to your right in the houses you go by, the real difference in what's happening in those houses is basically what occupation the, the people 
who were the breadwinners in those houses happened to have. And it's completely random. I mean, if you're a medical worker, you got more work than you ever had before. And if you're a frontline um, worker working for the city, driving a bus, being a garbage man, being a plumber, you there has to be hazard pay for these people. They don't even have masks well, yet for them. Uh, right. I, yes, I pointed that out on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, that the fact that some of the people who have uh, the, you know, the least respected jobs and the most poorly paid jobs in society are now the people who are absolutely most at risk, like cashiers in supermarkets. These people almost always get barely the minimum wage, and now they, their work could kill them. They have work that will kill them. They're keeping us alive. And I've been saying on this show for a week, the least paid are the most essential. The least paid are the most essential. You walk into an ICU, I guarantee you, the person keeping you alive is not the doctor, not the hospital administrator earning $6 million a year. It's the nurse, and it's the janitor who's cleaning up after you. Uh, the doctors are not keeping you alive. It's those nurses. And they're the least paid. It's the grocery workers who uh, are being told by Amazon that, you know, you can uh, take a couple of days off. We won't pay you, but if you're exhausted, you can take. How do we change this country? Where does it start? It, you know what it feels like? Congress? It's not going to. It's not going to. That problem is not going to get better. It's going to get worse because now there is the classic Marxian reserve army of the unemployed. You, you have 20-plus percent of the population who desperately want and need to work, and they don't have a job. And and so the sad fact is that the, the grocery store worker is not going to be compensated based upon his or her expo exposure to death, combat pay, whatever you want to call it, but rather the fact that if, if they insist on $10 an hour, Somebody else is going to come in the door and say, I, I need to do this job for nine mm -hmm. to stay alive. That's what's going to happen when the unemployment runs out. And Amazon is spending a fortune keeping unions out of the, the warehouses. I don't see us turning into a Western democracy like in Europe. I see us going further and further south and becoming Brazil in the 70s, Argentina in the 70s. I don't see people taking to the street. I see... Well, you know, the Democrats are going to... I think the Democrats are going to have their chance. Now we know, apparently, that it's going to be Biden who's going to be the Democratic nominee. I cannot believe that people going through this lacerating experience are going to feel anything but disgust close to vomiting for Trump come November. I mean, you know, even a dog knows when it's being kicked. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I would expect that Biden will have a chance, and, and then we'll see. But, you know, having a chance doesn't mean that much. Um, can I, can I, can I, let's, let's put a pin in that, because you brought up bail, and you are a, okay. you're a Harvard Law graduate. We won't hold that against you. 670,000 Americans sit in jails or immigration detention centers waiting for justice. They're not convicted of a crime they're there because they can't come up with bail who who benefits as the, as they say in yiddish qui bono 
what who benefits by keeping six hundred seventy thousand people in our jails? Who benefits? What? You're such a putz. <laughs> the kids at Liberty, they don't know That's what Yiddish means. Yiddish. Huh? That's not Yiddish. Of That's course. Latin. No, it isn't. Every term in you. Habeas corpus, those are all Yiddish oh, yeah, expressions. What's the with you? Habeas no. corpus, that's a Yiddish expression. Habeas corpus. Yeah. I've only I've only heard people who speak Yiddish throw throw terms like habeas corpus, qui bono, e pluribus unum, mens rea. Those are those are Yiddish expressions. Growing up I heard that at the dinner table all the time. It had to be Yiddish. You're saying it's Latin? Are you saying I was raised? <laughs> <laughs> by bishops you from are the Vatican? Philadelphia, you are a Philadelphia comedian. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> you're a Philadelphia lawyer. Um, what, do, what does that uh, mean? You're, no, you're no, low, low rent? What? Are you making fun of our listeners in Philadelphia? <laughs> All right, let's get back to Okay, the, so, the so who benefits? Question. Who benefits by not letting these innocent people out? Well, the honest, the honest theory, um, if we're going to be really blunt about this, is that these people are guilty until proven innocent. Right. And um, that is an unconstitutional reversal of due process. Um, the, the traditional view is that you put people in prison if they were flight risk. Well... You know, with the government um, universally surveilling people, mm -hmm. um, with cameras on almost every block, and the airline um, shut with, down, so you can't. There's no place for you to flight. Right, with with people's phones in their pockets, providing the means to trace them whenever the government feels like it. You really can't make a good argument anymore that there's such a thing as quote flight risk. Right. Unless somebody has a passport, maybe. Um, and if they don't have a passport, then how the hell would they go anywhere? That would make any difference. I mean, this this country is is not just you know under lockdown, but even before the coronavirus, like there were no secrets anymore. Mm -hmm. The everybody was. I mean, unless you know you lived on a. a, a, a I don't know, like a remote location in Montana in the woods, and you were cut off from the electricity grid, and you didn't have a cell phone, you could be found. That's the way it is. We don't find people that much because, I mean, we're just not that totalitarian, but we could be if we wanted to be. But do we find and that people they, are flight risk? I mean, haven't they discovered that most people show up for their court dates? Yeah, even most immigrants who are you know the, well you know well aware of how the system works, most immigrants mm -hmm. show up for their their court dates. Um, so the answer is yes, but I mean, what it really comes down to is is that the the hidden agenda, the hidden agenda, is to lock people up if they can't prove that they're innocent. Because um, and because, that's sad. Because because we perceive them to be a risk uh, to commit more crimes. But there's an industry. I mean, isn't there an industry? That benefits from keeping them locked up, 
Isn't there a bail? Don't pay no, me. No, I mean, I don't think that. I know. I, I think it's historical inertia. I think that, that the bail system is a function of 18th century thinking, and I don't. I, I would not pin that particular crime on the private prison industry. I don't think that's what's going but, on. What about there. the ba- the bail industry? Aren't there lending companies that would be put out of business if if we got rid of bail? Most of the bail. Uh, the people who populate the bail system are small-time operators. They're they're not, you know, Wall Street or or national organizations or anything like that. It's a very sort of mom and pop type business in in reality. So again, I don't think that they have a lot of political clout. I just think that the system, you know, isn't perceived as being broken the way that you and I were talking about it, and therefore nobody has any great desire to fix it. There is something called the bail project, which is a bunch of big donors literally putting up the money uh, to provide people bail mm-hmm. and then accepting the risks that they, they won't show up when it's time for them to show up and undercutting the bail bondsmen. That, that there, there is such a thing, and it's um, you know getting larger over time and, and keeping people alive right now because these uh, jails are a cesspool of coronavirus. Well, yes, and, and the system wasn't taking care of people even before. I had a friend who went to prison for almost a year, and um, he almost died in there. And he went in with a heart condition. He was recovered. He'd recovered from cancer. They wouldn't give him his meds on a regular basis. They were denying him the care that he needed to stay alive. And, you know, when he finally got out, he was a walking dead man, died a short time later. And that was before coronavirus. Now, my God. And there's plenty of people in prison who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, and they're all male. The, the, the virus is killing three times as many males as females last time I looked. Uh, the, the, overwhelmingly, the prison population is male, like more than 10 to 1. And, and you know, the, the result of that is that these people are in very great danger of dying from the virus. And right. nobody cares. Nobody thinks about it. They're not... They're not going to improve medical care overnight at these prisons just because it's cruel and unusual punishment. It's rolling it's for a long time. Yeah, it's rolling through Rikers Island. Rikers Island has the highest infection rate of any prison in the world, I just read. And people aren't thinking about that because they have their own problems. Their, their Netflix queue is empty. And I'm serious about this question. And we'll wrap it up. And thank you. And I hope you come back more often. It's an honor and a privilege to have Congressman Alan Grayson on. Go to impeachbook.com and buy High Crimes, the impeachment of Donald Trump. Anybody who is sheltering in place lives a life of privilege. You have a shelter. You're in place. You don't have to go to work. Oh, my God. Obviously, you've never met my kids. <laughs> so, living a life of privilege. Living a life of privilege is doing your patriotic duty of doing nothing. You know, during 9-11, go out and shop. That was our job. Oh, my God. Spoken like a true comedian. What? The the idea that, that that your job is to do nothing. Yeah, well that that well that is a comedian's job to do nothing. <laughs> that, but that you know, stay home, do nothing. But I don't want to. You have to do it for the good of this country. Do nothing. Just watch Netflix. What are we missing? Do you worry that 
the, that there is stuff happening. Forget Washington, D.C. and what Bill Barr, the attorney general, is doing to our civil liberties. Do you worry that we're missing something that's happening among the 99% among the grocery workers, the nurses, the people who are, other than catching the virus, are we missing the same thing that perhaps the Romanovs missed around 1917? Uh, I think I can barely understand that question. And the Romanovs, the answer, the Romanov, the, the, uh, is there a revolution <laughs> brewing? That, back to Latin. Back yeah, the to Romanovs. Latin. Here you go again. The Romanovs, um, they, don't, they didn't see the no, revolution coming. I, I suspect that it's much worse than, than that. Um, you know, for the past 40 years or so, there's been a giant sort of pull away from the physical meat world toward the virtual world. Mm-hmm. And um, that's had its effects. There's just way too many people right now who spend too much time on their computers and on their phones. Um, and now what we're seeing is not just that pull, but an actual push in that direction. So don't, don't go out and talk to your neighbors. Don't have a barbecue. Um, don't go to the store. Don't go to your job. Just stay at home. And what people do at home is what you said. They hang on Netflix and... You know, they engage in uh, some passive virtual world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that there's not only the pull that existed there, the attraction of that world, now the push away from this world, I think may have, you know, very dramatic long-term consequences um, in, in terms of people's psychology, definitely in terms of the economy. Um, I, I mean, we might, depending upon exactly what happens in the next 24 months or so, have broken the economy, just broken it entirely to the point where we're not real to fix it. And, and also in terms of the relationship um, psychologically to each other and to the real world. I mm-hmm. mean, we've, we, we've, if you said six weeks ago, you know, when I walk out on the street, I think that if anybody comes within distance where, you know, within six feet of me, I think that person might kill me. And they might do it by accident and not even intended, but I would be dead. If you said that out loud two months ago, people would say, that person is crazy. Or from the Bronx. And they'd be right. Or from the Bronx. <laughs> right, right, or the other. I mean, that that's like like a textbook example of what paranoia sounds like. Yeah. If you come within arm's reach of somebody else, they might kill you and not even know it. I mean, it, it's like like scanners come alive. You remember the movie Scanners? Yeah. Like scanners yeah. come alive. Or if Somebody looks at you the wrong way and your head, and your head explodes. You know, that's, that's that kind of thing. Now, it's just considered to be social distancing. That's all it is. Right. I mean, we, we have crossed the threshold into this strange um, anti-biological uh, approach to life where we literally treat each other as if we were atoms in the void. Um. Don't get too close to anybody else. Let me ask you something. 
how are we going to procreate? How is the human race going to continue if we all remain six feet apart from each other? Through the post office. What's going to... Through the post office. <laughs> What's that going to do to the birth rate? Did the... You know, on Twitter, on Twitter a month ago, I said, I asked people, this social distancing thing, is this going to, what effect is this going to have on the birth rate? I asked people. We know what effect it's going to have on the death rate. We know what COVID's going to do to the death rate. What's going to do to the birth rate? Because I was curious to hear people's answers, as I often am when I'm on Twitter. So I, I did a poll. Um, 60% of the people thought that the, this social distancing thing, everybody staying at home, would cause the, the, the birth rate to increase. I think it's the opposite. I think it's going to cause the birth rate to plunge. Now, we'll see. You know, I've got kids who are dating age. We'll see, you know, what happens over time to their social development, their likelihood of getting married, their likelihood of having children, and so on. We'll see. We have this- a feeling that this may be doing some very long-term damage to the human race. We'll see. Well, I'm an eternal uh, optimist, Congressman. I disagree with you only in that I think this is a good thing. I think this is all going to happen, but I say it's a good thing for the planet. I think the animals have never been happier. And I think that things change very quickly. If you said to me six weeks ago, I'd be keeping six feet away from everybody, I'd say, you're out of your mind. But, you know, when you're at in the depths of a pandemic, you can't imagine life after. I remember AIDS and the, the same questions were being raised. So the humans are very resilient. Right. We'll figure right. something. No, we'll, that's fair. That, we'll that, figure that, something that's a fair out. Fair analogy. We will figure something out. We always do. And it's you know, as Warren Buffett said, if I talk folksy, people won't realize that I'm a predatory capitalist. No, that's not what he said. He, which he is with his insurance companies. But, no, he says, you know, you know, nobody ever got rich betting against America. And I have to believe that, even though I think there are, even though I'm borderline Marxist, uh, I think that the American people can, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anymore. I don't know if we're capable of, I don't know if we're allowed to change. I, I don't know if we're allowed to learn from history anymore. History. It's a mystery. Yes. Thank you, Congressman Alan Grayson. Uh, follow him on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? It's a, you do polls. It's fun. You have a great Twitter account. What? I just, uh, I, I, if I recall, I think it's Rep. Alan Grayson. I think it's I, I just don't, I don't Alan tweet Grayson. it myself, so maybe maybe it's Alan Grayson. It's, 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 at Al, yeah, it's at Alan Grayson. And uh, okay. everybody should follow him. And everybody should go to impeachbook.com. No, no, no. I meant what I said about, like, falling into the virtual world. Don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that. Leave. Go, go, go out and say hello to your neighbor instead. Don't, don't do what David just said. Ignore him. Everybody's listening to the sound of my voice. Ignore David. Don't, don't listen to me. Don't listen to him. Just get on with your lives. Get a life. Here's what you should get do. Get a life. Here's what you should do. Alan should tweet that, and we should retweet that. And then go knock on your neighbor's door with your phone and show him Congressman Alan Grayson's most recent tweet. Thank you, sir. Can you stand on the line for one second? Yeah, sure. Oh, and uh, 
Liberty University, thank you so much. Please give a, a warm Liberty University farewell to Congressman Alan Grayson. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry Lynn, the Reverend Barry Lynn is standing by. Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. He is a lawyer as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of, let me see if I get this right, Christ? Absolutely right. Yeah. I'd even sing along with that. Yes. Welcome back, Reverend. Thank you. Welcome Thank back, you. Reverend Barry Lynn. Today you have some religious right nuts. Indeed, it's a plethora of okay. nuts. We got a lot to go through. We've got uh, right. Steve Mnuchin and yep. Fox News. You're saying Fox News should be sued for misrepresenting Correct. COVID-19. The Supreme Court on May 12th will hear whether or not Donald Trump should or should not release his tax returns. You're saying Nancy Pelosi should begin impeachment proceedings again. And uh, we'll talk about the stimulus package and whether or not Donald Trump can adjourn Congress. Let's start with your sermon you're delivering a sermon at the Community Church of Boston, but it's virtual, right? You're not. It is virtual, and uh, I, I frankly thought it was going to be canceled, but I did receive a call a few days ago from the person setting it up who said, would you do this over Facebook Live? And if you go, if any of your listeners want to say, I've heard Lynn on the Feldman show, I wonder what he looks like, Um you can go to Facebook to the Community Church of Boston's page and you can find all kinds of information about the event. And I'm be joined there doing a few songs, since I don't sing, uh, by my good friend Katie Curtis, who was described by the New Yorker magazine some years ago as a folk rock goddess. She is a great singer, a great songwriter, and a great friend. Fantastic. Okay. Sunday. At 11 a.m. East Coast time. So you are a creature of Washington, D.C., which is just beginning to see COVID-19 breaking out at Whole Foods there. Some of the grocery stores are having outbreaks of COVID-19. I think it's safe to say that you're married to a doctor. I'm not violating a trust. Is that correct? No, that is absolutely correct. You are married to a doctor. What are you hearing in D.C. about COVID-19? I think we're hearing not much that's different from what any sensible big city mayor is saying, what uh, Mr. Garcetti out in Los Angeles is saying, what Bill de Blasio is saying in New York. And our uh, our mayor here says the same things. We have to make it clear that we continue social distancing until such time as 
something happens and we can open up again. But the most frustrating thing I hear or don't hear is what is it that we need to know for sure about this outbreak. So I have consulted not only with my own wife, the physician, but with several other doctors. And I'd like to propose what I think we need to know. And it's very frank and very, we have to acknowledge this. The population of the United States, 335 million people, the percentage of the population who will get COVID-19 50 to 60 percent. So that's 165 to 170 million people. We're not going to stop it. But then when the so-called herd immunity kicks in, that means the virus is still out there, but at a low level because it can't find enough people to infect, can't find enough. And and where is this coming from? This is coming from a collection of conversations with doctors who, were they on television, would be this blunt about it. But it's nonsensical to talk about the fact that this is going to disappear when people who own stocks wake up tomorrow or look at what the futures are saying. uh, They will find out that the futures are up 800 or 900 points because of some speculative, not completed tests uh, for a treatment for those who get the disease. But that's a treatment, not a vaccine. It's not a vaccine. It is a treatment. Now, of those 165 million people that get the disease, half of them are going to have no discernible symptoms. They probably will have immunity. We don't know that for sure, but probably will. 25% will get a a minor illness. They'll say, oh, I have a fever. I've lost my sense of taste. They don't need to be in the hospital. But the other 25% of that 165 million people are going to get really sick and they're going to be in need of hospitalization. What was the percentage you gave? 50% get nothing. They don't even know they had it. 25% get a minor illness, not requiring hospitalization. 25% get really sick and do need to be in the hospital. So you're saying 25% of the 50% of Americans who get it will have to go to the hospital? Uh, no, no, I, it's no. I thought it could. I thought my math was going to be clearer, but it's not. No. Of the 165 people who would become infected. 165 million. Yeah. 50% won't even know they had it. 25% will get a little sick. They'll say, oh, I have a cold. Oh, I have a fever. I've lost my sense of taste. I wonder why. But the other 25% of that 165 million will be sick enough that they probably will need to go to the hospital, not necessarily be on a ventilator, but go to the hospital. That's what's so important about flattening the curve so that when you do get infected and you're in that 25% who get really sick, there'll be hospital beds for you available in your part of the country, in your neck of the woods. It's that simple, but nobody wants to think. I never hear anybody on television say, um, yeah, 50, 60 percent of us will get the disease because that sounds just shocking, although it's true. I'm convinced it's true. I wish it wasn't true, but I'm convinced it is true. Well, the Republicans are saying 
you know, the economy is $22 trillion a year to shut it down. You're going to cause people to starve to death that, that they're, they're depending on herd immunity. They're saying, open up the spigot again, let some people get the virus the the cure shouldn't be worse than the disease. Is there anything legitimate to that? I mean, you're, when you see people lining up for miles to get food from shelters, sure. Uh, well, if is if there you any count the if, yeah, I mean, if you count the numbers, are more people going to end up dying because of this? You know, lockdown. I'm just asking. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I no, I don't think so. But I think of the of the all of the idiocy about this. We need to open right up right now. The mayor of Las Vegas a day or so ago did a press conference or an interview where he said we need to open because being closed is killing us. I can tell you if people for some reason decided they had to go to Las Vegas now. They could probably get cheap hotel rooms, but that kind of merging of that many people in Las Vegas, gambling, doing anything else, including the things that uh, are supposedly going to stay in Las Vegas, um, we will have a huge outbreak there. And the people who get sick in Las Vegas, if this mayor's desire is fulfilled, They'll be the people who take it back to Arkansas and Texas and New York. And they tend to be the spitting image of health. I mean, there's no comorbidity, (laughs) no No. comorbidity in Vegas. Not uh, no, there's nothing yet. Why the people you see in Vegas are um, a, a marvelous collection of the healthiest people in the country. Uh, and particularly if you aren't in the no smoking sections of the casinos, because smoking and drinking and other unmentionable things are rampant in Las Vegas. And I used to go to Las Vegas to speak. I used to love being there two nights because I could go see a comedian one night and I could do whatever I was supposed to do for business. And then I would be able to go see a magician on the second night. One time I was there for a third night, I had no idea what to do. Okay, so we're, again, I I am... Just throwing this out here because this is the conversation that people don't get to have. We got we got a report on retail sales for March. Yep. Down something like nine percent. They're saying April is going to be the worst month ever since they've been keeping track of retail sales. Best Buy is laying off fifty one thousand workers. Yep. The gap is just going to be aggressively closing their stores. Uh, 14 million Americans work in retail. They're going to be out of a job. This is getting really bad. So, again, I'm not defending Trump or no. Sen- Senator John Kennedy and the Republicans are saying, turn this economy back on. If you're unemployed... You're going to get a $1,200 check. We'll get to that in a second. Sure. You're not able to collect unemployment insurance because the infrastructure just is not there. The the computers don't work. The food banks don't have what we need. Will more people die? 
from shutting down the economy than from COVID-19. No, I don't think there's any possibility that more people will die because of shutting down the economy. And there are remedies. I mean, there are people, including people with whom I, I can't ever remember saying a good word about, like Anthony Scaramucci, who says we're pathetic in the amounts of money that we're giving to average Americans. You can't give them $1,200 a person and maybe the $600 for their kid, although there are a lot of stories that, that people are getting their $1,200, and if they're single fathers, single mothers, the, the IRS apparently didn't remember. Okay, this is what we child. could do. I'm talking about reality, who this well, country is. Well, yeah, so but reality... What, the reality of this country is we have this mythical Franklin Delano Roosevelt president that doesn't exist, that's going to come in and save us. But that doesn't exist. This is not America. We're a disgraceful nation. We don't have a safety net. So uh, what should be done and what's going to be done seems to me that because this is such an immoral, amoral, sadistic violent nation shutting down the economy we're not equipped to shut down the economy we have no social safety net that's the problem well, well it, it certainly is true that we don't have a sufficient safety net but my argument i think is that we still have a congress at least a house of representatives who has some clout who could do undo some of the damage it's already done by going along with the first couple of stimulus packages that didn't stimulate enough money for the average working person or the average elderly person. We still have a chance to do that. And we should. And they do. We do have people, particularly in the House, who are not beholden to Trump and who can insist that on any other stimulus packages that are passed. And of course, uh, Mitch McConnell wanted to pass one just a few days ago that had more small business loan uh, money, but nothing else. So, um, you know, they properly shut that down temporarily, but I think they should have shut it down permanently. But no, we can do that. One of the things we find out when you look at the huge, the billions and billions of dollars that are being given to companies, to banks, to airlines, this idea that we can't do it because we don't have enough money to do it, I hope is a myth that has been shattered by people, Republicans and Democrats, looking at the environment that we find ourselves in now and saying, well, if we can have so damn much money for that, why can't we fix the system of unemployment compensation? Why can't we distribute money, not just $1,200 that's supposed to last for 10 weeks, but thousands and thousands of dollars in Germany you can get every month as long as they're in this pandemic seven over seven thousand dollars a person if you can do that in Germany then you can certainly do that here and not bankrupt the country but make sure that people don't starve to death on the streets yeah I, I think we need a little truth-telling about who we are as a people and what we've done we need some truth and reconciliation about what we've done as a people and what we do to one another. And we really can't do anything anymore. We can't even test 
Did you know that only like three million Americans have been tested? Well, then that's not even three million Americans because there are three million tests that have been done. But a lot of people are getting tests more than once because you can't if you're tested today and you're an EMS worker, um, you're going to come in two days from now. They're going to have to test you again because in that day between the last time you worked and now when you're working, you might have been infected. And you can't even be sure of that. So when people talk about three million, president was just on yapping again from the Oval Office about how we were going to do five million people being tested. He meant five million tests. That's not five million people. So, of course, we can't do that right. And, uh, you know, we could blame everybody. And but I just choose to blame this administration. If you can't develop tests and you can't give those tests to people who need them, you have failed as the president, as the leader of the country, and as the person who's supposed to protect all the citizens, no matter where they live. Yeah, this I, guy doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. But, he, you know, I'm in a bad mood right now. OK. And I think it's time for us to be honest about who we are as a people. We are willing to live with about 50,000 Americans dying each year from guns. We lose yep. about 56,000 Americans each year. 56,000 Americans die each year because they're underinsured. We're willing to live with this. Uh, and, yes, and, what, and, and what we do, the way we are controlled by the powers that be, they change the subject. Even something as simple as the Tiger King you know, it's yeah. difficult to do a story about tigers in captivity. It's sad. It's depressing. There's some reports that these baby cubs are put in a crematorium right. when they're too big to be petted. Those are difficult stories to tell. So what does Netflix do? They focus on a crazy Jewish, not Jewish, gay, like that's any different, Jewish, gay, uh, <laughs> a polygamist, Joe Exotic. Yeah. Right. You know, and did he order a hit on Carol Baskin? Did Carol Baskin kill her first husband? Because nobody really wants to talk about the plight of tigers. And what we'll do, what we'll do is we will change the subject here in the United States. We will lose large swaths of our prison population to this virus. We will lose large swaths of our homeless population. We will wipe out cities like Detroit, hard scrabble cities where people don't have the privilege of being isolated. They live on top of one another. We will lose a disproportionate number of African-Americans the same way we did in Flint, Michigan, because we can't Get the lead out. That's right. And we will change the subject. Every three years, Rachel Maddow will, you know, do a story about the people who really suffer from COVID-19. The detention centers, this this COVID-19 is going to roll through there. We're not going to be able to feed people. That People are going to die from malnutrition. But in the United States, we'll be told that the stock market is roaring back. Inflation's under control. We need to balance the budget. More and more Americans are back to work because we just turned the switch on and we're, everything's back to normal. That's who we are as a nation. 
That's who we are. We're going to let people die. We've been letting our own die for decades. And, you know, it's a fever dream to think that the Democratic Party is going to come to their senses. And uh, I'm just the only solution is stop paying your rent, stop paying your taxes, stop paying your student loans, stop paying your credit cards. Just stop. But I don't even know if you're allowed to say that. (laughs) No, you're allowed to say it. But the point is, uh, when people do that, what they're going to do is come after the most vulnerable people and say, you didn't pay $200 rent, uh, and we were willing to forgive the other $200 for the hovel that we're renting to you, and so we're going to sue you. And then the system always, as you pointed out many times to me in your uh, anti-legal profession tirades, most of which I agree with, lawyers are going to come in. They're going to force you to pay. If you can't pay, they'll kick you out on the street. They'll make you a homeless person. And they'll always go after the most vulnerable. They're not going to go after people that are renting from Jared Kushner, who are presumably paying thousands of dollars a month in rent for the places that he controls in New York and New Jersey. And um, they're not going to come after those because those are the people who might be able to afford an attorney. I mean, so many attorneys now are looking for work. I mean, they're just they're sitting in their home office on the internet uh looking at porn and um, and trying to find business but they could afford it you, the average person cannot afford a lawyer you can't afford a lawyer if you're an african-american living in washington dc and you're accused of a crime they'll give you a public defender the public defender may or may not have gotten out of law school oh in the last 18 months will not likely know what the system is, will try desperately to get you to plead for, to guilty to something. Mm-hmm. That's that's it. That's the system. It's, this is a, it's system. a terrible this, system. It's a terrible system. It's a horrible, system. immoral system. It's if immoral. You said it was amoral. It's an immoral system to make it impossible for everybody to live in roughly the same manner as the next person. It's all about where the zip code is you live. It's where the zip code was when you were born. The statistics are unassailable about that. This is a corrupt country. You have every right to be pissed off about it. The $1,200, and we'll get to that, what Steve Mnuchin said about this. Yeah. The $1,200, if it is directly deposited into your bank, the Trump administration is allowing the banks to deduct any debts that you owe the banks. So if you have overdraft fees, unpaid debts to the bank, the bank can deduct that from your $1,200. That's sadly true. But here again, people in Congress, there are 435 representatives there's a hundred senators. Somebody should have said, wait a minute. This idea of giving the money is a great idea, although it's pathetic, but it's a, it's a good idea in theory. We have to guarantee that banks are not going to be able to take money out of that. 
Right. And there, there is there is it's talk of sentence. the Federal Reserve. There's an article in the New York Times about this, and I and I you know the sovereign nation people would be against this because they don't like the Federal Reserve. But every American should have an account, according to the New York Times. This is a suggestion. Every American gets an account with the Federal Reserve, which is a bank, and right. when you get your stimulus check. It's deposited directly into your Federal Reserve account. That would make more sense. The only problem is the banking lobbyists wouldn't allow that. What did the brilliant and wonderful Steve Mnuchin say about the $1,200? Yes, Steve Mnuchin, who uh, is presumed to be worth over $40 million, said that uh, Americans can live very well on, uh, they can live, he didn't say very well, they can live on $1,200 for 10 weeks, $120 a week he thinks people can live on. You cannot live on $120 you could you could live in the desert, I guess, for that. But you can't live in any city. You can't live in Little Rock. You can't live in Washington or Los Angeles or Detroit or Paducah, Kentucky, even on that kind of money. You can't do that. You can't live. You can't pay rent and eat and take care of the medical bills you have or the co-pays that you have to pay. It's impossible. And one of the most interesting things I saw on social media today were a number of people. I had this idea myself, but then other people apparently independently had it. I'd love to see a reality television show where Steve Mnuchin and Mrs. Mnuchin. Louise Litton. Louise yes, the, the, yes. We, but we watch them live on $120 a week and it'll go for 10 episodes so they get they, they've the a, they, they've asked politicians to live on food stamps. Can't be done. No, of can't course it done. can't. Of course it can't. There are people there are interesting. I mean, I remember a lawyer who worked with me for a long time. Uh, she and her boyfriend at the time uh, decided to try to live on minimum wage and not not use. But we didn't. We paid thankfully more than that but to just live on that and then she she wrote a very interesting article about it and she i mean it's 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 really impossible it is absolutely impossible to do that and steve mnuchin who's used to so many wonderful things i think i think he got in some trouble for uh using military aircraft to go to a wedding yes. i think that's Mnuchin. i mean yes yes once, once yeah. you get used to that kind of lifestyle it makes it even more difficult for you to know how to shop you, you don't shop in bulk for vegetables no. you don't think of growing your own vegetables in the backyard like even people like me do you don't think of that you can't do it you cannot live on it this is a pathetic amount of money it, Andrew Yang was wrong about a lot of things, but the idea of guaranteeing funding, not an income for work, but funding you simply because you exist in this country is an idea whose time ought to come. Well, the paycheck wasn't the way to get, do it. Yeah, the Paycheck Protection Program, they call things what they're not. The Paycheck Protection <laughs> Program. So it sounds like. Oh, people who get paychecks are going to be protected. No, the people who issue the paychecks 
are getting protected. This is part of the stimulus package where the Small Business Administration has about $350 billion that it can lend to small businesses. And if they promise to keep their business open, then they can not pay back the loan. So it's money, basically it's just money being given to small businesses. And there's no way to enforce this. There's, you know, some, I know comedy writers who make a lot of money in their corporations. They're a small business. Of course. They can apply for a loan. Yep. Who's going to, who's going <laughs> to? Nobody. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to enforce that. It, this, these are promises. I know people uh, that have applied for these small business loans and who actually are, they're not self-employed. They don't just hire their relatives. I'm not saying that that's what comedians do, but they they're they have real employees and they're working to keep those people employed. And they can't even find out for certain that their applications were filed. And then as of about 10 o'clock this morning, as we're talking here on Thursday, this morning, they ran out of money. So if you applied today and you and you were desperately trying to keep the six people that you had on a payroll at your florist shop, you, you get a message that says, we're no longer accepting applications. That is, if you can figure, could have figured out a week ago, I better get in line. And then you find out that the, the bank you're trying to get the loan from is only willing to loan it to you if you have an existing account right. or or you have a credit card with them or some other connection to the bank. If you're a new lender, I mean, if you're a new borrower, they don't even want to talk to you. So the whole thing is corrupt. And it's corrupt because people in Congress, and I blame everybody, and I blame Elizabeth Warren and Bernie as much as I blame uh, Kennedy from Louisiana. If you don't put restrictions into the bill, if you expect this enormously immoral administration to do the right thing, to do the just thing, then you're full of crap. You have to tell them what they must do, and then you have to make sure that there's a way to guarantee that they do it. Because Steve Mnuchin and all the other politicians who run the federal agencies in this administration are all in it for some reason other than their love for equity and justice in America, because they don't give a crap about that. Well, they love equity, but it's in corporations. Yeah, Yeah, that would be. Uh, equity, <laughs> the, the airlines, you know, the airlines are getting more money. I think tomorrow uh, they have to finish applications for yet another round of funds. And the idea there is that the, there's money in this piece of the stimulus package for funding of um, employees um, so that they don't have to get fired from the airline industry. And although that's great, the idea you know, they're cutting 90%, I think, of all the airplane flights uh, in the country uh, over the next few months. But, you know, I'm just, it's difficult for me to think that the flight attendants or even the pilots are necessarily worth more and must be protected 100% for their salary when you're not protecting firefighters, you're not protecting EMS people, you're not protecting emergency room physicians. Why are they less important? 
than the pilots or the flight attendants at United Airlines. I'd say they're not. The least paid are the most essential. I've been saying this all week. Absolutely. You would think, but we're not allowed to act upon this. I think we're all realizing the least paid are the most essential, but the system in place will not allow us to learn from history. They will turn this economy back on when they decide to, and we will go back. There's this theory that we're rediscovering the hearth and the value <laughs> of cooking, and yeah. they won't allow that. They, they know how to trigger our appetites. They'll get us buying again. Some of us will yeah. remember this, but we keep thinking about like the Great Depression and how that altered our parents and our grandparents, and they never were the same. Uh, that's not true. They were able to manipulate our grandparents and parents and turn them into rabid, insatiable consumers. Yep, they certainly were. Before you go, going to happen. Before yep. you go, let's talk about well, let's religion. See. Religion. Want Tell who are the religious religion? right? Oh, religious it's just so filled with religious right nuts yeah. of the week. It's hard to find one, but I found just a few items uh, in a in a trifecta of religious right nuts this week. Okay. James Moffat of Church United in Indio, California. He and a fellow pastor out near Riverside, California. Uh, he's, he's filed a suit against the state of California that does not want him to hold in-person meetings. He says he's commanded by Scripture to lay hands on people to heal them and to lay hands on those who should be baptized. And he can't do that remotely. Well, that's, that much is true. But he says in, in a filing that uh, has a wonderful line in it, I, he said... He he says that we've uh, we've never had. He's asserting this on behalf of himself and the other pastor. We have never been at risk of contracting the coronavirus, and have never been in a locality where any germs or bacteria have existed. So he thinks that the COVID nineteen virus is actually a bacteria, which would be a lot easier to kill than a virus. How does he get that information? He gets it from the people in the administration who don't know what they're doing. So when Kellyanne uh, Conway came out just the other day and said, uh, I don't know why China didn't know about uh, COVID-19. I mean, it's uh, there must have been COVID-18. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's the 19th. That, that's nonsense. She learned that from Rush Limbaugh, who said the same thing months ago when he was denigrating the significance of this by suggesting we have we must have had 800 other virus. I mean, 18 other viruses. So, I mean, they, it's just like that one. Right. The COVID-18. But of course, that's COVID-19 refers to the fact that it was first identified in the year 2019. Mm-hmm. So these ministers who propagate this kind of nonsense uh, you can almost understand it, given the lack of information from the administration. But let's not forget Tony Spell. We talked about him last week. He's the pastor of the Life Tabernacle Church in Louisiana. He's the guy who held live services both on Palm Sunday and on Easter. Today he announced that he has a new plan. It's to send that money that you get through your stimulus checks to evangelists and missionaries. Mm. In other words, don't use it to eat. 
send it to us. Let's call them next week. Is there a number? I think that would be, I, I, I'm going to try to get you that for next week. Well, that'll be fun. I was curious, you know, I wonder what he was getting because he announced that he and his wife were contributing their $1,200. And I think he has a kid contributing his $600. I wondered what his salary was at the Life Tabernacle Church. But if you try to find that out, you can't because in all those charitable databases, almost no religious organizations indicate what they're paying their top officials because they are exempt from charitable disclosures that, you know, reflect the uh, salaries of people who are trying to help people at the border or trying to help tigers or any other charitable purpose. And then my final thing, and this is is good because I I think it's a warm spot in my heart. Uh, Jim Baker, of course, of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, Tammy Faye became kind of an interesting person toward the end of her life. Jim Baker, however, went to prison and then became, if possible, an even worse person. Mm -hmm. So the other day he announced on television that because of negative views in the public media, the credit card company that he uses has put a hold on all of his funding. They will not accept payment from credit cards. They're putting a freeze on his existing accounts. So Jim Baker said, I will be totally financially broke unless people send money through checks in the near future. So Jim Baker might be, of course, he's the guy that got in so much bad publicity for trying to sell a silver colloidal cure for the COVID-19 virus. And uh, he's been sued for that. That's the negative views in the media that he's talking about. But he could go under again unless people like you and I send him some checks. All right. So Is anybody keeping track of all the religious zealots who are dropping dead from COVID-19? I've seen such a list. And, of course, there was one out here in... uh, Virginia just a few days ago, and a a, a somewhat famous rabbi in Israel, I believe, who also died. A Hasid, I think he, uh, here in Brooklyn, I think. That's that's right, in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. And um, so there are a few, and there will undoubtedly be more. And, of course, the other thing is, what about the parishioners who go and hug each other and hold hands and believe that if they can't find a way to go to church physically— They'll probably go to hell the next week. And that's basically what they're saying. It's remarkable. It is the... the, Yeah. Ever thus? Ever thus, right? Yes. Well, I can tell you, uh, to get back to where we started, uh, if people want to make an effort to 11 o'clock Eastern time, uh, see what I look like, and uh, hear a, uh, a sermon. I mean, I'm actually going to talk about the subject is the two worst ways to make policy in America, constitutional originalism and Bible literalism. That's the time. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. How, how, how do we see that? How do we watch that? Uh, if you go to Community Church of Boston's Facebook page, they have a significant information about how to get there, what 
what to tune into uh, as you get close to 11 o'clock on this coming Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday. On any given Sunday, there used to be football. Now, there's not going to be football for a very long time. So you can go to church. Which causes more brain damage. It depends what church you go to. Uh, if you go to the churches that uh, I mentioned as my religious right nuts of the week, um, you're in trouble. Yes. But if you go to hear a wholesome sermon, like I will deliver on Sunday, uh, then football's worse. Okay. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Am I pronouncing that right? Christ? You certainly are. Uh, You know, 30 minutes ago, you got it right. You got it right again now. And uh, for that, I commend you. And uh, I would send you... um, I would actually send you money for getting it right a third time, but I'm still waiting for the check uh, that you owe me uh, for being not only the legal consultant for the Church of Feldman, but also its pastor. Yes. No, well, you're the pastor. I'm just a, I'm the chaplain. You're the muscle. The muscle behind it. Listen, you have to pronounce it properly. <laughs> it's the United Church... Oh. Of Feldman. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Stay on the line, <laughs> the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. I want you to be nervous, okay? No. There's a big crowd here. You ready? Yeah. You ready? We're coming to you live from Liberty University. Now give a warm welcome to the Roast Master General of the United States, comedian Jeff Ross. Oh, hello, America and fans across the world. Great to be on the David Feldman Show. Have, have you? Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for doing this. And thank you for believing in our Lord and Savior and not being afraid of contracting the coronavirus and coming down here to, to Liberty University here in Lynchburg. And we really appreciate it. Have you ever played? Of course. Have you ever played? Any chance Lip- to get out of the house, David. I'm down. Have you ever played Liberty before? They're great. No, great, I ha- I ha- great crowns. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> They're the best. <laughs> They're the absolute. I like how you're doing a two man bit, but only you know what the bit is. 
Yes. Uh, this is I, great. I, what, what is well, that sound? There's some kind of – all I got is my audio, Jeff. So what is that scraping sound? Can we work on – There's no scraping. If anything, it's me sniffling. Oh, you're sniffling. Yeah, I have allergies. You're, you're allergic to COVID-19, aren't you? That's <laughs> – be honest. You know, I'm, I'm avoiding it. I'm doing whatever I can. Even if somebody sneezes on FaceTime, I hang out. I'm so paranoid. <laughs> I'm avoiding COVID-19 like the plague. That's <laughs> So let, let me ask you about Remember people used to sneeze? Remember people used to sneeze and we were polite? We'd say, God bless you. Now we say, Jesus Christ, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> this is a hot crowd. Hot crowd. You make fun of death. You, I worked on your show, The Burn, on Comedy Central, and uh-huh. you had a segment at the end, Roast in Peace, where we would take somebody who died and mock them, mock the way they died, who they were, and you were taking on the Grim Reaper. And it was satisfying, because as comedians, we don't believe in death unless I'm performing, and it's inevitable. <laughs> Is it okay? Um, I, Is it okay yeah. to mock death? Do you still find death funny? Well, I still do that segment on my current podcast, Thick Skin with Jeff Ross, and I do it because I personally find it therapeutic. I only roast the ones I love, people I care about, and people who meant something um, to the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't consider it mocking. I consider it tribute. Um, everybody does serious tributes. I feel like it's my duty or a comedian's responsibility to bring levity to, even to death. Can so that's you, why can I continue you, doing it. Can you cross a line? Do you sometimes worry that you're... I hope so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I t- uh, this week on, the, uh, on my podcast, the Roast in Pieces for Linda Tripp. Yes, a good you may one. remember her for her yes. role in the in the Bill Clinton scandal or her role on Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> By the way, Boris Johnson is here and he likes that. <laughs> Great, thank you, Boris. Okay, don't 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 make Boris laugh too hard because he, he's just okay. He, it's a little. He should have stayed. In the you know, Linda Tripp. Linda Tripp was a known as a whistleblower, mm-hmm. and not just because she looked like a high school gym coach. <laughs> That's a great joke. That's a great joke. <laughs> I meant to say gym teacher. That's okay. That's a funny joke. So that's, that's so that's how I answer your question, right? But you, know, you didn't that, love Linda. I'm going to call you on this, Roastmaster General. I know your okay, politics. But, You're not a fan of my, Linda Tripp. No, but she was impactful. I love politics. I love history. So she's somebody meaningful in the world. And, you know, if I was going to speak at a funeral, it might not be Linda Tripp, but uh, bringing comedy to somebody like her is, I think, cathartic. It's a painful memory of the country and you gotta you gotta take the piss out of it as they say over as boris's people say over in the uk (laughs) boris don't don't leave him out of this he's not he's not he's coughing he's coughing much better (laughs) 
gonna, I'm going to push Great back on voice, buddy. I'm going to push back on this, Jeff Ross. You're not okay. a fan of you're not a fan of Linda Tripp. You say you only roast the ones you love, and the the fact is, you don't find her admirable. She was a good friend of mine. <laughs> we would talk all the time. <laughs> you know how she passed away, right? How? A lot of people think it had something to do with um, the deep state, but I had I think it had more to do with deep dish pizza. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's a hot crowd here at Liberty University, not just because they have fever from the COVID-19. It's a hot crowd. How are you feeling, Dave? I'm totally isolated. I have not been outside. I'm in Manhattan, and every night at every night at 7 p.m., they start making all this noise. They're, they're applauding. The, the hospital workers, I've complained, keep it down. They won't do it. And, and I say, you're a comedian, right? They're applauding the, the hospital workers. We don't want applause. That's anybody can get applause. Make, make us laugh. That's what the hospital workers should be doing. When, when there's an applause break for a comedian, it's like, okay, that joke wasn't funny, but we're getting a little credit. (laughs) I want to see these hospital workers at seven o'clock get, get, Get laughter, not an applause break. That's easy. Do a little show for us. Yeah, put on a show. I'm okay. You know, it's uh, being, we're social animals. Not being around other people, uh, you can go insane. It's going to be like this for a while. And then the, the silver lining for me is that comedians we're going to be really sought after. I do think people will want to come out in troves to see comedy again, to get that relief. The ones I feel sorry for are the performers that will never work again. People who practice close up magic. (laughs) Pick a card, pick your own fucking card. Well, get your fingers out of my ear. Get your finger out of my ear. There's no quarter in my ear. Get your nasty fingers out of my ear. Well, I think Boris Johnson here makes an interesting point that laughter is like coughing. So when do you think people are going to feel safe enough to go to a comedy club? I think if I'm performing, you don't have to worry about laughter, which could lead to coughing. So I think I'll be in demand in these comedy clubs. People want tepid comedy. They want like, tepid. They don't nod, want head nod comedy. Head nod comedy because you know nobody. You know, a laugh can spew the virus twenty five feet. So I think you're making a great point, my friend. Great point. I think this As is going to be the golden well. age of bad comics like me. <laughs> and and you must be happy because it's also the golden age for domestic abuse. <laughs> Okay, I could hit myself in the head. Yeah, you can hit you. You, know, you can't call listen. Me. I told my girlfriend, I go if we haven't, if you haven't hit me and I haven't hit you after a month in quarantine, rest assured we never will, and we're going to be okay. Yeah, are you are you shacked up with? Do, are, do you have love in your life? Yeah, I have my lady here, my cleaning lady. <laughs> I needed to. I needed somebody, so we started dating. She's Esmeralda. Come here, come say hi. She. Uh, no, did you find love? 
Yeah, I have a girlfriend. That's going very well. You deserve that. You do. Thank you really do. I, I'm glad to see you're in love. So this must be romantic love in the time of uh, a pandemic. This is it, man. Quarantine with you. And does which she means you're quarantine with me? Now we've been she, writing songs about it all day. Uh, now I understand she <laughs> she asks you to wear a mask so she can get wet before sex. Is that true? <laughs> 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 See, I don't need an audience. I have my imaginary friends with me. Who you hear that? You hear the sirens in the back? Can you hear that? Yeah, I'm I'm two two blocks away from a hospital, and nobody's on the street. So they're just right. showboating with these effing sirens. They don't need to have the sirens going, or at least turn yeah. it down. It's you know it's late at night. Some of us are trying to quarantine, do our patriotic duty, but these these paramedics look at me i'm saving lives look at me i call the hospital complain 40 minutes on hold (laughs) nothing nothing but you know what the good thing about this what i love is i hate firefighters and after 9 11 firefighters were taking all our women and right. now, and, and I, I think firefighters are bigoted racists, and they. Oh they, come on! I hate firefighters. You're really generalizing. I am, but they're they're better looking than I am, and they're good cooks. And women want firefighters. And after nine eleven, firefighters were taking all our women. Now it's nurses, doctors, and uh, so. This is the one. These are all good qualities in people. Everything you're saying is somebody you want to be friends with. A good cook, brave. Somebody who will bang your girlfriend instead of you. Firefighters can't be trusted. In the, before 9-11, firefighters only got laid on St. Patty's Day. Now it's, <laughs> now it's all the time. We had, a, uh, we had a, uh, we had a tough St. Patty's Day here in, uh, in New York, uh, yeah, the the Irish were told you had to sanitize your fist before you threw a punch. So, <laughs> <laughs> it was a tough one. That's all the, tough. Yeah, boy. right. They were all like dipping their hand in Purell before they they threw a punch. Do you have enough cleaning supplies? And are you well equipped over there? I know you're in New York, where you're at the epicenter of this whole. Yeah, I'm out of uh, most of my cleaning supplies. This. Just from the huffing that I do. The just huffing? The huffing that I do. I, I don't clean. I just huff during do the do a lot of huffing. I do a lot of huffing. Huh. Yeah. I, I'm cleaning a lot, uh, and uh, I, I'm not watching television. I'm doing a lot of reading, a lot of podcasting. So tell me about thick skin with uh, I have somebody's coming in. I'm being fo- I'm being bombed here. How did somebody? How is somebody coming into my zooming? Did you invite this person? No. How I have a guest. A I have no match? idea who this person is. Should really? we let them in? Yeah. See what it is. All right, but all right. I'm scared. Hang on. But they're uninvited. All right. I'm. I don't know who this is. Hello? Hang on. I, this is, I'm, I have no idea who this is. 
Hang on. This, am I mute? Unmute. Uh, hang on. Sorry, folks. This is. This, um, I can't wait to see what. I have no idea. Do you, can you see him? You got a Zoom crasher. You don't know if I it's have a, a Zoom crash. I don't Why know. Uh, hello? Who is Hi. this? This is Sergio. Sergio. Yeah. Are you I just a, got your. You got my invite. I did, and I, I clicked on it to try to schedule it, and I'm talking to you now. Yeah, but but uh, are you a listener to the David Feldman show? I am. And you got an invite to what? To Friday's oh, show. Yeah, uh, to Friday's show. Oh, so wait a second. How did you end up on this? Um, I clicked the invite because I thought maybe I can schedule it into my calendar on Zoom. Oh, okay. You're you're crashing an interview that I'm doing, Sergio. This is we I have am. the roast master general, Jeff Ross, is here. Hi, Jeff. Great I, to see I, you, Sergio. Likewise. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, what I'm gonna do, Serge. Can I call you Serge? Of course you can. And, and Sergio, you, what do you? What, I don't know who you are, but you look like you're being held hostage right now. <laughs> no, I, I'm just comfortable in bed. Uh, Where are you? I'm in Ithaca, New York. And why? Why? why what? What are you going to talk about when you schedule your interview with Dave? I'm just curious. I hadn't thought that far in advance. Oh, he's not being interviewed. He's. I'm doing a Zoom meeting Friday night at 9 p.m. where I invite some of my listeners. It's invitation only. It's very exclusive. It's like Studio That's 54. That's so cool. Yeah, I love that. Were you at the last one, Serge? I wasn't. I wasn't. Oh, okay. And we're having Dr. Jennifer Vertle, and she's an animal behaviorist. I read, yeah. Yes, and we're going to have a beauty pageant. Jeff, do you have a pet? Uh, I, I, I do. Oh. I have a couple up here. We have a rescue dog somewhere up here. What's the rescue dog's name? Uh, Rona. Why don't you enter Rona in our beauty pageant Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern? Sergio, do you have a, a pet? I do. I've got cats. Are you going to enter either. your cat in the beauty pageant? Yes. Yep. Everybody's going to hold up their pet, and animal behaviorist Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is going to interview your pet and you, and then we're going to vote on who has the cutest pet. Oh, wow. Mine will yeah. definitely lose. Yours, yours is going to lose? Uh, she's blind. She limps. She's old. She smells like King Kong's asshole. And answers to the name Lucky. <laughs> That's an old joke. Yeah. Wait, smells like King Kong's asshole? She's a rescue. Why would you rescue an animal that was going to buy the farm anyway? Uh, my girlfriend's idea. She 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 wanted the, this old dog to have a nice send-off in life. So we have this old, we call her Nana because she's old. I check her pulse every three hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Serge. Dave, yeah, Dave Jeff, I'll, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. <laughs> We we just got blown off by one of your listeners. You are, hang on, Sergio. Hang on for one second. Uh I'm interviewing Jeff Ross, the Roastmaster General of the United States from the Comedy Central Roast. Of the world. And and this is an opportunity for you to have a one-on-one conversation. And I mean, this guy's famous. Jeff Ross is famous, Sergio. And uh-huh. you're going, I got to go. 
I want to go. I want to go. I'm. So you're bored, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and I was, I was waiting. I was looking forward for Friday. I, this Sergio, is Friday. Sergio, I think what? it's admirable that you're cutting your own hair during quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot believe, Sergio, that that you have an opportunity. Where's your dog? I want to see your dog for the beginning. No, no, it's a, a cat. It's a cat. Yeah, can it's I see it? Can I see it? And then we'll let you go. This is amazing. To oh, that's a cute. That is that looks like Grumpy Cat. She's got a little Grumpy Cat in her. Okay, nope, she's she left. She's cute. Oh, she's, she's cute. cute. Yeah. She's cute. Good for you, Sergio. Okay. Well, hang in there, man. This was all right. The thrill right. of a lifetime. Thank, I'll see you Friday night, sir. You're a tough customer, Sergio. This was an opportunity to go one on one. You have any questions for Jeff Ross? Anything? This is a once in a lifetime David, opportunity. Please, I, give I, the I, guy a break. All right. I don't know who Jeff Ross is. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll read the wiki. Okay. Yeah. Let me just say, you're lucky. I feel lucky. You are. Okay, Sergio, right, I'll you. see you uh, Friday night at 9 p.m. Are you single? I'm not. Oh, okay. We're going to make a love connection Friday night <laughs> with the animal. Okay. Bye, Sergio. Bye. Bye, Thank bye. you. Bye, Jeff. Bye, Dave. Bye-bye. <laughs> he didn't know who you were. How do well, you... Not everybody, you know. What are you talking about? Everybody knows who Jeff Ross is. I guess so, but not some random-ass Sergio with the cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's my list. It's not that I'm surprised he doesn't know who I am. I'm surprised he knows who you are but <laughs> doesn't know who I am. Like, how are you into that comedy? And then you know this David Feldman show. Like, if someone doesn't know comedy, they might go, "Oh, I don't know him. I'm not sure who that is." But I'm, I'm, I'm really mortified. That that's interesting. How often do you get recognized? And when you go not outside lately, since I haven't left the house in a month. <laughs> so, do you miss that? Because I know you no. like, I know you like being recognized. I mean, I miss people. I'm a social person. Yeah. But yeah. I don't miss that aspect of it any more than hugging my buddies or whatever. And, Going out and, dancing with my lady, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, you it, you know, one thing I know about you is you are a comedy animal. You have to perform every night. If I want to see you in New York, I have to meet you at the cellar yeah. in between yeah. gigs. If you do fewer than three sets a night... You feel like you're a sloth. Have mm-hmm. you found? Have you found any? Have you found peace not doing it? Do you find a new? Yes. Calm? You know, it's a good question. I asked myself that question uh, two years ago. I had been doing comedy thirty years, and I hadn't taken a break. And I had just shot a Bumping Mike's Netflix special with David Tell, and we were on tour with that for a long time and when we finally finished that taping before i wanted to start a new act i just stopped for six or seven months it was the first time in 30 years and i wanted to prove to myself that stand-up doesn't own me i own it and i wanted to see how i felt driving by after dinner just driving by the comedy store and not going in and trying other creative pursuits and hobbies and and I was great. You know, I still performed. I was doing some other writing and acting and 
voiceovers, but I wasn't going to the clubs at night. And I liked it. It was a nice reset to just kind of know to take to stand up and think about it as something I did for fun. Mm-hmm. And this break, as much as the financial it hurts, because I was supposed to be on tour um, and shooting a second round of bumping mics for Netflix, having it all postponed indefinitely has made me have to go, well, then what else are you? Are you only a comedian, Jeff, or are you a human being? So, Comedian. Getting back in touch Comedian. with the human being part. Comedian. Comedian. Well, my my social, yes, but my personal, like, I, I feel like I'm a comedian before I'm an American. Like, I always want to talk to the comedians no matter where I am. I, mm-hmm. I've been all over the world. I've been lucky to travel as a comic. Even if I go to South Africa, I'm going to hang with the comedians there. If I, if I go to Israel, I'm going to find the comedians there. Um but as far as just staying home and Zooming with my aunt and uncle at night and hanging with my girlfriend, learning how to cook a little bit, playing a little guitar, watching TV. I didn't watch TV my entire career because it just didn't occur to me to stay home at night and watch prime time. Mm-hmm. And now I'm watching The Crown. I love it. I'm watching The Plot Against America. It's great. The Philip Roth novel. That took place. To TV. You're from Newark. In Newark. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, after 30 years of traveling and on the road and hitting the clubs every single night, even when I am home, it's kind of nice walking around without a bra for a month. <laughs> I knew you were sagging. So you, you know, you save the Friars Club. You, you really do love comedy. You love the craft. What do you miss most right now in terms of the road? What do you miss most about being on the road? What is the single thing that if you could experience that, you'd be fine? What is it? I like meeting the fans. You nailed it. You know, now that you really put the question to me, I miss not just the shows themselves, but seeing people afterwards, taking pictures, giving everybody a hug, having a personal moment with the fans that you're actually coming in contact with and right. bringing some joy. You know, people, we take it for granted, but people, when they buy t- tickets to see a comedy show, um, they might have to save up and for tickets and a babysitter and dinner, and it's a big event. Yeah. So I really miss that. As the son of a caterer, I miss the nights, the actual action. Right. Walking right. on stage, hearing the laughs, and right. then the personal connection with the people afterwards. Right. I, I worry that we're getting a little too inside baseball for my listeners. So what is a fan? Tell us what a fan is. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? These are people who actually like you? I've never yeah, heard of such yeah, a I know it's hard to believe, but yeah. it happens, buddy. It happens. You were, and you and David. And I didn't like when you called me to Sergio. You called me Roastmaster General of the United States. I have to correct you. I'm the Roastmaster General of the world. I didn't know that. I apologize. Yeah. No, we, I just want you to. I just want to make it clear. Have you ever insulted somebody during a show? And mm. they yes. And what happened? Laughs, even if they're not having a good time. No, then it goes. Then it then it then it backfires. They have to volunteer. Very important that they want to be roasted. 
Very important. Key. Key to the whole thing. And do you think sometimes they think they want to be roasted and then you roast them and they didn't realize that it kind of hurts? I don't know. That's for their ride home. But I think if somebody raises their hand and they want to come up at my show, mm-hmm. then they know what they're in for. Right. Right. And 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 my show is highly interactive. Like I I go, who wants to come up here and get speed roasted and hands go up. Mm-hmm. By the um, way, then, I've done yeah. I've done three roast battles in the clubs here in New York. Right. And right. I've I lost saw one. You were great. You saw one? You sent me a tape. I, I've lost all three. And I play the heel where I get right. up and say, this really isn't fair because I write on the roasts. I write for Triumph. I write for Jeff Ross. I, this is what I do. This is my bread and butter, insulting people, writing insults. So it's going to be impossible for this guy to, to defeat me because this is, this is who I am. And then I just go, I lose every round. I just go to, I get the audience to hate me. It's, but it's the closest I've ever gotten to boxing. I, there's something thrilling about the roast battle. What what is the, the the source, the origin of the roast battle? The roast battle started um, about five six years ago at the Comedy Store. Who invented it? <clears throat> Brian Moses and I. Um, Brian, started, you're like the Abner Doubleday of roast battles. Uh, Brian would host open mics. And, and two guys were in the, in the parking lot of the comedy store in an argument. And Brian said, don't argue. Don't fight. Why don't you guys roast each other tomorrow night at the right. open mic? So they started doing, they did that and that went well. And other people started challenging other people. And after a couple weeks of that, they invited me up to see what was going on. And I said, I really like where your guys are going here, but. It needs some rules. So I wrote rules, uh, rules of conduct for roast battle. You would think somebody with the last name Moses would have written all those rules. You would think so, but uh, Brian acts as the ref, and then I act as the judge, and we kind of host them together. And the rules of roast battle are original material only, no physical contact, so you Mm -hmm. can't push anybody or intimidate anybody. And every battle ends with a hug. So that yeah. it's good natured. Here's what I never understood when you created this sport. Why did you insist on a Negroes league? <laughs> what was that about? You know, I wanted to start small and have control. <laughs> now they're they're imitators. I mean, it's spreading throughout the world. Do you do you sometimes feel that you wish you had somehow patented, or you can't really patent a sport, right? Well, you can you can patent TV formats and so on, so on. But to be honest, it, it's become bigger than me. It's the fourth pillar. You have stand up, improv, sketch, and now roasting. Right. It, it's it's not just celebrities and tuxedos anymore. It's young comics going after each other. Uh, more seasoned guys like us are doing it, and I love it. I just feel like it's it's honest comedy and so much of the world now is fake and phony and watered down and I love, if they say laughter is the best medicine, you would never want your medicine watered down you want it potent and roasting yeah. is super potent Yeah. 
Although I, I think insulin for some people would be the best. I think if you asked a diabetic in America right now, they'd probably say insulin is the insulin's best. Insulin's the yeah, best medicine. I think. Then laughter. You know, if you need, if you, you know, insulin's gotten very expensive. Well, the, the country has gotten very politically correct. I think the end of political correctness starts with the pandemic. I think mm-hmm. a lot of the PC people, I'm going to pontificate for 30 seconds. Okay. And then I want you to respond to it, and then I want to ask you about okay. the future of roasting. I think the PC, I think the people who hiss and boo in comedy clubs and write letters are paternalistic. They're protecting somebody else. They themselves are not offended. They're being offended for somebody else. And now that there's a pandemic and everybody is suffering, Gallo's humor is finally understood. People are finally understanding that when times are tough, when death is looking at you, you make jokes. And I think that is going to end the PC movement. I think it's... Wow, I really love that. I really hope you're right. Yeah. Or I'm hoping COVID-19 kills all these politically correct assholes. Either way, I think that... I think comedy is going to change. I think it's going to be more raw, more raw and more raw, harder laughs. I don't think audiences are going to be as uh, protective of each other anymore. Maybe you're right. That would be a nice silver lining. You know, I mean, it's a tough time, but and a lot of people obviously are sick and dying, but no buts. I mean, that is the most awful thing ever. But I can't help it as I roll around in my brain going, will any good things come out of this? And maybe that may, maybe maybe we're going to toughen up a little bit as a society. I, I hope that happens. Yeah. Well, we're, we're already tough as a society because so many of us don't have health insurance. So many of us can't come up with $500 in an emergency. Perhaps we should worry less about what's politically incorrect in terms of words and more in terms of deeds. You should Mm -hmm. care more about what we're doing to people as opposed to what we're saying to people. Here, here. Here, here. Hey, Jeff Ross is the host of Thick Skin with Jeff Ross, and I understand you are co-hosted by the fattest baby in Florida history. Ed Larson, 14 and a half pounds. What did he weigh in at? Almost 15 pounds. He was a 15-pound baby. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. His mother had a vagiant. (laughs) I'll tell him you said hi, David. Ed loves you. I love Ed. How do people follow you on Twitter? Oh, I'm at uh, Real Jeffrey Ross on Twitter. Right. Oh, Sergio just sent me a message he said he just found out who Jeff Ross is, and he wants that five minutes with you back. He thought it was a complete waste of time. <laughs> no, he didn't get back. That was that, he's going to kick himself when he f- finds out that he had an opportunity to talk with oh. you. We have been talking with the great Jeff Ross, and special thanks to the the good kids here, Liberty University. Thank you, guys. Stay on the line, Jeff Ross. Have you called in your backup pecans now? See if we can get some more brain power in this We thing? got one here. Roger. Fly it in, go. Go and go. Uh, he's, never mind, he's 
Save you enough a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the uh, limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. We are coming to you live from Liberty University. Please give a warm Liberty University welcome to comedian, comedy writer, and author Frank Conniff. Thank you. My Liberty Peach. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. The crowd is so hot here. So, my, thank you to my Liberty peeps. Yes, they're they're a hot crowd, and not because they've contracted the the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the great thing about states' rights. We can do what we want. We're free to do whatever we want when we want, and yes. we don't have to listen to the federal government. They don't get to to dictate how we live our lives. Right, Frank? That's right. I, I, I don't say dictate. I say penis state. <laughs> that didn't even deserve the laugh track, but thank you. <laughs> well, I should mention that sitting in with us, and he looks great, is Boris Yeltsin. Not Boris Yeltsin, I apologize. The Prime Minister of Great Britain of England. Please welcome Fresh out of the ICU, Boris Johnson. He is, yeah, okay. Let me, all right, Boris, let me introduce Frank, if you don't mind. Okay. You know what, when, uh, when, when Boris, when all this about Boris Johnson first happened, it was the only time I'd ever seen the word positive and Boris Johnson in the same sentence. <laughs> Frank Conniff is an amazing comedian, performer, and author. Prolific. If you follow him on Twitter and Facebook, you know how truly brilliant this man is. Every day he comes up with about five witty thoughts that are just, just tremendous, just to remind you how unfunny late night television is. <laughs> uh, he's got some uh, books out that you should buy on Amazon, 25 Mystery Science Theater, 3,000 Films That Changed My Life in No Way Whatsoever. Reform, yep. I'm sorry? I just said, yep. That's by Frank Conniff and Len Peralta. I would assume Len did the drawings, which are... He's the, uh, he does the art for all my books. Yeah, he's, he's great. Reform School Cinderella. Mm -hmm. Codename Douchebag. How to Write Cheesy Movies. Cats v. Conniff. 
That's pretty incredible, Frank, how prolific mm-hmm. you are. What? Is, uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I've just uh, um, been very um, fortunate um, and it was just a great moment for me when um, when the publishing company that I started accepted my books. <laughs> you know, uh, I've had some problems here at the David Feldman show. They're 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 doing a performance review. I may actually get replaced by our other guests who just joined the conversation. He is the host of Major League Baseball. You know him from HQ Trivia. He's a comedian, and he's got a new show. Please give a warm Liberty University welcome to comedian Scott Rogowski, host of Isolation Late Night. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You gotta, you gotta let, you gotta let these good Christians finish praising you with applause. I'm sorry. What did you say, Scott? I said, I said pretty much everything you, you introduced me with is, is incorrect at, at some level, but, uh, including the fact that I'm a comedian. Cause David, I don't know about you and hi, Frank. Good, good to see you. Hey, hi. Good to see you. It's, it's, it's honestly a, a thrill to be with two actual comedians. I think there's, if there's one thing this coronavirus pandemic has exposed, it's how terrible the comedian I actually am. I just came up last night with a social distancing joke. Okay. Let's hear it. Uh, I've been practicing social distancing for years. Did that just came to me last night? And uh, that's the problem. Uh, I, I think I think maybe the the curve will have flattened by the time I come up with a good flattening the curve joke. That's that's my issue. Have you had Frank on uh, isolation late night? What is the name of your new show on Instagram? I'm depressed, and the first thing that goes with depression is memory loss. So. There might be other factors at play there, David. Uh, isolate night. Isolate. What a great. Oh, name. I like it. I like it. Yeah. And, and it's got the ice. It's got the late night with Letterman logo. So uh, we we appropriated that. I also appropriated the intro from 1987 with the camera zooming around New York, Old Town Bar, up Thirty Rock. Uh, yeah, we're pretty much ripping off late night with Letterman for the new uh, generation that has no idea what that show was. That can't be. That's fairly true. But um, and have you had Frank Conniff on as a guest yet? I, I haven't. I just started this thing. It, it, we, we're four shows in. I'd love to have Frank. I'd love to have you. And uh, yeah, let's get it going. I'll need to see a tape before I do your show. <laughs> All right, I, I, I put a sizzle together. <laughs> put a sizzle reel together. I need to know whether or not it's worth my time. Frank Conniff and Scott Rogowski. It's it's truly an honor to to have you on the show and to talk about what's really going on in the world. First up, first topic, I am a mm-hmm. piece of human excrement because I'm in an air shaft. I only think about myself, my show. I have no idea what's going on in the world. And I want to ask you the level of narcissism that, narcissism that you're experiencing as performers. Do you have empathy for the, the people who are truly suffering out there right now? And I'm not just talking about people forced to watch James Corden at home. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to, I was going to make fun of Jimmy Fallon. But I mean, this is 125,000 people work for Best Buy, 51,000 
beginning Sunday, are being put on furlough. The uh, 16 million retail workers in this country are going to be out of work in another month. 16 million. I mean, you saw the banner headline in the New York Times today. It's catastrophic. This is worse than the Great Depression. And I'm sitting there going, I only got six retweets on this bon mot. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I um, I feel bad about the Best Buy employees. I've been um, uh, making their lives hard for a long time because I haven't gone to a Best Buy in the, like 10 years or something like that. Um, I'm amazed they're still open, but I hope. I hope things turn out okay for them. But I guess I've been kind of a dick to that. I didn't want to say it, Frank. I was going to pin this squarely on you. Yes. Uh, um, I, I don't know what you guys are so concerned about. I mean, Amazon's up 3% today, all-time highs. Everything's great. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean their stocks? Their stocks, yeah. Well, they were shut down in France. The unions successfully shut them down because they're not providing the French with uh, masks and mistresses. Actually, they have to. They have to uh, no, they, they are not. If, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I hope if if things break for Jeff Bezos somehow, then he can be more generous. But you know, the guy is hurting financially, so I feel bad for him. He had to give half of it to his wife. Uh huh. Yeah. And yeah, he. She, uh, ironically, they split up because, according to her, he couldn't deliver in the bedroom. (laughs) It was always next day delivery. Yes. (laughs) He was never in stock. Exactly. So uh, as of uh, Wednesday, 28,000 Americans have died and Mm 600,000 Americans are infected Mm -hmm. uh, with the coronavirus. Is this as bad as the flu? I mean, there are a lot of right-wingers who will say, put it into perspective. We've had years where 50,000 have died from the flu. We have uh, something like, you know, 50,000 people die every year from gunshots. You know, that includes suicide, traffic fatalities. To shut an entire economy down, the, the Republicans, a lot of Republicans say, it's worth the risk to reopen it. We have to be willing to live with a, a certain amount of death. Any any mm-hmm. argument for that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I've always thought of the Republicans as being just very set in their ways and not willing to take on Democratic platforms, but here they are embracing the idea of death panels, which, as you know, is a Democratic idea. Right. We Democrats wanted death panels years ago, and now the Republicans have embraced it uh, full-fledged, so I think we should uh, praise them for, for being open-minded like that. Scott, can you, can you do a cost-benefit analysis dispassionately and count the beans, you know, the way private, uh, the way Tom Hanks did in uh, Saving Private Ryan, where he just figures out how many soldiers of his have to die in order to win. I mean, people do that all the time. Ford does that when they're. Do we replace this this the bolt on, on the Pinto, or, or do we live with a hundred thousand dead people and 
you know, $100 million worth of lawsuits. You know, what I think Republicans are realizing uh, as more information comes out about the coronavirus and the data on the demographics and who it's infecting, primarily lower income mm-hmm. uh, ethnic minorities in this country, uh, you know, blacks and Latinos. And, and uh, the Republicans uh, don't count those as real people. Right. So that's <laughs> to them, there's no real issue at stake here. Uh, if, if the, if the predominant victims are not Republican voters and uh, certainly aren't, you know, contributing to society in their eyes. So to them, it's like, yeah, let's, let's sell more Hummers. You know, we, we, we got to get, uh, we got to get the casinos back open. Right. Nothing screams white privilege more than social isolation. People who are saying, oh, I can't take it anymore. I'm just completely, I haven't seen any, I mean, most Americans are living elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder with three to four other people because, you know, in a 700 square foot uh, apartment, the idea that you haven't seen anybody since the lockdown started is the height of privilege to talk that way. And how about the fact that in the suburbs and the exurbs, you know, they're living in, in, in McMansions half a mile away from each other anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are they complaining about? Oh, they right. have to go to the they're going to the Hamptons now. Now they're stuck in the ham. I mean, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty disgusting. I I do uh, do McMansions have drive-throughs? Because that would be great <laughs> to do home invasions. Like I don't yes. want to get out of my car <laughs> to teach these people a lesson. I'd like hazard pay mm-hmm. in Detroit. A lot of the public transit workers are getting eight hundred dollars a month in hazard pay. Uh, there are people who are considered essential workers taking mass transit and then going to jobs at McDonald's. McDonald's mm-hmm. is open. People have yep. to eat. And they have to work for Instacart and deliver our food. And I, my new mantra this week is the least paid are the most essential. The least paid are the most essential. You walk into an emergency room, find the person who is the least paid. It's not the doctor. It's either the nurse or the janitor. They are the most essential. They are the ones who will keep you alive, not the doctor, and certainly not the administrators, like that guy who runs Mount Sinai Hospital, makes $6 million a year, and he's holed up in Florida. He can't even come back to, to run the hospital he's in charge of. You show me the least paid person in any situation, and he's the most essential. That is what we finally have to come to terms with in this mm-hmm. country. The people who deliver so, your food. So you're saying the least paid are the most essential. This is just your way of uh, hyping up podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> Open my coasts. <laughs> well, in any situation, we're discovering that the the people who make the decisions can't implement them without the least pay. They can't even get these stimulus checks out. They announced uh, this. Big, a, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm just agreeing with what you're saying. That, that you cannot do anything. You can you can say we're going to test and then 
You have to start mm-hmm. the factories up. You can't. GM is making ventilators. Okay, good luck with that. Good luck with making ventilators without getting the unions on board and the workers. Let's talk about celebrities speaking out on stuff because mm-hmm. there is some. We have some tone deaf people in this country. Rich people. Bruce Willis and Demi Moore got back together to shelter in place, and they sent out pictures of themselves in prison pajamas and with their. Oh, rich- did they really? Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't. I missed that. And, and it was just. So- I usually catch everything they do, so it's weird that I missed that. <laughs> and. Well, that's, that's just an example of, like, so many of us reaching out to exes during this end-of-the-world scenario. Uh, I'm glad that they, they patched things up in time for for the apocalypse. Well, you and now are you still in a relationship there, Scott? I'm not. You were, I, I can't talk about this, but you were in a serious relationship. Uh, yeah, it was, it was serious. I mean, the doctor said it was terminal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, somehow I recovered miraculously, and, um, and I'm out. I'm out of it. <laughs> Last time we talked, you were very much in love with a very... I know. No, I was, and, uh, you know, without getting too much into it, it's just uh, it happened right around the top of the year. So hell, good, good timing with this isolation. I think, I think I prefer to be quarantined alone in a, a downsized divorcee apartment. That I find myself in, um, but uh, no, I, 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 there's a whole new world now for dating, Dave. I mean, if to, not, not to switch gears. I know you want to talk about the tone deaf celebrities, mm-hmm. but we could we could table we could table the dating talk for later. But, no, no, uh, Anthony Fauci or Fauci gave an interview earlier this week, and he said, "Go on Tinder. You know, life is filled with risks, and if you do the proper assessment, mm-hmm. you can you can meet somebody." So I, w- I was kind of shocked that he he said that. But go ahead. Are you dating? Are you using online? Well, there's 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 uh there's FaceTime. Yeah, there's you know you can talk to people and you can develop I think a stronger relationship with phone calls. You know, it's it's the old days, right? Of sending letters, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and waiting for days to to communicate with uh, your 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 paramours. I mean, now you you can't you physically can't see anybody. You have to take it slow. There's a total reset happening with. Uh, you know, the, the way, the rapidity of, of dating. I mean, you know, you, I'm of the generation that, uh, uh, people my age and younger, frankly, it's like the whole, you know, first base, second base, third base, all the way baseball mm-hmm. metaphor. It, somehow along the lines in the last 10 years, you know, first base became face fucking. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now first base is, you know, I mean, going all the way is going to be holding hands at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to completely reset the way we think about intimacy, but it's also allowing for, uh, I think, a strengthening and deepening of relationships because you have all this time to just talk. Frank and, and I have a different experience than you were mm-hmm. older. On uh, our dating profile, we list turnoffs. <laughs> as ventilators that's my number one turn it off if uh i don't know what that meant frank you you i don't have any um uh baseball metaphors in my dating life uh except that uh um some women have referred to my penis as a shortstop but, uh, <laughs> 
It's, it's quite often you get hit by a pitch. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, Scott, you work for Major League Baseball. Uh, yeah. You host a show. What is it called? Technically, uh, it's called Change Up on the Zone. But And what uh, is the zone? So the zone is a separate OTT service. More what does OTT mean? Over the top, I believe, like okay. that uh, Kurt Russell movie. Is that okay? Is that so, so people. Oh, it's a Stallone movie. Stallone. Yeah. Stallone. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, overboard is the right, Captain Ron. I don't know. We can. We can. <laughs> let's stay on. Let's stay focused here. So you. So baseball. Baseball is. Is delayed right now. There's no baseball season, so there's no baseball show for me to do because my show is contingent on there being live baseball games to uh, talk about and to show the people. Nicaragua, uh, Nick, Nicaragua. I don't. I don't even think in Nicaragua they're playing ball. Are they? It's, I it's heard all- in Nicaragua they're playing ball, and I think in uh, South Korea they're playing. Oh, great! All right, so we'll have to cover the Nippon Ham Fighters. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. I'm, yeah, I'm technically unemployed right now because, uh, there's no baseball. So I'm waiting patiently for something to happen there. But the change up is the show. The zone is the platform and NLB is the producer. So I'm an MLB employee creating a show for change. It, it, it's a, it's a strange scenario, but. Well, I mean, can they bring baseball back? I mean, suppose it's not just the catcher who wears a mask. Yeah. No, it's a. Uh, they're talking about. Did you hear this? There, there's going to be potentially a uh, an experimental uh, plasma procedure. So they're they're, they're going to try to test for the antibodies. I'm looking this up because I didn't really get the full download. But apparently, baseball players have volunteered. The the union has volunteered to put their players in this experimental test or study to see if they could, you know. And immunize themselves to coronavirus and, and, and ensure that if if nobody in the league has it, if they can test everybody and everyone's fine, then they can play ball. I think that's what they're trying to do now. Okay. You think that's a good idea? Uh, yeah, I'd like to. Uh, I like to. I like my job to come back, so I'm, I'm all for it. But it seems to me like Frank basketball. That's you know you you sweat on each other. Baseball, you keep a pretty good distance, except for a spitball. Yeah. I mean, it uh, used to be the biggest um, uh, thing you worried about in in baseball was getting Lou Gehrig's disease. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all different now, but... uh, um, what now? Let me just make one of those echoey speeches at the end of the game. I consider myself, myself, myself to be, to be, to be the luckiest, luckiest <laughs> man, man. And then you're, you were fine, you know. You know, my grandfather was at Yankee uh-huh. Stadium, and uh, they've they've cut it out. They've edited out the audio because Lou Gehrig said, "I consider myself to be the luckiest man in the world." And Seymour Feldman on the third baseline, shouted, No, you're not! You have debilitating muscular disease! You're not the luckiest man in the world! Didn't they tell you? You have Lou Gehrig's... It was... Uh, yeah. He thought he was and helping was, him. Well, I, can't, I can't joke about this because I feel so bad for Lou Gehrig. That moment at the doctor's office when the doctor told him he had Lou Gehrig's disease <laughs> must have been terrible. By the way, that's almost my very first joke I ever did in my act. 
What? Wow. Was, uh, was about Lou Gehrig being told he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And you told that to Lou Gehrig, actually. That was- <laughs> yes, I did. That's how old I am, actually. <laughs> you know, I think... Just to mix things up, they should call it Tommy John disease and call it Lou Gehrig surgery. Just to mix things up. Mm-hmm. I'm just amazed that Tommy John, he's in his 80s now. He's still performing these surgeries. That's uh, <laughs> credit to him. Uh, yeah. Here's my Lou Gehrig's disease joke. You ready? Uh, yeah. Okay. And, and this is for Scott and baseball fans. This is Good. get ready for this. Let me just take a sip of coffee here. This is one of my most proud moments as a comedy writer. What are the odds that Lou Gehrig would contact ALS and be an American leaguer? He 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 was he was in the AL. He was one of the ALs. Mm-hmm. And he contracted ALS. ALS. He was, you know, he was he, he could have been in the National League, and then it, you know, then it wouldn't have been. But it's amazing that Luke Eric was in the American League, and he got mm-hmm. ALS. Mm-hmm. Kill me. Oh, too, that's, <laughs> too, too too soon, David. <laughs> See, Dave, I, I think I think we should be. I love By the way, excuse me. Too soon was the first person ever to die from COVID nineteen. That was <laughs> that was his name. Too soon. <laughs> Sorry. What was that about celebrities being out of touch? <laughs> no, uh, uh, I, I think we should. I love the idea of taking baseball players and, and naming diseases. I mean, I, I think we should reframe. You know, racism. I mean, I think uh, instead of calling someone racist, like, no, he has Ty Cobb's disease. Uh, now, supposedly he wasn't a racist. There's revisionist history about Ty Cobb. Is that so? That Yeah, that he, that he actually was a product of his times, but was very supportive. That, that that's he may not have been as racist. Uh, so Tommy Lee Jones is the racist one. Yeah, that was okay. the worst. What a dumb movie! Let's let's do a biopic on Ty Cobb, but not focus on baseball. Let's cover. Oh, I never, I never saw that that movie. Yeah, they decided to tell Ty Cobb's story after he quit baseball. Oh, wow! Pretty, pretty stupid. The Georgia Peach is that? That was his name, right? Georgia Peach. Yeah. So tone deafness among celebrities. Rihanna sent her father a ventilator. He had con- he came down with COVID nineteen, and she sent him a ventilator. Where did she get it? I guess if you're a celebrity, you can just get all these things, right? You don't know the problems that other people have with uh, getting ventilators, and uh... they're hoarding. The rich are hoarding ventilators. Yeah. I think she got it from Gilbert Gottfried. He's been hoarding ventilators in his Chelsea apartment for years. I mean, I can't. he's hoarding hyperventilators. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm getting, I'm so nervous. I'm hoarding toilets. That's how, forget the toilet mm-hmm. paper. I'm now, I'm worried I'm going to run out of toilets. <laughs> Anything, Frank? <laughs> I like it. Um, I, uh, that, that, uh, your toilet paper joke just wiped me out. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great new microphone David has. It mutes his laugh, which is nice. <laughs> that, that used to be the most irritating part of it. It is. <laughs> it is the, the most. 
What uh, my, my promise to my guests is that I will keep these interviews short, so you'll want to come back. So yeah. I told you I'm only giving you six hours today. Tell let, let's discuss first. What have you learned? I'm being serious. What have you learned is essential? What What do you need in your life? Because this is the reset. This is where we all get to take stock of our lives. This is again. This is privilege. You know, this is mm-hmm. most people are still working and suffering uh, or they don't know where their next paycheck is coming from. And by most people, I'm talking about me, but uh, we are forced to be alone or with our loved ones. Mm-hmm. What have you learned is most essential? My Adderall. Seriously? Uh, edibles. The Seriously? Criterion, the Criterion app. Yeah, I have that. I have. I, I don't have the edibles or the Adderall, but I do have the Criterion channel, so that's good. Cannot yeah. believe, I swear to God, last night I was looking at the Criterion channel thinking of signing up for it. Is, is, yeah, yeah it's, it's worth it. I'm, a, I'm what they call a uh, charter. Uh, subscri- I was one of the first people to subscribe to it. Way back when they only offered silent films. Before the talkies, <laughs> yes, exactly. But then you missed it. Last month they uh, they just you know every month they remove movies from the platform, so you missed it. Uh, the Paul Schrader collection is no longer. Who did? Oh, no, I watched. I watched. I watched. I watched the interview with him. was 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 really interesting. Who? 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 That. Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver and uh, Raging Bull, and. Right. Directed a lot of his own films too. Autofocus, hardcore. Yeah. Auto. He directed Autofocus. Yeah, yeah he That's did. One of the greatest movies, isn't it? I didn't know I Paul Schrader did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the story. Yeah, we, but hardcore. Have you seen Hardcore? Nineteen seventy nine's Hardcore. George C. Scott, his daughter runs off. Strict Calvinist runs off to L. A. to enter the adult film industry. It is phenomenal. I heard it wasn't good. I remember they made fun of it on SNL when it came out. Well, they, it has uh, um, one of the scenes in it is, is iconic. Even for people who haven't seen the movie, know about the scene of uh, George C. Scott watching his daughter in the porn and yeah. yelling, turn it off, turn it off. Right. Which is, turn it off. I hear Steven exactly. Spielberg is going to do a remake of it. <clears throat> Well, it's exactly how I feel watching Trump's press conferences, frankly. All right. Nobody got exactly. the Steven Spielberg reference. Anybody? <laughs> what? What? Hard? What's the Steven Spielberg? Uh, His uh, daughter uh, does porn. Uh, does, she, does she really? Went away? Yeah. I didn't know that. Adopted daughter, right? <laughs> this is, yeah. If she were if she were Ronan Farrow, who had a law degree and a PhD in, in political science, it, it would be it was Woody's son, not Frank Sinatra's. But if Spielberg <laughs> has a daughter doing porn, the Jews automatically go, "Hey, he's adopted. He's yeah. adopted. The kid's yeah. adopted." Yeah, uh, I, I I think it, uh, she's adopted. But uh, she's a great filmmaker. She makes porn. She, uh, you've heard of E.T.? She does P.T.? <laughs> Ouch, Elliot. Ow. No. Uh, <laughs> no, it's true. Steven Spielberg has an adopted daughter. I, 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 uh, I just remembered that. Michaela Spielberg. Let's give her credit. Michaela Spielberg. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Doing porn. Yeah. 
She did the movie Saving Ron Jeremy, which is quite good. <laughs> Saving Ryan's Privates. What? I'm sorry? I didn't hear what you said, Scott. Saving Ryan's Privates. Oh, well, okay. that's the. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jaws. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger cock. <laughs> I don't care about the coronavirus. We're keeping these whorehouses open for Memorial Day. This, this is right. our busy season. That's it. That's huh? it. What? We're all, we're all living in amity. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in all seriousness, what? So, you don't do edibles, Scott, do you? Uh, you know, I've got I've got a stash here that I picked up in California where it's legal. And I, I wasn't doing it for a while, but honestly, sitting around, it kind of just, it's a bit of a, a little bit, you know, the microdose, they say. I don't know if you've heard about microdose. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not on any right now, to be clear. But, you know, you take a little bit, and it's just it's a bit of a lift. I don't do antidepressants. I've never done that. So this is like my antidepressant. Uh, I have an edible complex. I want to eat <laughs> hash brownies with my mother, then fuck my father. Wow. Yeah. Those are some good that's some good shit. <laughs> Far out, man. Frank, what are you, what what have you discovered is essential? Um, I don't know because I don't um I've managed uh uh cuz I'm a recovering uh drug addict and alcoholic so I'm not allowed to to do any of that stuff. So I've stayed uh sober throughout this and uh uh, I don't know why. <laughs> it's, uh, but I have, and I, um, I find that, uh, uh, bagels have been essential to me. Uh, uh, I, I, I stock up, I get a lot of, I have great bagel places in my neighborhood, which I hope will continue to stay open. And, um, I stock up on them. I put them in the freezer. So I have a lot of them and, uh, I guess food for me is is uh is the thing that uh um I hope will continue to have a supply of. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But if they reopen uh you know, if they reopen the economy and all the people who deliver our food and uh and make our food get sick, that's gonna be a huge problem and, and it's yes. one of the, the things they're not uh they're not looking at. They Absolutely. The least paid are the most essential. And mm. I, I'm afraid that they're going to turn the economy back on. And, well, yeah. Uh, uh, anxiety medication is up something mm -hmm. like 35%, 35% increase in anxiety. You got it. Yeah. You got it. I'm sorry? That, that's, that's where the edibles come in. Yeah. I guess pot is better for you. I'm an alcoholic. I have to live it, you know, one panic attack at a time. Just Frank, can I ask, are you doing the meetings, the virtual meetings? Are you still, I, I've heard, I've read about this. Um, oh, I've heard about them too. Uh, but, uh, no, I haven't, I haven't done those. Um, um, cause I, as, as we would say in 12 step, in the 12-step world, I work a shitty program, so I haven't been doing those. <laughs> and how many years have you been sober, Frank? 
Um, I guess it's um, uh, like uh, 30, over 34. In, in uh, October, it'll be 35 years. Right. If I make it. Wow. Liberty University. Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. I love their, their mm. motto. Liberty, Liberty. Yeah, I've been sober since 1988. And oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I, I, and I miss it every day. Mm. Every day. I think, why not? Why not? Why not? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's tempting, believe me. But Well, let's plug our gigs. Uh, when is Frank going to be on, what is the name of your show? It's such a great name. Isolation I, Late I, Night. Let's, let's, let's book it right now. Frank, what's your... Uh, Isolate Night? What's it called? Isolate Night. Isolate Night. And you had Gilbert Gottfried on. I had Gilbert Gottfried on. I had Mark Summers Todd Barry, Cecily Strong last night. Mark Summers to... must love this because doesn't he have OCD? He was social yeah. distancing before everybody, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But let's see. I've got uh, the week of April 26, 27th, 29th. Frank, what do you think? Um, I, have a, I have a brief uh, opening of availability between now and next February. So <laughs> whenever you want to book me, I'm, I'm ready. I, I would love to do it. Great. I'll slot you in for... Uh, yeah, next next Monday or two, or twenty seventh or twenty eighth. Oh, I would I would love it. Thank you. And are you doing? Describe the show. You're doing a monologue. Uh, as much as I can gather, you know, this is chewing into my monologue writing time right now. But maybe oh, I'll, good, maybe, maybe, good. Maybe I'll just take the toilet joke. Which joke? You're, you're, you're hoarding toilets. Why would you take? Should I get take the joke? Take it. Leave the cannoli. Take the joke. No, you know what I'm going to do, though? I, I'm going to do a bit. I, I'm trying to. We have a writer's room uh, in about an hour and a half. And, and listen, if you want to join the writer's room, I'll be happy to have you, too. But we. Why we, don't you. Why don't you have. Uh, yeah. Frank Conniff. My God. I know. Let's How many writers do you have? Uh, two. <laughs> Not Frank, enough. You should. Uh, and uh, my son is hysterical. Don't mention his name. He he calls me up now. He goes, what would you rather? Have your cock chewed off by a pit bull or a 30-day free trial of Hulu? <laughs> I thought that was hey, pretty good. Hulu, Hulu has some good stuff. So you you got to replace Hulu with Quibi now. Yeah, yeah. Scott Rogowski, how do people follow you on Twitter to get in touch with you? Uh, at Scott Rogowski, where you can also watch the show 9 p.m. Eastern, Sunday through Thursday, live on Twitter, live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, all simulcast, 9 p.m. Eastern, and isolatenight.com. bought the domain name. Isolatenight.com. Oh, man. Yeah. 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 Got serious about this thing, because this may be a while. I'm, I'm doing the show until my baseball show comes back, or until, the, you know, they find a cure for a coronavirus, or we all die, whichever comes first. Right. Right. And Frank, everybody should follow Frank on Facebook and Twitter every day, at least three or four brilliant, brilliant jokes that I wish I wrote. Uh, how do people and, find uh, And I hope everyone will watch my uh, Major League Baseball show, which is called I Don't Know One Fucking Thing About Baseball. I love it's, that. It's called, <laughs> I, it's called I Didn't Know I Had Lou Gehrig's Disease. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys.
Stay on the line. Thank you. Stay on the line for one second. Let's do this okay. real soon because this is all I've got. Stay on the line. Joining us from Hollywood, screenwriter, comedian, roast battle champion, Dave Cyrus. Hello there, Dave Cyrus. Hey, David. How we doing? Are you in Hollywood? Or- safe? Yes, I am. Are you in Brooklyn or Hollywood? I'm in Brooklyn, of course. Where am I going to go? Well, you're a busy screenwriter, and you're working, right? You've got projects. I mean, if, you know, working can count as doing things that you might get paid for someday but probably won't, then yes, I'm working every day. Good. Good. Well, on this I got sh- my twelve hundred dollars. Congratulations! One point $1. two thousand dollars. <laughs> so you know, I'm going to be pretty good for a while, I guess. Now, did he sign the check? I don't know because I got a direct deposit, so I didn't uh, have to look at his at his signature. I see. But uh, I do look forward to finding out in campaign ads exactly how long the checks were delayed to put his signature on. It's incredible. It's the first time Donald Trump ever signed an irs check well it turns out he's fine paying people when it's not his money yes 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 and and that's the most amazing thing about it is he truly thinks that there are going to be a a percentage of people which is true who are going to look at this and be like oh i thought this was from the government turns out he's given us this money from his own billions of dollars do you think you know that never even occurred to me i would say at least 15 percent of the population would, if asked, say they believe the money was his personal money because wow. his signature's on it. I, th- wow. I think that's a reasonable amount of people that I – you have to think that there's a certain number of people that, that they're going to say, well, his signature's on it. Yeah, somebody sent me a, a video of uh, – well, do, a guy doing something to a chicken that I don't want to describe, but you get an idea that – German guy? No, I just – I think the chicken was German, but – if somebody is willing to sodomize a chicken, then there probably are a significant number of Americans who think that check comes from Donald Trump's petty cash drawer. Well, the, I'll tell you what's going to happen, because the best thing about Trump, and there's not many, is the predictability. You can kind of always know kind of what's going to happen with both his fans and him. Uh, and with that one, what's going to happen is uh, – he, as you know, a lot of his fans are just pathological liars. That's just what they mm-hmm. do. They lie constantly and they tell lies that are insultingly hard to believe, but they're doing it because they're just taking advantage of what they consider the dumbest people and that they'll vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see a lot of those trolls who know it's not true putting out memes saying that that's true as a, and, and then – the dumber people will believe them because that's sort of the way it works. There's a certain percentage of Trump fans that lie and then a certain percentage that believe. It's kind of like have you seen memes about like that tell lies about the swine flu or about Obama in relation to this? And it's like it's it's like you, you, you look at it like, well, no one could possibly believe this. And you're like, it's not the person who made it that believes it. They just are relying on the percentage of people who just believe literally anything positive about Trump. Right. Like and they, and they, they believe in Trump, but they don't believe in the public health experts. They don't believe well, in Fauci. Yes. 
They don't believe but in no, anything. Well, they hate scientists. The Trump and the people who truly love him are the kind of people who have a true resentment of the scientific community because they represent the opposite of what they believe in. Objective reality. An unmanipulatable, unemotional reality. And emotionally driven people feel especially powerless right now because they've always – their self-esteem is tied into believing that scientists are bluffing that they know things they don't. And now they mm-hmm. have no choice but to accept that right. or not accept it and start making up conspiracies. And they're not getting the $1,200. The, the Trump supporters who don't trust science, the first round of payments, as you point out, only go – to taxpayers who do direct deposit. That's about like 75, 80 million American families. Right. All those idiots on the grid. Yeah. The Trump supporters don't do direct deposit into their banks. They they want the, the, the checks mailed to them by the evil post office. That's about 70 million Americans. And those checks, mm-hmm. those haven't been mailed out yet. And they might not be mailed out for a couple of months. Those and, are going to be a while. Yeah, and that's assuming the signature. That's assuming the evil post office is still around. And those You're are the Trump, Trump supporters. So they're not getting Trump supporters are not going to get that twelve hundred dollars. Well, Republicans have been wanting to get rid of the post office forever because they look at the post office the way Nixon looked at health care. Why have a public option for this at all? Why not make – if everyone had to use Federal Express, think of all the money that would put in the economy if suddenly everyone's mail needs became extremely more expensive and were purely uh, a, a private sector. Hmm. I think – actually, I think Nixon was in favor of some form of universal health insurance. I think he talked about it. See, I had re- – maybe I'm wrong about that. I had read years ago that Nixon was the one who w- was the first major government person to say – wouldn't it be great if we got all this money back from people towards the end of their lives through their health care costs? I don't know. Maybe maybe I'd have to I'd have to check that out. So the the Trump people are against sheltering in place. They think it's a dry run for the Green New Deal. Have you heard this? That they believe well, because they're mad that air pollution is going down. They're angry that the that the environment is benefiting from people not going out as much, essentially, is what that comes from. They, they're afraid that Joe Biden will get elected president and institute the, the, the new Green Deal, the Green New Deal. And part of that will be people are going to be ordered to shelter in place to bring down carbon emissions. That's what forever, they, forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's look. Liars are going to lie. And. Like I've said before, conspiracy theorists have never felt more desperate to be seen and have never been less relevant than they are right now. And did you see them in Michigan? Yes, I did see that. Uh, It's really brandishing guns, Mm -hmm. but wearing face masks. Very few were wearing masks, I noticed, and I'm betting anything that there was peer pressure not to wear a mask mm-hmm. because I'm betting most people there didn't even believe the virus is real at all. They think that they – because it, it's that kind of thing where when somebody believes one thing, they start twisting all the other unrelated facts to around it to make their decision less complicated. 
you know? Mm -hmm. So like they're saying, well, I don't think I should be, I should be forced to stay here. And instead of accepting the complex nature of my decision, I'm going to start moving reality around so that my decision is actually the most perfect one imaginable. Mm-hmm. So they're going to start saying, well, not only do I – is it unconstitutional to make me stay at home, there's not even a disease at all or it's a, it's a cell phone tower or it's just the flu and they're using it against us because you know, Trump people have been used more than anything to feeling like reality is something they can curate, mm-hmm. that they can just decide and pick and choose whatever is more convenient and that's not what's happening now. And yeah, it is very restrictive but you know these – these people are dealing with a population that doesn't want to listen. And you know, when I first, you know what I don't hear as much anymore? The media is panicking everyone. You know what? The media is not panicking everyone. In fact, if anything, we're not panicked enough because we're not staying home. So at, at one point, everyone was so eager to say that this was the media being irresponsible. And now the truth is the media should have been even more fire and brimstone about you're going to goddamn die if you start if you keep going to friggin' funerals and parties. And what are we seeing nationwide? Because we're, we're being told here in Manhattan, in New York City, in Brooklyn, that we hit the apex and Governor Cuomo is sending ventilators to Michigan that we don't need as much as we thought we needed because people sheltered in place. Are we seeing success here in New York? Is it beginning to at least seem like it's subsiding? Well, the numbers are not going down yet. I think it's very likely the number of hospitalizations are going down. The number the number of hospitalizations have gone down a little, and of course, that being the case, deaths are at a two week delay. Right. So we're at so we're still at the height of the deaths. We're seeing you know over two thousand a day, uh, and there's also the number of deaths that they are now accepting were simply people that clearly died of it but couldn't get tested. Because there are no tests, because obviously the numbers are way higher than that. And just like I said, the thing about predictability, Trump often does things, and, that, and same with the conspiracy theorists, you know they're full of shit because you know what they're going to say before they say it because it's just so obvious what they're going to go with. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened today where Trump said he's accusing New York of lying about how many people are dying. Now, obviously – the number of deaths in New York of coronavirus is substantially lower than the real number because that's only the people who were tested. And now we're starting to include ones where the coroner was like, even though we can't find a test, this is clearly symptoms of coronavirus. And he's just as I knew, as everybody knew before he said it, he had to come out and say, well, I think they're lying because Trump's real plan here is very simple. Remember when he said you're not going to get a test, it's never going to have widespread testing? That's because he doesn't want anyone to know the number. He wants – he's already given up on the idea of saving lives. Now he's just mitigating the actual statistics. His whole a- attitude is it's just like with job numbers. It doesn't matter what's real. All that matters is what I can get people to believe. So as lo- so he's immediately just saying, well, there's not, not enough ventilators. People are stealing them or, or masks. And it's not that more people are dying in New York. They're just making those numbers up. Believe me, not everyone else. And it's it's so obvious because it's what we knew he was going to say already. Just like we know that as these numbers of total coronavirus deaths go up, he's going to continue inflating the number of people who died of swine flu. And he's going to start claiming that there were millions of people who died of swine flu that that no one reported Mm -hmm. just because that's who he is. 
You know he's going to make that up because he is so easy to predict. Now, you live in Brooklyn. There's an Orthodox community there. We are seeing crazy Christians, crazy Jews who refuse to quarantine, to to shelter in place, who flaunt the rules. I'm sure there's Muslims, too. My, I think I told you my friend said that his dad was angry they closed the mosque. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, as a Jew, I'm, you know, in the Jewish neighborhood, I see it more from our side. Obviously, there's a lot more Christians in this country, and we have a very big problem with people going to church, of people who are getting people to come to church, who are then dying of coronavirus. And I'm getting texts all the time. Because uh, the funny thing is, I feel I really feel bad for the Orthodox Jews because most of them are doing the right thing too. But when someone who's not an Orthodox, but it's not like when a random person in America does something bad, he's wearing the uniform of other people. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like when an Orthodox Jewish person does something, it's like they're in a uniform that everyone associates them with all the others. That being said, Lakewood has a very real problem because even though the leadership is doing the right thing, a lot of the people just aren't listening. What is, is really scary. what is Lakewood? Lake, Lakewood is a very uh, Orthodox Jewish enclave in New Jersey. Very wealthy in parts, but uh, both wealthy and not wealthy uh, Orthodox Jews live there because, you know, the people like to live in communities of their own people. And even though, like, I live in Orthodox Brooklyn where the leadership has gone to a lot of lengths to convince people to listen to this and to not be suspicious of the government. You know, for example, in my neighborhood, you know, instead of having the big Passover celebrations they normally would have, there's a, a truck with to be perfectly honest, way too loud speakers driving up and down the neighborhoods, blasting Passover music while people dance and, you know, uh, uh, from their porches, which is adorable. It's very nice. I'm glad that people are still finding ways of celebrating and being safe. But they're trying and they're trying to get this message out. And yet there's still enough people still going to those freaking funerals. Ivanka, the virus. A, Ivanka, the Orthodox Jew. She didn't shelter in place. She went to the Trump Country Club for a Seder in New Jersey yep. with Jared. Now, I'm wait. Have they released how many people? Was it just her family, or did they go to Seder with other people, like with his family or something? Was it just Jared, Ivanka, and the children? The Was point there- is that the rules don't apply to them. Well, yeah, exactly. That's exactly true. You would think, and. Any other president in the situation would have their kids and their – well, excuse me. Any other president wouldn't have their kids in their cabinet, but they would have both their kids and their cabinet making a show of doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, like you know Sasha and Malia Obama would be – you know, we would we would all be making it. We'd be seeing the show of how much they're not leaving their rooms and how much the Obamas are just sitting there because someone made a very good point. Even if they were going on this trip – uh, without you know, without seeing other people, which I kind of doubt. How many Secret Service people then had to be less than six feet away from them? Right. How many people Good had point. to coordinate this that are then being put in danger? Mm-hmm. So even if they are claiming, oh, we just needed our whole family to go from one place to the other for no, you know, because I'm sure their their uh, living accommodations in Washington are probably so meager that they had to go to this other place, right? But, yeah, even then, how many people who are helping you travel and Secret Service and all these people that you're putting the lives in danger of because their lives mean nothing to them? Yeah. By the way, Jared Kushner, Orthodox Jew, owns real estate. And while many people are forgiving the rent, 
the Kushner Real Estate Foundation is not forgiving rent, and they are recipients big time of the $2 trillion bailout. The, the laws do not apply not to Jared Kushner, especially the laws regarding grooming of your eyebrows. What's going on with his eyebrows? Jared Kushner is one of the most, like, he should not be on a stage because he's so clearly unaware of what he looks like. Not that I'm calling him an ugly or ungroomed man, but, like, certain people just shouldn't be on stage. He has such a look of angry terror every time he's talking to a camera. He, I mean, I, and I've said this before, and I, I mean this. We should really investigate this. I have never seen Jared Kushner and Martin Shkreli in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we had Dr. Bandy Lee, the psychiatrist from Yale in the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. She is the psychiatrist who wrote the book that says he's insane, that Trump is clinically insane. It's co-written by 17 other psychiatrists. It's incontrovertible. The man is insane. And, you know, I met him. Huh? I I, I met the man. And uh, yeah, I thought there was something wrong with him. And I said, you know, the entire Republican Party has become the repository of white men with unresolved trauma. Is it fair to to say that Kushner and Trump are clinically insane? How about the entire how about the entire country? Honestly, it's fair. There's something crazy going on. It is like there's crazy in the water. It's why I hate conspiracies, but when someone said all these uh, antipsychotic drugs in the water supply might be making everyone crazy, I was like, I can't act like that doesn't sound like it makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though I don't believe it, I'm like, I got to admit, that would explain a lot of things. Can I just bring up one thing about Trump's sure. cabinet real quick that I'm, I think people are kind of glossing over? You know, Larry Kudlow, you saw how Larry Kudlow The drunk, said, the cocaine addict? Maybe, maybe. Uh, Larry Kudlow uh, was talking about the small business loan situation where, you remember, they spent, what was it, uh, $500 billion or $350 billion uh, to give to people that needed to stay in business. And, of course, it's already out of funds. It's a good idea, but, you know, mm-hmm. it obviously wasn't quite enough. Larry Kudlow uh, talked about how everyone's acting like it's so hard to get when he goes, but my wife had no problem going to our local bank, filling out a form and got the loan. Right. And I'm thinking, number one, people are criticizing it as, well, yeah, she's Larry Kudlow's wife. She probably lives in a very wealthy neighborhood where, where the bank isn't nearly as inundated. And, you know, it's you're, it's um, the wife of a member of Trump's cabinet probably would ha- be treated better by the typical bank. But you're talking about the paycheck protection program. That's part of the two point two trillion stimulus law. And it's being administered by the Small Business Administration. And they call it the Paycheck Protection Program. What it is, is if you're a small business, you get a loan. And if you can prove that you use the loan to keep your business going, the loan is forgiven. You don't have to pay it back. And it's called the Paycheck Paycheck Protection Program. So how could Larry Kudlow's wife... It's protecting Larry Kudlow's wife her who's fictitious, a painter a painter She's a, she paints so i don't understand and why charges she, twenty thousand dollars for portraits i don't understand whose who's paycheck is is that small business protecting exactly how is larry kudlow's wife 
not abusing this program by taking funds from it. She's a goddamn painter. She's even a corporation. She, She's a corporation. Even if, even if she has employees. Even if she has, which is hard to, you know, kind of buy since she's just a painter. I've been a painter. You don't really need many other people besides yourself. Even aside from that, isn't your husband a goddamn millionaire? This is how they rig the system, Cyrus. They become corporations. You can become a corporation. Even though you're the only, even though you're the only employee. And then you can present yourself as a small business person. And you're entitled to a loan from the Paycheck Protection Program, and you don't have to pay it back. How is Larry Kudlow not ashamed to tell people that his wife, Larry Kudlow's wife, should be entitled to this money? This is a man. He's a hobby. This is a freaking hobby. This is a guy who was a coke addict. During the Reagan administration, and right. if you Let's saw not, him recently, it looked like he's he's had a heart attack, and it looks like he's drinking again. It looks stop def- stop defending him as being cool, and let's talk about the problem. <laughs> okay. No, I just I couldn't believe that no one was talking about like why should Larry Kudlow's wife be getting taxpayer money? Jesus Christ! Mm. <laughs> what Twilight Zone are we living in? That mm. that's even that. That we're even considering the idea that maybe, Larry, why don't you loan your wife a couple of bucks, you cheap piece of shit? Yeah. The, the, you know, about uh, 1.5 million loans have been approved. We've spent about $315 billion. 315, thank you. 315, $315 billion has been loaned out by the Small Business Administration, and it's empty. They need more. Yes. I know people who already applied and it was too late. Yeah. And it's loans. They call it's it it's they call the thing that it is not. It's called the Paycheck Protection Program, as though they're protecting the paychecks of the working man. They're yeah, not. I was naive enough. I thought it was only eligible to people who had payrolls. Yeah. Who had employees who were going to be losing their jobs otherwise. And you know that they're going to investigate. If, if, you know, you own a small shop with your wife, you get the bank to secure the loan through the Paycheck Protection Program, and you think anybody's checking to see if you fired your staff and closed up the shop? That's what people are going to do. They don't have an inspector general who's going to look into this stuff. It's a giveaway to, to wealthy people who... Uh, don't give a shit about their employees. It's just yeah, a license it, to loot the treasury. And because and any normal government would have a system in place to make sure that those people were not getting fired, but that's what not what you do is you give the money directly to the people. A, a reasonable country, a caring country, would not say to small business owners, "Here's here's a loan; it will be forgiven." Make sure some of this money goes to your employees. A reasonable country would say, F the small business owners. We're going to give this money to the people who need it, the workers. But that opens a can of worms that we have a bigger problem with, which is the reason that it makes more quote-unquote sense to give the money to the employer to keep the person working is because their health care is tied to their employment. Hmm. So you have that whole problem, which in and of itself creates the problem, because now it's, well, people are losing their jobs. 
because of this disease that they're going to need health care for. So in any other country, that wouldn't be an issue. You could give the money directly to people because they would still have their own health insurance. But now you got to give that money to the employer because once they lose their job, they're screwed. It's so inefficient. You talk about the efficiency of corporate America. Look how inefficient it is. We have about 14 million Americans who work in retail. They're all going to be out of work. 14 million Americans. So what do you do? You save the corporations that they work for in the hope that the venture capitalists who racked up debt to buy these retail outlets are going to find it in their heart to what? Pay a week salary to these people? I mean, it's just, it's lunacy. And that is what we're talking about. You know, $1,200, that's, you know, we're talking about an extra week for a lot of people. You know, two weeks if you were already in poverty, basically. Right? Yep. J.C. Penney is closing 800 stores. The Gap is closing most of their stores. And uh, I don't think those jobs are coming back in the retail sector. More and more Americans are just going to just depend on Jeff Bezos. They're going to just. Yeah. And we need to adapt to that world because it's just like. You know, when you talked about my industry, movies, it is very vulnerable. As we said, it's not the only vulnerable industry because anything that ever had the potential to go out of business is going out of business. You know, people are still going to go to baseball games, I firmly believe. I think that there are a lot of people out there who, as soon as it's safe again, can't wait to go back to that. But no one's saying I cannot wait to go back to JCPenney. No one is saying, you know, no one is, well, is saying I'm going to be outside I, I, I the just, first. I don't know. But you know, you know what I mean, though. You know what I mean? I don't know. I, not, I think I'm wondering if people, I'm wondering if. Fan base. I'm wondering if maybe, well, that's maybe reveals more about your priorities than most Americans. I think that there's a need to go shopping for clothes and shoes and dress your kids. I'm hoping that Americans wake up to the fact that. We should not be worshiping guys who can hit a fastball, paying them $60 million a year and spending tax dollars on stadiums that end up charging us $1,000 for a seat. I mean, maybe well, let we me say get- something about that. I am not a baseball fan. I'm not a sports fan. I'm not a guy who gets interested in sports. However, I appreciate anything that I and honestly that brings people together. And mm-hmm. that brings it gives people a common thing to feel good about people who, uh, you know, work really, you know, a lot of people out there, they work really hard. And this is what makes them happy. And I think that's OK. I think it's OK that, you know, a guy works a 45 hour week and then wants to go to a baseball game and feel some vicarious fame through the guy he supports. I think mm-hmm. that people I think people need that. It's the same exact thing you get from, you know, from movies and a, or a play you get from in a bigger way in this country off of sports. And, you know, it's there's a thing that I'm learning more about sports, that it is about people coming together, that it's about there's something you love about knowing that everyone in my city wants this. And we're all emotionally connected by that. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important to people. I think it's very important that people have that outlet. Right. right. Even though, like, I don't like baseball because, you know. It's incredibly boring, but I have no problem with people loving baseball. Just like, you know, I understand they don't love comic books like I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And pretty much, as far as I'm aware, there is no one on earth who likes both. Right. Let's go back to Trump, because yeah. Trump fatigue sets in. You get worn down. I, I, you know, I was getting to the point where I was too cool for school. I didn't want to hear about what a f up he is. But it gets worse and worse. I don't know if you saw in the paper, but on Saturday, uh, I think it was the New York Times reported that at the height of the coronavirus pandemic in March, when it was becoming apparent that this thing is getting bad, Trump walked into the situation room where the coronavirus task force was meeting, and he just says out of nowhere, I should uh, do a radio show from the Oval Office. I think that would help. But he didn't want to compete with Limbaugh. Yeah, yeah. And what's funny about that? That's is that- what he was thinking of when 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 he was being told that you need to lock down the bridges and the tunnels, and we need masks, we need tests. He's going. I should host a, a talk show from the Oval Office, like Rush. Well, that that's because he can't emotionally handle not doing rallies. I mean, that's Twenty Fifth Amendment. I mean, that's where you have to look around when the guy comes. He's an in- addict. He's an addict, and he's acting like an addict. He's an addict to attention. And he's figuring out and he's and when you have no shame and you have no ethics whatsoever, which even his fans will admit about him, uh, you look at things like this as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And he he wants to turn the coronavirus into a chance to do his usual thing, like when he was going to a disaster and he's pumping his fist and saying, yay, Trump. He, he loves this. He, if this was making him look good which it's not because he's incompetent, but any other president would have looked good in this situation, to be honest, if they had held themselves together. He would love this. He would be a pig in shit because mm-hmm. he desperately wants for everyone to have to listen to him. He put Mike Pence in charge of this and then stopped letting Mike Pence be in charge because he was mad that Mike Pence was in charge of something. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't know how to deal with this because on one hand, he wants Pence to be in charge of anything bad happens, but he wants to be able to take credit when anything good happens. That's his whole philosophy of life. So he's just looking at this as, uh, you know, people are scared. People are looking to me because I'm the president. That means this is great. Right. He announced the opening our country council on Tuesday. Yeah. It's uh, it's going to include 17 separate representatives from all these different industries, hospitality, banking, energy, casinos, thought leaders from casinos. And he announced that Cisco Systems was going to be part of it. McDonald's is going to be a part of it. Vince R- McMahon, of course. Richard Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO, was going to be a part of it. David Solomon, the head of Goldman, Cha- Goldman Sachs, was going to be a part and a of lot it. And a, a lot of doctors and scientists, right? Yeah, and Pfizer. He said they're all part of it. And they all said, no, we're not. <laughs> we never got asked to sit on this yeah, council. <laughs> they use the word bewildered. Yeah. Well, he thinks he can do it. He thinks if he just says it, people have to do it because he thinks that's what the presidency means. Because mm-hmm. he keeps talking about how he's all powerful. He thinks he thinks he's like Henry Kissinger, where he just says it out loud and one of his assistants writes it down and then does it. But he never set up that part of it. Yeah. He thinks he can just say it. Right. He's a very dumb guy. He is. <laughs> he just, he he 
what we're seeing more than anything is that like from, from day one, every book about the Trump administration was no one knows what's going on. No one knows what they're doing. When Trump has an idea, he just grabs the nearest person and tells them to do it no matter how outside of their purview that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how he runs this, and that's why this is happening. We're always behind. We're always scrambling. We're always slapping things together because there are no professionals there. Right. There's no one who knows how to do their job because people who do their jobs well intimidate Trump and makes him feel bad about himself. And that's what deep state means. Anyone who's there to do their job, not to be a loyalist. 28,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. Well, obviously a lot more, but yes, that's where the numbers are right now. That's where, yes. And we, we, uh, we can't get tests still. I think they were able to do about 200,000 tests a day. Some of them don't even work. This has yes. monumentally been mismanaged from the we start. Don't e- we don't even know if you're immune after you get it. That's how in the woods we are. And, you know, the, everyone's talking two months ahead already about, well, when the antibody tests come out, what? The antibody tests, we don't even know if those exist. Mm-hmm. We don't even know if the test will be able to tell if someone's immune or not. And it's looking more and more like it's not. Right. You, you can't even have a vaccine for a, a, a disease that mutates a certain amount that it may be. People are trying to negotiate with a disease and you can't. Right. Here's something good, and then we got to wrap it up about the American people. That that yeah. make, that encourages me. He got a bump. There was a catastrophe, and we immediately, as Americans, rally around the president. This happened like nine eleven. Like nine eleven. Yeah. George W. Bush had a fifty one percent approval rating, and then nine eleven hits, and it bumps all the way up to ninety percent. It doesn't last long. Uh, his father had the same thing after the Gulf War. And Clinton beat him a year later. And, you know, uh, after 9-11, Bush almost lost to Kerry. Some would say he he did lose to Kerry. Trump had a brief bump in the polls. He's always been underwater in the polls. More Americans disapprove of him than approve of him. Yeah, most unpopular president overall uh, in the history of polling. Right. He it it briefly changed. He had. He was above water briefly, I think, two weeks ago. Now he's back underwater. But there is human nature. I was reading about this. There is this this thing, and it, it's global, where you rally behind your leader during the time of a crisis. And honestly, before you even get to that, I want to say, as a diehard liberal who still considers George W. Bush one of the worst presidents in world history, Even I, at the time, was aligning myself with him because I still thought that George Bush wanted what's best. I was wrong, but Mm -hmm. I still I still to this day trust that he at least didn't realize what a bad job he was doing, you know, that he thought he was he was trying to do the right thing and just obviously screwed up very badly. But at the same time, we all remember when right after 9-11, when we were all scared and George Bush came on TV and said, I want everyone to understand we're still America, and the ratings I'm getting for talking to you right now are through the roof. Yeah, I remember when he said that. He brought a nation together and said he's huge. Yeah, I re- yeah. but I do remember rooting for George W. Bush. And, I, yeah. and, 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 and at one point, I was rooting for Trump. I thought maybe he, can, maybe he can pull this out. So he's underwater now in his polls. But 
This is a global pandemic. Italy, devastated by the pandemic. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, 71% approval rating. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Uh, that, That in other countries... Their leaders, even though they're being devastated by the pandemic, their leaders are enjoying these monumentally high approval ratings. Not here in the United States. The American people are on to Donald Trump. We deserve we yeah. deserve some credit. Angela so Merkel, obvious. her mm-hmm. her approval rating is up eleven points. The Prime well, Minister, really, yeah, she Denmark most, almost. Hold up 40 countries. points to it Denmark. Up of, 40. Can I have a question, though? Yeah. Uh, how's the president? I, I, I am embarrassed to say I don't know what the leader is named, uh, president or prime minister of Sweden. How are they doing? Uh, you know, I'm guessing they're not doing great. Well, they they in Japan came late to the party. They thought they could do it differently. And uh, I guess they were wrong. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I, I, By the way, I've actually really enjoyed watch. Have you seen any of these Italian uh, governors and their the addresses they've been given? I've been very impressed by it because it really showed like what the way you need to act in the situation. Have you seen those where these Italian politicians are on TV saying, "I hear women are going out getting their hair done. I hope your hair looks good in that coffin you're going to be in next week." <laughs> like, I was like, "Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. That's what they need to hear right now." Uh, like, that's awesome, actually. Life. By the way, uh, just a real quick aside, Colbert had a perfect reaction to when Trump talked about his ratings. Did you see it? No. They showed footage of the Hindenburg going down. Right. And the and the guy watching it going, oh, my God, the Hindenburg is on fire. I'm going to be famous. <laughs> oh, the, oh, the ratings. Oh, the notoriety. <laughs> Everyone's going to hear me saying this. All right. All right. I'm looking up sweet. I, I can't find an answer to your question. So uh, that's OK. Uh, Sweden. Look, I don't want anything bad to happen to them. It's just the problem with Sweden is that they were like, you know what? We have enough. Maybe they're right. Maybe we have a sparse enough population and there's enough hospitals that we can handle this. It doesn't look like that's what's happening. But the problem is very simple. The Swedes are doing OK. The immigrants in Sweden are getting slaughtered. Right. Because right. that's what happens. Poor people are the are the first line of defense against this. Okay. Dave Cyrus, how do people follow you on Instagram? Dave Cyrus, spelled S-I-R-U-S, like virus. Okay. And we look forward, any word on when your movie comes out? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. I, don't, I, don't, I know nothing yet. The world is topsy-turvy. I'm sure they'll figure it out, and I'm sure, you know, there will be a way to... To watch it, I just don't know exactly uh, how or when that'll be yet. But, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, as long as I'm happy to help entertain uh, people at home. Very good. Stand the line, Dave Cyrus. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. We're going to try something 
different with Dr. Jennifer Verdelin today. First off, please welcome Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. Thank you for having me. We have uh, we don't shelter in place here at the David Feldman Show. We have a, a live <laughs> audience. Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is the author of Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. Her other book is Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try at Home Lessons from the Wild. Go to jenniferverdelin.com, sign up for her newsletter, follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen, and Subscribe to Wild Connection TV to watch her latest video. Hello, Dr. Verdelin. Hi, how are you? We're going to talk about our big meeting tonight. On I know. Zoom. I'm very excited. I'm very excited because, you know, you brought up this uh, famous quiz that could guarantee love between two people and ended with staring in each other's eyes. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to make my own quiz and see if. Uh, if, if I can match people up based on the animal, they turn out to be by answering some questions. This is going to be really interesting. We're having a Zoom <laughs> meeting Friday night at 9 p.m. tonight, Eastern Standard Time. If you would like an invitation, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the office hours button, and I will send you an invitation. It starts at 9 o'clock. I would suggest that people arrive 10 of 9 so I can say hello to you and let you in we are we only have a hundred openings i don't think we'll get to a hundred if we do get to a hundred i'll either have to upgrade my zoom plan or uh i don't know but so tonight at 9 p.m eastern dr jennifer verdelin will be our special guest and we're going to have a animal beauty pageant we're inviting our listeners to Bring their pets, and we will meet your pets. We'll see them on the screen, and then we will pick the cutest pet. And the Are we going to have a talent show? I think what we're going to do is just go with cuteness. I think we're going to. Okay. I think it's time to objectify pets based on their looks. <laughs> are they cute or are they ugly? And 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 I. What is the prize, Doctor Jennifer Verdelin? First prize well, is what? Well, so the first prize is going to be an audiobook uh, version of Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. Mm-hmm. And we will meet Senor Buttons? Absolutely. Senor Buttons wouldn't miss it for the world unless he's napping in his tent. <laughs> and, <laughs> he, and he is not going to compete in this pageant because it wouldn't be fair. Clearly, he, 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 I can't. That would, isn't there some rule against that? I'm yes. not really sure if we have rules anymore, but I'm pretty, pretty sure there's some kind of rule about not entering your own kids into the, the beauty pageant and then being a judge. Right. We're also going to create a love connection using right. the science of animal dating and mating and courtship that you've studied and written about. Dr. Jennifer Verdelin, if you are single, and you're looking for a relationship, a virtual relationship via Zoom, we we will create a, well, Dr. Verdelin will create a love connection. We will take two people, and I had mentioned this article in the New York Times, the 36 questions, that if you answer them honestly and then stare into each other's eyes for four minutes, you will be in love. It doesn't matter who it is. Man, 
And woman, 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 man, man, doesn't matter. 36 questions, staring into each other's eyes for four minutes. You will be in love. You, however, have come up with your own questionnaire. You say it's 20 questions. That can no, be- it's only nine. I no. can do it in nine. Nine questions that you will ask of people to determine whether or not they should be in love or they will fall in love. Whether they're well matched to find love with each other. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we're going to do it that way tonight. So if you would like, so do, do, do we invite couples or do we have separate people in separate Zoom squares doing this? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I, I think uh, if people are interested in finding a match, they, if they take the quiz, then I can match up uh, people based on the quiz. I mean, it'll be it'll be tricky if uh, we get too many squirrels and not enough vultures. But you know, I can always uh, give it a shot. But here's what I think we should do. I will look at the people. And I will try to create a love connection. I will pick two people myself okay. who I think should be in love. And then you'll quiz them. Okay. okay. That sounds, I think that sounds great. Okay. And then we'll see how well you did and, and if they're a good match. Right. Okay. And then they okay. report back to They have to go on several virtual Zoom dates throughout the week. And then they'll come back the following Friday to tell us how this love connection went. I think that's fun. And and you, by the way, uh, the winner of the beauty pageant gets a download of your book. The couple that is properly matched gets an all-expense-paid staycation from the David <laughs> Feldman Show. There where, you go. Where you'll get to go into your living room and watch television paid for by the David Feldman Show. Here to join us to make sure that our beauty pageant for our pets is on the up and up is Emil Guillermo. He is the host of the PETA podcast. Thank you, David. I'm a little queasy because I'm not sure if this goes under the animal exploitation uh, type of thing. What, my show, just having a Zoom Conference call with you and Dr. Jennifer? Oh, no, no, not not the call, but the, the beauty contest, the beauty contest. No. Well, what 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 would Peter think, in all seriousness, of a beauty pageant featuring uh, cats and dogs or pets of all kind? I think they would think it would be somewhat on the side of exploitation if the money was going to some kind of corporate or private type of thing if it was for fun and, and you know like they used to say on those polls uh, you know uh, in the old days for entertainment purposes only mm-hmm. maybe it would be okay it just for fun because we all love our animals right know, but we don't love would them. it would it make it better if all of the animals got a trophy <laughs> they're millennial pets <laughs> Participation, yeah. Yeah, like if everyone's got a participation prize. I don't know, no. You're ugly, you're ugly, you're ugly. We're we're all the same level of ugly. (laughs) Well, you know, I support PETA. I'm a a vegan, and and Emil is a certified vegan. We're going to talk about that later. You can be a certified vegan. And thanks to the pandemic, I'm being serious, all my food comes in via Instacart. God bless the people who are on the front lines delivering 
our food. It is a privilege to shelter in place, as Dr. Jennifer Verdland points out all the time, to be sheltering in place and watching Netflix and complaining that you're all alone. Keep it to yourself because there are people on the front lines. The least paid are the most essential. That is my message for today's show. The least paid are the most essential. And they are helping me switch to a total plant-based diet. I'm a vegetarian. I sometimes have some dairy, but I will not allow any dairy into my home. And we'll talk to Emil about that in a second. I support PETA. I believe in everything they do. I know you do. I know you do. You have a sense of humor. PETA has a bit of a sense of humor. Would PETA object? I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to insult people's pets. If I don't think their pet is cute, I'm going to say I don't think that pet is cute. Now, would the people from PETA find that abusive? I do not think that expressing the truth about a pet's beauty <laughs> unethical. I, just, I don't think that. I, I can't see how they would say that would be unethical. Okay. I think truth is beauty. Beauty is truth. Didn't Keith say that? I'm not sure. Okay. Let's <laughs> talk to Jennifer Verdelin, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. She is an animal behaviorist who teaches animal conversation. Converse animal. Con- She's also Dr. Doolittle. I, I could do that too, probably. <laughs> <laughs> they do talk a lot, animals, more than we give them credit for. You teach animal conservation at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And let's talk about friendship because right now we're discovering that we're alone, that we're social animals, and we need friends. I do uh, 40-hour podcasts to make an animal connection. Do animals have friends? Do they have buddies? Absolutely. Lots of animals have friends. And and we've been able to, you know, get some more information about this by how we look at things. So we can look at sort of, it's like the equivalent of social media for animals, Facebook, uh, Twitter. uh, Social network analysis is kind of the formal way where we can see how often individuals interact and we're finding everything from obviously birds uh we've known that phrase birds of a feather flock together and it turns out that for chimpanzees and and flamingos and uh and and vervet monkeys and cows not only do they have friends but sometimes they uh prefer individuals that are more similar to them uh, which is something that we find in people. And, uh, they hold those friendships for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And they, they, those friendships are really crucial for lots of things. Sometimes practical, uh, you know, you can huddle together with your friends and be warmer, uh, on, on chilly nights. Uh, it can be, uh, for helping improve your immune system function. We know in baboons, uh, baboons with lots of friends have lower cortisol levels. They have better success raising their kids. They, um, they also, uh, I don't understand stronger. how, how, how does hanging out with another baboon, uh, prevent infections? Well, so, uh, baboons that have lots of friends also get groomed a lot. Something that many of us are missing these days. We're not getting our normal uh, you know, kind of grooming fix, uh, whether you got mani-pedis or you got your hair done or whatever you were fortunate enough to be able to 
afford to do. One of the reasons we like being groomed is it releases all of those good hormones when we're, we're physically touched. I mean, I know for me, if I get my hair cut, having my head washed is the absolute best part of that whole experience because there's physical contact. And so baboons that have lots of friends get lots of grooming. And, hey, doctor, and they, if I may interject, my, yes. my motto is groom like a baboon. I love it. Uh, absolutely. It yeah. I've been married like for 30 years. It works. I it zoom does. like a baboon. <laughs> so well, it's so not an indulgence. Getting, uh, taking care of your yourself, getting yourself physically ready for the outside world, being a little vain, getting a mani-pedi, a haircut, That that's part of your mental health and your physical health. Well, so it can be. So here's the thing. I mean, grooming in general, grooming yourself and, and allowing others to groom you is a social thing as well, right? It's, it's a bonding thing. And, and we've taken it, maybe contemporary society has taken it to this really big extreme. Where we also tie it to our social status. But here again, I got to pull in baboons because top baboons get groomed the most, uh, you know, they have the most friends and they're getting uh, uh, the most grooming. It's very relaxing. Um, we form friendships with our, you know, maybe this isn't true for men, but I can tell you many a woman has said, God, I, I, I don't know how to break up with my hairstylist. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I have still not found a new good one. I had to move. And the biggest the worst part of moving for me was losing my my guy. He was my guy. He, and. I can't seem to find another one. It's like dating. Okay, and is it about the way you end up looking, or is it about the journey, the cutting of the hair, the conversation, the oh, chemistry? It's all of it. It's all of it. It's the it's the conversation. It's the attention. It's the making you feel special. It's uh, and then of course, uh, like he's the only one who made me look so fabulous when I left. So uh, no, you know, those are, are it's a tall bar to to overcome. But, you know, our friendships provide that, the hugging that we get with our friends. Um, and, and one thing, you know, that we can see in other species since we started this out on friendship, even our friends, we go groom together, right? The old school barbershops, the, the small town. <laughs> well, I don't let my friends lick me. You know, that's, uh, we'll save that for the cows. <laughs> they yeah. love to lick each other. You know, they, they do. They love, there's lots of touching in those friendships. <laughs> right. Emil was and, gr- cleaning himself <laughs> like a cat. Well, do we it, see this in cultures, has, anthropologically speaking? Do we see all cultures all over the world showing? There's a, always some form of grooming, self or, or, uh, what we call allo grooming. So grooming others. And, and even things that we use, uh, you know, spas have mud baths. Well, animals use mud baths for the same reason, uh, that people do. And even, um, there's a culture in, uh, I forget the name of the tribe in, in Namibia. They have a gypsy paste and they use that as sunscreen and, and, uh, insect sort of protection for their skin. And it's been co-opted, um, as a kind of beauty status symbol. The, the color that, that you end up wearing, uh, you can, you can be considered more beautiful than someone else. And so. So I like makeup that, and jewelry, we see this everywhere. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Animals totally like flamingos, which also have friendships. They, um, they groom themselves to spread the, um, 
the anthocyanins, oh gosh, anthocyanins from the food that they eat to make them pink. So they're not naturally pink. They eat, uh, food that has the coloring. Imagine if you ate a bag of carrots. Mm-hmm. If you juice carrots and eat enough of them, your skin will start to turn orange. Right. I've seen that in like late 90s or early 90s when juicing first yeah. came Donald about. Trump isn't um, eating too many carrots. No, that's makeup to make yeah. you not look ill, uh-huh. um, which also has been used in, in history among people. Uh, you know, it used to be uh, the uh, uh, tan gave you an hour of health. Then it was being really pale because that meant you didn't work in the fields. So, so there's all these sort of associations between status and, and, and color in humans. But flamingos, it's the equivalent of makeup. When they're getting ready to do mating season, they really uh, preen their feathers a lot to try to put the coloring evenly all over their feathers. Um, and jewelry, I mean, I don't know, the bower birds are the, they don't, they don't wear them, but there are some birds that collect flowers and dance with the flowers uh, for females. You know, hey, Doc. You know, I I have a yard with that attract. I have a bird feeder that attracts birds, and we have goldfinches that come. To I should our- mention Emil is coming to us from Alcatraz. He's behind bars for <laughs> securities <laughs> fraud. We don't need to go into details. No, we attract these birds and the goldfinches. Here's the thing about the goldfinches. Who do you think? Is the goldiest of the goldfinches, the men or the women? Marla oh, Goldfinch. I went to her down. bar mitzvah. The She's male. from Massapequa. Marla, it's Marla Goldfinch. It's the male. The male, exactly. The male is like the the peacockiest of them all, and you know it's yeah, and, uh, it's to attract. So the women are hoodwinked into thinking, oh, here's the here's a guy with the the gelt. Right, right. Yeah, there. but they're not hoodwinked. He actually is the guy with the gelt. It's only in humans that we, we end up a little messed up here because yeah. we can fake it, you know. He can't go to the drive through of goldfinch tan salons and get golder, right? Yeah. Like yeah. he's as gold as he's gonna get. Yeah. And but, but when I see them, I see yeah. I see them, I see the the guys are ready to mate because they, they're golder than the other yeah. finches, the other goldfinches. And it's really amazing. Just put out some seed on your tree and you get all the sparrows come in, the blue jays, but the goldfinches are kind of interesting. They, I know. The gold thing. Now tell they me about Flam- a ton of drama. Wait, I just gotta, I gotta let Emil know. They got a lot of drama, finches. You know, they, 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 they try to attract the girls, but they don't mind having more than one girl. They, huh. uh, but the girls definitely mind sharing because that means they got to share parental care. They got to share. They don't like to share. So you usually get some pretty, uh, you get some battles between the males, but usually males like in humans, they, they, they know, okay, I'm probably going to lose this. So I'm going to, you know, all right, you win the, the, the girls. It's a regular old cat fight amongst the finches. So it's like a orange is the new goldfinch kind of thing going on. There. Yeah, and it's the the finches, the housewife finches of Orange County. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me about flamingos and friendship. Oh well, yeah. So so they looked at um, whether or not flamingos had friends, and of course, you know, the males and females may form a, a couple, and and that's one form of friendship. But they also found that flamingos hang out with other flamingos, and they also avoid. Certain flamingos, which means not every flamingo is your friend. Hmm. And, you know, and so we would expect it to be random if they didn't have friends uh, and if they didn't avoid 
certain flamingos. So not only do they have friends, but they have flamingos they don't care for that much. And, uh, you know, these friendships last a long time. And so there's, you're, there's obviously some benefit. You're really damaging my, my Filipino, uh, motto. A flamingo is always your friend. That's what they, <laughs> that's what they said. That's what my father. Really? A flamingo, always your friend. Hmm. Well, as long as the flamingo likes you, then that's probably true. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But flamingos have preferences too, right? So, so I think that we don't think about animal friendships. Like every time you see it showed, sort of, you know, sensationalized or talked about, it's like the, the, the dog that made friends with a pig or, you know, a duck that, that fell in love with a cat. And, and, you know, and that's great. I mean, interspecies friendships are important yeah, and they me, do happen. Me and David, the friends since the eighties. Uh-huh. <laughs> There you go, interspecies friendship. Yeah. So, <laughs> did you see so, the picture of the police officer leading the ducklings, the baby ducklings, to find the mother? I think that did he rescue a? Well, so there was another story some time ago where a police officer rescued some duckling. Like the mother duck went to ask him to basically help her. Some of her ducklings were. So we have animals that that understand that we can help them. That to me makes it m- that much more tragic when we are cruel to animals. Yes, is because there's a level of of recognition and trust there that's completely being violated um, at the same time, you know. But <clears throat> I, I didn't see that particular piece. But you remember we talked about the badger and the coyote being friends, mm-hmm. and and there's a uh, there's a skunk and a coyote that are hanging out now, you know. So <laughs> it's amazing, um, and that's a Careful friendship, I think. You know, one should be careful not to upset the skunk. <laughs> right. And YouTube YouTube has shown us some amazing videos of interspecies relationships where dogs put their arms around cats and it's it just looks like it's friendship, right? Have you seen any of those videos? Oh, I, I haven't seen any particular ones, but I'm not at all surprised. I mean, I, I think that we underestimate the individuality of, of different animals. Um, you know, that they have personalities and pre- and preferences and, and, and friends. And some are bolder or shyer. We know there are optimistic, uh, uh, pigs and pessimistic dogs. Uh, we, we know all of these things and, so, so, you know, what's, um, <clears throat> what's interesting is the similarities between how we choose our friends and how other animals choose their friends. We're not so special and we're not so different. And I think that to me is great. You know, as disappointing as it is, Emil, that maybe not every flamingo will always be your friend. Um, you know, that flamingos care about having friends is 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 the silver lining. You know what I realized when it comes to grooming, you can pick your friends and you can pick your family. You know, in terms of picking lice. Oh yes, I mean, oh Jesus my gosh. Boys. No, 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 I'm going to I wanted to say this that <laughs> Wow. That, you know, women, I mean, many a men has, you know, maybe encountered the woman who likes to groom them. Or in relationships, there's that point in your, your relationship where it's like, can I, can I pop that for you? Or are we not there yet? Right. You know, it's sort of a sign of where your relationship is. And for some people, we're never there. 
You're talking about so blackheads I, on the back. Oh, yeah, or wherever. That, that or women are obsessed with blackheads on a man's back. We're or totally about, groomers. Yeah. No, but about, go ahead, Emil. Or how about just, you know, you know someone's loyalty when they'll pick the crabs off your pubic hairs. All right. Come on. <laughs> this is, let me just tell you. Let me, oh, wait, I got to say something about crabs now. Go ahead. I got uh, you know, because of all the grooming that people have been doing uh, as a, I don't know what, like shaving everything off, pubic lice are almost endangered. I know. Is that a species we should save or should we let it go? We should ban waxing. That's that's it. Ban waxing. <laughs> Back to the bush. I was, uh, all right. This, see, now, Dr. Jennifer Verlin, Emil, mm. is a world-class journalist from NPR, <laughs> KRON. He spent I some, love him. I know. He spent a little time at the Harvard Lampoon. A little. A little time. <laughs> and he tries to be funny. He is funny. But he's a legitimate journalist, and yeah, and I'm a legitimate scientist, and and all right, it's true that pubic lice are declining in population rapidly because of grooming practices. And what is the and, and and the loss of those lice would mean what? I mean, that's just a species that might go extinct. So for the purists out there that want to save every species, uh, just as Emil said, you got to stop with the waxing and let them make a comeback. Do they, do they provide, is there a symbiotic relationship between humans and pubic lice? They're an ectoparasite. In fact, hair removal is, is very, very, has a long, deep history in humans. Even the Egyptians, they did sugaring. And they took off all hair as a way to control um, external uh, you know, ectoparasites like lice. Okay, I have to interrupt you at 7 o'clock. Okay. Can you, I just want you to hear this. This is all of New York City cheering for the nurses and the doctors. At 7 p.m. every night, people stick their heads out the window and cheer for the, the the EMTs, the emergency people, and so that's nice. Yes, it is. It's yeah. they're saving the city, and I I just been thinking about my life and what's going on in a two block radius, and the least paid are the most essential. If you go into an emergency room, look for the least paid person. And that's the person who's keeping you alive. It's not the doctor. It's not the hospital administrator. It's the nurse and the janitor who's cleaning up your mess and maintaining your pride. So the people who uh, deliver your food, they are the most essential. And I don't think we're going to change. I think they're going to turn this economy back on and we're going to be worse than ever as a nation. That's I've had time to think. So let's talk about I'm a a pessimistic pig, I guess. Would that be can we change? I don't know. We'll discuss this tonight at the Zoom meeting. Emil, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is going to be a huge hit tonight at the Zoom meeting. I I think she will. I think she will. And as long as you don't cross any lines in terms of harming any animal's feelings about 
being beautiful or non-beautiful. Well, you'll be the you're representing PETA tonight. You're going to be there. Uh, uh, um, I. I Possibly, possibly, yes, I will try. You disappeared during the last Fridays, you disappeared. All right, I'll try to. I I did ask a question about FDR, though. Right, and then I brought up the Bataan Death March, and you were gone. I was was gone, yes. I I told you I had to leave like in 20 minutes, but I will try to be there Friday, because, you know, what am I? Friday night, we're pretending this Friday. Friday night. I, you know, I do want to talk about what you were just saying to link to the nurses because I did talk to a Filipino nurse on my own podcast, Emil Muck's Takeout. There, and, and I got some sad news about the nurse. He worked at Elmhurst, Elmhurst in Queens mm-hmm. and he contracted the virus. So How is he? Well, I think he's in good spirits. He's been, you know, Closing himself up in his home in his closet with onions and garlic, trying to you know, do Filipino herbal. Seriously, onion. seriously, yeah. And it's it's he's youngish, so he's he can uh, you know uh, ward off the virus to a point. But you know the the stories he told me on the podcast were really uh, all right. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, let me. I have some listener questions for Doctor Jennifer Vertolin. So. Uh, and then I'll, and I'll, I'll leave the party to, to you guys to okay. finish. This one comes to us regarding the man in China who caught the coronavirus from a bat. How precisely did he catch it? Did he get attacked by the bat? Did he eat the bat? Okay. So first of all, um, there's no evidence that somebody caught this from a bat. What we know is that from genetic sequencing, there is a similarity. It's about 80%, I think, to a uh, fruit bat uh, coronavirus. And so scientists have still been trying to figure this out. And we're not even sure that it's a bat. We just have some molecular evidence to suggest a likelihood that it might have come from a bat. Uh, and then it went through some intermediary because there's another 20% that that they're, they're not sure of. Some hypotheses have been pangolin, of the Malaysian pangolin in particular, because it's a highly trafficked, um, you know, horrifically trafficked animal. And uh, there's some matching in the genetic sequence there. And what's interesting is that the spike protein might have come from that intermediary host and combined with, uh, with the, the coronavirus to create uh, SARS-CoV-2, or SARS-CoV-2, and and so, you know, typically what happens is when, uh, you know, animals, uh, when humans enter into or, or um, you know, are, are, you know, kind of assaulting wildlife in a number of different ways, we're coming into contact with, with new, uh, um, you know, diseases, new, uh, that's how Ebola, I, I think we talked about Ebola last week. It came from the bushmeat trade, um, essentially because there's this close proximity of people to wildlife and bats don't have really any more diseases than any other species. It's just that there's a huge group. So there are so many bats uh, for a mammal. It's one of the, it is the most diverse group of mammals and and so, and then they're very old. So when you've been around a long time and you have a lot of different species, just by probability, you're going to have, uh, you know, a, you're going to carry a lot of viruses and they don't necessarily get sick because they've co-evolved. They've lived with these viruses 
over time. So, you know, as far as uh, how it made the jump and, and, and when and what it combined with, we're still investigating that. It's still an open question. Well, this is the second question speaks to this. Uh, it, uh, he writes, there are so many conflicting reports about COVID-19 not infecting our pets if the owner is infected. If we are to believe that animals cannot catch the virus from humans and vice versa, well, that's not true. We, we're discovering that they yeah, can't. that's not true. Right. They can. Okay. Cats can. Well, so, so there's some evidence that some cats, including the big cats, so at the Bronx Zoo, we know that four lions and two tigers tested positive. Uh, one tiger had a cough, which I think is probably what led them to, but they all caught it from an asymptomatic keeper. Okay. Uh, they didn't catch it, just catch it. And, and so there's that close proximity, the feeding of, right, uh, the cleaning of the, the, the enclosure, the night houses. Uh, there's, there, you're, you're really invasive in their space. And so, uh, I want to know who's brave enough to tell a tiger to cough into his elbow. (laughs) Well, then you had the one cat in Belgium that uh, tested positive and was exhibiting signs. So cats in general are more sensitive to coronaviruses than dogs. That does not mean, and the same thing happened with SARS-1, is that cats also, some cats got mildly sick. Um, So dogs are not sensitive. Pigs aren't. uh, Ferrets are. Ducks are not. So they've tested it's a whole separate question about testing animals by trying to deliberately infect them. Um, you know, and there's, there's sort of been a free for all with animal testing right now, mm-hmm. uh, which I think Emil could speak more to than, than I can about what we, what we think about that. So, you know, in general, uh, the issue with pets, aside from yes, cats can potentially catch it from their owners. Uh, but there's no evidence that pets will make people sick. That is the key so that you don't need to abandon your pet and you don't need to poison your pet. You don't need to do anything except if you're ill, they recommend you staying, uh, limiting your contact with your pet. And then pets act as a surface. So if you are sick or you are asymptomatic like that keeper was and you're all over your dog and then you take your dog out and somebody else gets all over your dog it's not because their your dog is sick and going to make them sick, but it's no different than if you uh, took a, a, and sneezed on a box of tissues and then they touched the box of tissues and blew their nose. It's a mm-hmm. surface transfer that's a bigger issue when it comes to you being sick. So, now, so I did raccoons, make a video about this raccoons and, and are, people can watch that. Raccoons already wear masks, so they you don't have to wear Anything? Okay. <laughs> but don't put a mask on your pet. They don't need them. <laughs> there you go. Don't raccoons don't need... wear masks? They're like Zorro masks, though. Oh, Those aren't the, it's, you know, so if you go out and you see people wearing a mask around their eyes while their mouth and their nose is exposed, that would be the wrong way to wear a mask. Okay. Last yeah. question, so. and maybe Emil can speak to this. Why is it that a tiger in the Bronx Zoo was tested for the coronavirus when there are thousands of New Yorkers and millions of Americans who cannot get tested is it because tigers are an endangered species or did Nadia the tiger benefit from wealthy underwriters and endowment groups who keep the bronx zoo up and running can i can i answer this because i actually know the answer to this yes it's not the same test so the tiger didn't get a human test 
Uh, and so, so, uh, the tests that are being used to test animals are, are not the same tests that we're needing. So the tire didn't steal a test from anybody. Now, uh, some other person might have stolen a test because of status or money, uh, and, and being, getting favorable treatment in that way, but not the tiger. It's a totally different test. Rihanna, yeah. Rihanna set, sent a ventilator to her father. Her father has COVID-19. She sent a ventilator. To her father. Well, who, who's going to put him on the ventilator? You need a respiratory th- specialist for that. <sighs> I don't know. But, Emil, you were going to say something about the tiger in the chat. I, I think only someone the likes of a Siegfried and Roy could have intubated or could have stuck a swab down a tiger for a human test and pull it out. Right. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Jennifer Verlin. <laughs> Dr. Jennifer Verlin will be at our very special town hall meeting tonight and bring your pets and we're going to have a beauty pageant we're going to pick the cutest pet and we'll have a representative from PETA making sure that no animals are harmed physically I think emotionally we might they might walk away with eating disorders I will criticize your pet and then at the end of the meeting, we're going to do a love connection. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is going to find two people. They're going to fall in love based on animal courtship and mating that she has studied. She's the author of two books, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. We're going to learn that tonight on Zoom. And Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. Subscribe to Wild Connection TV and watch Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. I'm looking at your channel right now and I'm seeing cute little dogs and cats. Follow Dr. Jennifer Verdelin over on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. And go to JenniferVerdelin.com and subscribe to her newsletter can't wait to see you tonight. If you would like an invitation to our Zoom meeting, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the office hours button, sign up, and uh, you might fall in love, and or your pet might have uh, better self-esteem if he or she wins a beauty pageant. Any pet is welcome, except a human. <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Thank you, Emil. Uh, it was fun. Well, nice we're going to save the pubic lice. We're going to yes, save the pubic lice. That is the new lice. crusade. I mean, we got we to gotta get on it. It was great to meet you, and, and thanks for having me. Thank you. Save the pubic okay. lice. That's a good T-shirt. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. I got to go. Okay. Emil Guillermo is joining us. What are you holding up there? the what? Free the animals. An animales, yes. It's yes. a Peter T. I'm in my closet. You know, this is where all the Filipinos are in a closet. Okay. And, uh, especially not, not just now, but, but, uh, free the animals. Free the animals. Host of the PETA podcast. Last Friday's Zoom meeting. What did you think? Potential for? I thought, I thought the Friday Zoom meeting office hours were great. Uh, it was unfortunate that I had something else that planned for, I don't know how long you went. Is it like a seven hour thing? Like your, like your podcast? How dare you? I kept it very short. It was only six hours. No, I, I got a note, cut it off after 90 minutes and I did. Uh, I'm the straggler and I have yep. to learn. I think what I'm going to do, Liam won't be participating in this. 
He's mm-hmm. not talking to me. I don't know what happened. He uh, may not. Be, I don't think he's self. What's it called? Sheltering in place. Uh, sheltering in place. I don't he's, think he's in California. Is that it? I'm sorry. He's in Maine. Right? He's, uh, no. No, he shelters in place in Los Angeles. You're thinking of Shelter Island in Maine. Oh, <laughs> I thought I saw him once where he was in Maine. Anyway, all right. So, uh, so yeah, I I don't know why. He, well, actually, I know why you. The friendships you have long periods of time when you don't talk to each other, and then and then you come back and it's like it's great again. Oh, you and me, you're talking about. <laughs> so well, you know, we, I guess, yeah. That's you know, the, the, here's the thing that they didn't teach you at the Harvard Lampoon. <laughs> comedians, mm-hmm. comedians mm-hmm. have friendships that last decades. However, you pick it up where you last left it off. In other words, I could run into a comedian who I haven't mm-hmm. seen in 15 years mm-hmm. and we just start talking and they wouldn't say, how come I don't hear from you? You never call, you never write because I'm a comedy guy and I'm traveling and I'm crazy and I'm busy. And it's a different, it's not a filial type of thing. We're it's, dead inside. Comedians are dead company. inside. We're what? It's a different kind of fraternity. I, right. No, I, I get it. Like, do you remember the conversation we had at Garvin's and the, where they, they stored all the toilet paper? Was I wearing my clown suit then? <laughs> no, you weren't. But we had a conversation in the Garvin supply room right. before you went on for some reason. I, I, I don't remember word for word, but, you know, I, this, I think this is the first time I brought it up in about 20 years or 30 years. Did, were you there when the woman had the epileptic seizure in the middle of my act? At no, I, I, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. And, and the, they made her pay. I, I'm not making this up. She was being wheeled out. It was a massive epileptic seizure. They had, oh. they had a call, an ambulance. And you know how the show must go on, but you, you can't do it. I had to stop. I go, well, this is too much. Uh, and so I went off stage and. They handed her the bill in the stretcher. And I thought, wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, tell me about the PETA podcast. Who uh, who, is, who are your guests this week? Uh, the the guest on the PETA podcast is Brittany Pete, who is, um, she's the head of CALE, C-A-L-E, the Captured Animal uh, Legal uh God, uh, I forget what the E stands Now you know how I feel when I have to figure out what ALDEF stands for. I I know. Okay. So she's the head of Kale, and she had the cameo in Tiger King. She she actually testified for the defense. She's the only witness that the the defense called. And I asked her about it on the podcast. She says, well, here I am. I'm fighting for the animals. I'm fighting Joe Exotic. I am... The witness, the only witness the defense called, it kind of shows you how weak the defense's case is. And I, I don't know. Uh, wait a second. You're talking about Joe Exotic being put on yeah. trial for conspiring for to kill Carol Baskin. Uh, right. right. And, and she was thing. saying that Carol Baskin deserved to be killed? No, but uh, for some reason, Joe Exotic's defense attorneys called the PETA attorney to testify. And I said, were you testifying on his behalf? She said, no, I, I did. I told the truth. She says, and she says she told the truth, the best story for the animals. 
It wasn't in defense of Joe Exotic, but like she said, the fact that they called a PETA attorney to be the only witness for Joe Exotic says just how weak the uh, Joe Exotic case was. But so, so I got into trouble. I got some people complained. I said something, and I and I thought about it, and I stand by it. I think the Tiger King is cowardice. It has no point of view, and it does a disservice. Oh, has a point of view. It 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 says that the abuse of animals is complicated. the the The, the story is that there are more tigers in captivity than in the wild. We have. A nation of depraved billionaires and rednecks who are doing unnatural things with animals. They're sick, disgusting, and it has to stop. And this documentary on Netflix presents all sides of the story and everyone's to blame and it's complicated. And look how crazy Joe Baskin is, uh, uh, Carol Baskin is, and Joe Exotic is. Look how insane these. It's irrelevant to the abuse that's going on. It's like covering the Michael Jackson molestation as they did in Never, uh, finding, uh, quitting, leaving Neverland and exploring the, the complexity of the relationship with Michael Jackson when he was abusing these kids. That's the story. Michael Jackson is a child molester. Look, look, David, I, I do agree with you. I do, but I, I say it differently. I mean, I had Brittany on the, 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 the podcast this week because I felt the abuse of the tigers was lost. That's sort of the thing that is so should be at the forefront. But what's at the forefront is the Joe Exotic Carol Baskin, um, polygamy, a gay polygamist. Right. And, and, and just the, the, the train wreck of that relationship. And of course, that's just storytelling, right? No, that's, it's not just storytelling. It's that's cowardice. Narrative. No, 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 no. It's, it's cowardice because Netflix doesn't want to alienate their viewers. So they present all the sides of this story as opposed to Blackfish, which yeah. was very clear about SeaWorld, wasn't it? Right, it was. That was very clear. Uh, different people did the uh, did the documentary, the Blackfish uh, documentary. I think that was part of a CNN thing. Um, are there? I know, mean, I could do a documentary about Donald Trump, right, and include the insanity of Joe Biden, and bring up the credible rape allegations against him. But that's not the story. There are many. Stories I could tell, but the real story is that Donald Trump is the the ultimate danger to this planet. Oh, inept. Yeah. Look, I I don't think you can blame Netflix directly. I think this is uh, the director of the documentary, the artiste who who this was his vision. The vision was to include the animals a little bit. I mean, Peter's portion. In, in the, in the documentary was very minimal. You know, they showed Brittany coming on briefly, but the fact is Brittany has been working on this for 10 years, 10, 10 years. And, and I asked her one of the first questions I asked her on the podcast was like, God, it must be something that, that this, you, you must feel at times that, uh, you know, uphill battle 
trying to stop roadside zoos. And then suddenly here's this documentary and everyone's talking about the Tiger King. And she says, yes, but what are they talking about? They're talking about, oh, Carol's a freak and Joe is a hero, Joe for president. They're talking about all the wrong things. And they're not talking about, well, she defends Carol Baskin on the podcast because Carol Baskin, as freaky as she is, in some respects, no law against the kind of kookiness that she displays, but she also does tremendous things on behalf of the tigers, and that gets lost. And so, well, she doesn't. Pay, she doesn't pay her employees. Well, I don't know about that. I, I know it's that a bit of a cult. I don't think it's a cult. I I think that her, her true. Um, and it looked you know, like it looked like that animal. It, lo- it looked like her. Tigers weren't any better off than Joe Exotics. I think that was a misrepresentation of the the parks and the, the sanctuaries that she has. It, but you got to remember that if she wasn't so good at what she did, Joe Exotic wouldn't have put out a hit on on her twice, right? I mean, that's the whole reason for the. I mean, unfortunately, that's what got Joe Exotic um, in trouble. Right or with the law, or that that's the the impetus to get him in a court. But there were also also those two hundred uh, animal welfare uh, charges. And if you think about the animal welfare charges, and we go over them in the podcast, not insignificant. And a lot of it is because the USDA does not enforce the existing laws. So people like like Joe Exotic and the others, they I mean the other guys. Uh, Antle and uh, the other his his crony, they do their thing. They get away with stuff because the USDA does not take the uh, you know the the wildlife laws seriously. Right. So there's a there's a way that we can make those laws stronger. There's a way that there can be something positive that comes out of uh, this Joe Exotic uh, nonsense. Besides the fact that Joe Exotic you know, people want Joe Exotic to run for president. We're discussing most people are trying to decide whether or not Joe Exotic is guilty, whether or not he should be released, and whether or not Carol Baskin killed her first husband. They're not talking about the plight of tigers. So Netflix did a disservice to the animal rights movement. Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Brittany, I, I talked, I asked Brittany about that, and she said, in many ways, she's having conversations now like she's never had in the last 10 years. And I've talked to her a number, numerous times on the podcast about the roadside, the roadside uh, attractions, the, the roadside zoos. When you really understand what's going on there and how Joe Exotic for years got away with breeding uh, the the cubs, and these cubs only have a lifespan of like four to six months, and then after they they go from cubdom to adult uh, adult tigers, they most of them kill the cubs once they get to like the four month stage because then they're no longer petting zoo uh, petty petting zoo friendly, and uh, this is why you get. The, uh, enormous population in America. I guess it would be like, uh, Tiger, Tigris Americanus, right? right? Which is really BS because you can, this is a kind of like a weird subspecies that, that like a Dr. Frankenstein is developing. It's like if you had, I mean, they call them big cats for a reason because they are big domesticated cats. They're not wild. Where do you put these cats? You know, you, you don't, you don't just send them out and say like, like the feral cats because they're even worse than the feral cats. They are tigers. They are right? tigers. And, 
And so that's why that's why people like Carol Baskin are important because okay. who saves these people? The Carol Baskins of the world. And okay. they, she's unfairly maligned. You just said who saves these people. Oh, who saves these cats? You just revealed how deep into PETA you really are. <laughs> no. I'll see you tonight. Hey, 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 you gotta, yeah, tonight, tonight. Yeah, I, we I, gotta wrap it up. I, 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 I'm just, today has been a, uh, Let me just tell you something though. One of the things about the, uh, you, you talked about the nurses and I interviewed on my other podcast, Emil Amok's Takeout. I talked to a Filipino nurse and the Filipino nurse, it represents maybe, uh, 50% of all foreign nurses are Filipino. Yes. Yes. Most of, most of the nurses that you'll find, in in yeah. uh, in like Elmhurst, this guy works at Elmhurst, mm-hmm. and he was talking about uh, how at the very first days they didn't know what was going on. So many code blues, and and they were going out going on without PPE, and yet you know who there are some nurses who protested. You didn't see Filipino nurses going on CNN. You know why? Right. Because the Filipino nurses aren't here to to whine and moan they're here to save people and here's the most touching thing about this guy i talked to he said emil um you know my thing is patients i we bring them in we intubate and then they die they just die and he says it hurts my self-esteem because i am here to save and comfort people and when i can't save and comfort people what do i get i you know my whole life is like nothing because these people are dying on my shift. It's a matter right. of pride with these Filipino nurses. Right. And, and he's on the front lines with no PPE. And I, I talked to him yesterday. He's got the virus. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Uh, in the New York Times yesterday, they talked about the demand for registered nurses here in the States. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics says we're going to need about 3.4 million registered nurses by 2026 that's before covid-19 right right and uh we we're only uh licensing about 170,000 new nurses each year wow. there are h1b visas for doctors but not for nurses there are no guest worker or non-immigrant visa categories for nurses they come to the United States uh, with a green card or a legal permanent residency, but it takes years for that process to be completed, and they are at the mercy of the INS and the doctors, and they can get deported at any time. And uh, well, this guy went through that process; he became a citizen, and he's still aware of why he came to America. This was his American dream, right? And so his American dream was to come and serve and comfort the sick. Mm-hmm. And when he sees all of them die, right? I mean, the right. hospitals are less crazy now than they were four weeks ago. But still, the death rates are climbing. And the fact that he can't do anything about it, he, uh, you know, crushes him. And then now to find out he has the virus, um, Emil Amuck's Takeout, my podcast, you can find it on Apple. By the way, the doctors treating you here in the United States, we have a shortage of doctors. We have a shortage of everything. Yeah, but we have a shortage of medical schools and it's, it's, it's like diamonds. They create a shortage of diamonds so they can charge more. There is a shortage of doctors here in the United States. As a result, 25% of all doctors in the United States are born someplace else. 
They are mm-hmm. not citizens. That means they are forbidden from changing employers, moving to another state. They are stuck in jobs. Isn't that convenient for no. our healthcare system to bring in doctors who aren't citizens and they're terrified of losing their job and being sent back to their country of origin and they're forbidden from leaving the state where they're right. employed and they can't switch jobs. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's incredible. You know, like this touches my family in a lot of different ways. Family in the, I have, I have a, my son-in-law is in the Navy and he was undocumented. And by, by going to the Navy, got his citizenship. He's also a corpsman. Yeah. So he's exposed. I got, I got to wrap it up to be continued next week. I'll see you tonight at the Zoom meeting. Thank you, Emil. Thank you, dude. Be well. I'll see you tonight. Thank you. Well, it's the end of the week, possibly the world, and that can only mean one thing. Listener questions with Liam McEnany. Was that the improper response? I don't know. Yeah, we're doing this from Liberty University, Liam. So I should mention that's not Liam. We we were trying. You know what? I cannot carry on the charade there's a problem but no no sit down sit down laura sit down laura i cannot perpetuate laura sit down laura it's laura please welcome laura house brian just came in no i don't want to i don't want to talk to brian i i have to explain to my listeners laura that's laura house hi laura hello Hi, hi you look good I, I, you know what? I feel better than ever. Yeah, sheltering in place becomes you. Listen, there's there's a problem with Liam McEnany. We did a town hall Friday night, and I can't get him to return my calls. I love you, Liam. If you're listening, I love you. The door is always open. Please come back. I don't know what I did or what I said during the town hall on Zoom Friday night. That you no longer want to talk to me. I've left five messages, Liam. If we it ever... could be anything. You know, people are really sensitive these days. Yeah. Anyway, Laura, how are you? I'm good. I'm sick of being at home. Mm-hmm. How's Brian, your your boyfriend? What? He's. Uh, I'm so sick of him. Really. I'm tired of it. I. I want to look at somebody else's face. Mm. I understand. He is a performer. He plays with Oingo Boingo, and he plays a brilliant trumpet. He travels. Yeah, technically, Oingo Boingo, former members, yeah. Yeah, and travels all over the world, but now he has to stay home. So is it hard for you? How do you make him happy? He must miss being He's miserable. He's making me miserable. Yeah. I really realized how how miserable he is it's it's so it's so bad I can't even I can't even describe it okay well can I speak to Brian maybe I can straighten him out is he there 
Are you here, Brian? Yeah, how's it? How's it? Oh, you're doing another podcast? All she does is podcasts. All day long, podcasts. Hey, somebody has to bring in the... No one pays you to do this. <laughs> oh. You... <laughs> I'm just walking around with my trumpet. Well, Brian, would you put... You know, Brian, it, I, I, I feel ashamed. It's such a... Insult yes, to ask you, but could you play something for us? Because I, you know, yeah. in the, we have heard you giving lessons in I the mean, background. Would you play something for us, Brian? So much noise in the house that at least you could entertain somebody outside of the house for a change. <laughs> I don't know that we're supposed to play during a pandemic. <laughs> play something. I, no better reason. Okay, Brian, what are you going to play? Aww. I fucking hate that song. I hate that song. I know where you're going, and I hate it. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Laura? You do this every day. I hear this every day. Laura? That's right. World, world-class jazz Non-stop. Right here. Every day, the same thing. You're emptying your spit. On can my you, carpet. Can you play Salt Peanuts? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, that's one of my favorites. Is that from by Dizzy Gillespie? Dizzy Gillespie? Is that, that, that is not, Even I know that's not how that goes. You know, Laura, you are... A man needs, especially now when he's not out there working... I you more supportive of my... Yeah, class. this is emasculating, Laura. He needs yeah. your... He, he needs your I never support. Knew your feelings. I, you've said you love me this whole time. Now I have the blues, and I need to play it a little oh, on my trumpet. Play, play some Charlie Parker, please. Do you, mm-hmm. Oh, do you know some Charlie Parker, Brian? Do you? You should play. Play some Chuck Mangione for us. Oh boy! Can you get clearance for that, though? I don't. Right. I don't know. Well, you know what, Brian? Thank you for for playing the trumpet for us, and uh, I I, I loved it. I uh, my eyes are welling up. And, and you know what? I am such a fan of Brian. Is irritating you? I I would love it if you could empty his spit valve into a vial and send it to me. Mm, make, I, make a necklace out of it. And I would make a oh, necklace out of his Yeah, like spit. a little charm. I what, don't... Uh, what's the most disgusting thing that ever came out of your spit valve, Brian? Well, you know... <laughs> is he asking you or me? <laughs> I'm asking Brian. Yeah, what's the most disgusting... A rat. Thing? One time a rat came out of there. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> That's not possible. I was look. It wasn't. It wasn't the nicest joint. I'll be honest. It wasn't the, it wasn't the coolest venue. But a, a rat, a baby rat, came oh. right out of my spit valve. Wow! Wow! A baby rat. A baby. They're yeah. All right, Laura. How'd you like? The, was that a good bit? I, I'm confused. I don't know which one is Brian. And which one is Laura now? I taught Laura how to play trumpet. Play a little something so everybody will... Okay, so this is Laura playing the trumpet. Now that's... Uh, soft penis, soft penis. Oh, God. 
penis, a penis. There's a latency problem, I think. How was that? Is That's that fit. Yeah. Laura sounds great. She oh really does. You have an amazing umber. She's been shedding. Yeah. <laughs> you too. You too. All right. Thank you, Brian. That was Brian. Laura's better half who plays with us. He's fantastic. Hi, Laura. That's a fun bit. That was fun. I was like, go pretend that you're me. And he was like, okay, give me your hat. (laughs) (laughs) There's not a lot of jazz musicians that are like, want to do a bit. (laughs) Uh, 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 The two things that come out of America are jazz and stand-up comedy. Did you know that? I guess that makes, yeah, that makes, yeah. Well, we probably... The improvisation. Yeah, we probably stole it from the African-Americans. That's what I'm guessing. Probably. Jazz and stand-up comedy probably comes to us from Africa. I'm being serious. Yeah, right? yeah I, I, I get it. All right, so uh, I my listeners know that Leah McEnany does the listener segment where we take your calls and we take your questions and... I have to keep the show moving. Liam is not talking to me, and I love him. So I don't I know. Love I love him. I don't know what happened. So he'll be back. He'll be back. Listener questions, questions from listeners. Okay. The, this first question comes to us. That, that's a beautiful theme song. Thank you. Thank you. Our first listener question comes to us from Yasser Ali. It's just so you know, there's a running gag that Yasser Ali has a brother named No Sir Ali. Okay? Fantastic. So you're going to have to play the role of Liam. Oh. Okay, so Yasser Ali. uh, And he says, these Chinese are, uh, are such... Oh, he's correcting a guest we had on Tuesday's show. I had said that Djibouti is uh, a on the the is a port town, and uh, <clears throat> I was corrected by a guest who said I was wrong, but he's saying that I was right. Hmm. I can't understand why Liam doesn't like to do listener questions anymore, Laura. Wow. What? <laughs> okay. Next question comes to us from the egghead professor from Texas. His zodiac sign is no exit. What information can I share about him? Bernie dropping out feels like getting dumped by a girlfriend. Hmm. How did you feel when Bernie dropped out? And now you answer this? Well, we'll answer it, but I, then I would say to Liam, how do you feel now that Bernie... I don't Ber- know how to be Liam. Well, Liam is a... Um, uh, Liam didn't like Bernie. Oh, really? Yeah. He said he would have voted for him, but not his first choice. Oh, really? I'm um, I'm the opposite. Do I need to pretend otherwise? <laughs> oh, Bernie with his ideas on how to help people. What a jerk. Mm-hmm. That's good. The that's, worst. That's kind of what Liam does. <laughs> yeah. Um. No, you tell what you have to. I don't. I know. All right, so I got to bring you up to speed here because you're filling in. You're from the temp agency. Listen, 
you're filling in for Liam until he comes back. He's on maternity leave. Mm. His question is, this is from uh, the Egghead Professor, between the jargon-laced barrage of speculation by the irritable immunologist and the ill-informed stock market advice from Liam McEnany, I'm is feeling... Is this an old Johnny Carson bit? <laughs> this is just... <laughs> the wording is amazing. Oh, we have a the irritable immunologist does our show. He is working on a cure for COVID-19. Oh, so perfect. He, that makes sense. He can't give us his real name. So he explains what COVID-19 is. On our I show. didn't see the first 18. <laughs> Who are you, Kellyanne Conway? <laughs> Can you believe she actually did that? <laughs> yes. And she did it as like a burn. Listen, th- you had 18 chances to get this right. <laughs> and she's like dropping mics. <laughs> and everybody's like, you've got to be kidding. Please be kidding. Do they have any self-reflection? Do, do, do you no. Think it, no, they don't, do they? They just go, do I have money? Good, I'm good. Right, right. That's the thing. It's insanity to assume that they're capable of shame or admitting that they're wrong. That The admitting wrong is, is, the, is the huge problem. Because mm-hmm. somebody was like, how can people still believe in Trump? And I was like, well, they'd have so much to look at if they changed course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, oh, I guess he... I guess he has been kind of a jerk. This whole like you, I don't even know how you could live with yourself if you suddenly was like, "Oh, this guy's bad." Right. We've been supporting him for three years. Anyway, all right. So, what are the questions? Okay, but this next. Well, let me finish the egghead professor's question. Uh, between the jargon-laced barrage of speculation by the irritable immunologist and the ill-informed stock market advice from Liam McEnany, I'm feeling a bit whipsawed. What are the chances we can mate the two of them with Dr. Jen, then use a time machine to interview Irritable Jr. and Liam II to actually get some information we can use? Love the show. Oh, wow. So that was like a lot of not loving the show and then signed love the show. No, he's saying that he loves Dr. Jennifer Vertolin because she's an animal behaviorist and a professor and he doesn't like Liam because Liam talks about inflation and the stock market. And this egghead professor from Texas doesn't think Liam knows enough about the stock market to opine on it. That's what he's saying. And he's critical of the irritable immunology. I don't think he likes the irritable immunology. That's what I'm saying. He's like critical, critical, love the show. He loves Dr. Jen. So... Do you know what we're doing Friday night on Zoom, by the way? I don't know. We're having a town hall. Oh. Invitation only. This is why Liam stopped talking to me. We did one Friday night at 9 o'clock. Right. Something happened, and I can't get him to return my calls. But Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is going to be our special guest, and we are going to have a animal beauty pageant. So everybody bring their pet to the Zoom meeting and we're going to interview your pet and then everybody's going to vote on who has the cutest pet. And if your pet wins the beauty pageant, you get a free download of Dr. Jennifer Vertolin's latest book. Do you have what it takes? Does your pet have what it, what's your dog's name? Lucy? Minnie. Minnie. She's, yeah, she does. She's beautiful. And she's a pit bull? 
No, she's a bulldog. Like that's any better? Yeah, and you, she's brindle, so she's like striped like a tiger. She, David, she rules. Okay, you you want to put your money where your mouth is? You want to enter her in a beauty pageant see if she can beat the other contestants? Probably. I just um, she's whenever I point the a camera at like a she's very camera shy. So she's she's not a cute dog. I think she feels, I think she's, she's secure in herself. And I think she feels like she doesn't have to prove it. All right. We'll see. And then we're also doing a love connection. We're going to, oh, using animal science. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin knows the mating techniques of animals. And we are going to find two lonely singles at our Zoom meeting. And we are going to make a love connection. And then we're going to put we're going to put them in a breakout room where they have to answer those thirty six questions to fall in love. You know about this? No. There are thirty. There are thirty six questions that if two strangers answer these thirty six questions honestly, oh, and then stare into each other's eyes for four minutes. They are instantly in love, and we're going to do that via Zoom. We're going to do that privately. We're going to put them in a breakout room for, you know, 10 minutes and then come back to them and see if they're in love. Okay. And then I'm going to take, I'm going to invite, they're going to go on an all-expense paid staycation. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) They're going to go on a, a Zoom staycation together. And next week, we're going to find out if they're still in love. All right. So if you're lonely and you'd like to meet somebody, but, you know, you want it on your terms and you're not too keen on the touching and the feeling. Maybe maybe I'll get on it and then also Brian will get on it and then we'll match. And then it's like that pina colada song. Yeah. Rupert Holmes. (laughs) Did he write did he write the uh, Johnny Depp movie? The bar, the barber who kills. What, what's that? I'm getting zoom bombed here. Who's here? I don't know. Uh, Jim Earl is coming in here. Hang on. Let's say hello to Jim Earl. I don't understand how Jim Earl. <laughs> Why? How did you? This is a private meeting. I'm on with Laura House, Jim. I have to un. Let me unmute him. Hang on. Hang on. Jim, uh, I lost him. Uh oh. He uh, he was coming I, on I'm, with a puppet. I think he'll be. Am back. I disappointing you so much with questions? No, I don't know how people. I, this is a private Jim meeting, Earl. and we're being people have been crashing my Zoom meetings. Okay. This comes to us from a listener in South Africa, Rodney Uliate. And he says, Dear David, the case for withholding your vote from Joe Biden, Boyden isn't an accelerationist case. The case for withholding your vote from Joe Biden is that a vote for Joe Biden would itself be accelerationist. We've talked about accelerationism on this show, so with Dr. Ben Burgess. I feel like for every um, 
viewer question, I have to read a book. Mm-hmm. And look, I'll start with this book. I think a book would be shorter than Rodney's question. <laughs> If, also, was it a question? He was just correcting you. Yes. Like, that's, that's not the right argument. This is the right argument. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay. So this instead of listener questions, this should be listener insults. <laughs> this is, well, it's, I mean, it's listener input for sure. But, yeah, he's t- telling you you're wrong. But you agree on the same point, right? Both are saying, hey, don't vote for Biden, that's a problem. But he's like, no, no, your reason for not doing it is different than my reason for not doing it. I'm not sure because I'm not quite sure what accelerationism means. Oh, you're not? I talk about it all the time on this show, but I'm not. (laughs) Does it mean accelerating to, like, the bad place, like to the, the fall of the empire? Yes. Yes. If you believe, as I do, that Trump is a symptom of America's malaise, not the cause, that, in short, he's the product and the outcome of decades of neoliberal policies, the thing to ask yourself is this. What would another half-decade or more of neoliberalism bring us? It seems as likely as not that it would culminate in something even worse than Trump. Before voting for for Biden, or encouraging your listeners to do so, or shaming those who decline to do so, you need to address this. It seems fundamental. Love the show. Rodney Uliate. Uliate. Thank you, Rodney. Oh. And that comes to us from South Africa. Uh, yeah. I can't, believe, I can't believe you have fans anywhere, much less Africa, on other continents. It's interesting. <laughs> And he really is, because you can tell by the suffix on the email that he's from South Africa. So, all right. Richard is a leader. You're not answering the questions, you just read them. Yeah, I can't address that. I I have a problem voting for Joe Biden, but I think I'm going to have to because I'm a coward. Well, what I find interesting, because I'm seeing this argument a lot, um, that it's... So there's a point of view that's like, oh, the Republican agenda is the problem. And then from the what I'm hearing from, like, um, Bernie uh, supporters of which, uh, well, I am one. And then also I am good friends with very intense ones. So there's a faction of the they're like the real problem is the the neo libs which uh, I'm afraid I am one, but they're saying, uh, but so it's not just like the Republicans are the problem. It's the neo-libs. Is that because they're not giving a better option? They're like too in bed with corporations the same way Republicans are. Yeah. Is that like the heart of that argument? That, yeah, like, I think so. That's the yeah. real problem. Yeah. Like yeah. they're basically saying we care about the workers and then they don't do any policy that actually shows that. Right. They, they right. love the same. Right. Right. So. Yeah, that's a tough one because it's that because there's the other there's that weird thing of like there's the system we exist in mm-hmm. and then that's what it is. And then there's also the argument that is beautiful of, well, then you change the system or if you push hard enough, this all adjusts. What are you doing over there? Taxes? I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm going through listener questions. I'm only good at uh, making fun of things, not really addressing. No, I I, I hate Biden. I 
I hate Joe Biden. I think there are credible rape accusations against him. I think he stands for nothing other than himself and his family has gotten rich. I also think he's bad luck. I think the guy just has bad luck. Uh, and I'm mad at Obama. We're discovering more and yeah. more that Obama put the thumb on the scale and took it away from Bernie. That Obama was working the phones for Joe Biden. Joe Biden didn't earn the nomination. Obama yeah. earned his nomination. Yeah. Uh, he yeah, should. I agree. I, I, I see what I come across a lot of the, the idea on, um, the, the, the Biden, basically people that are saying, well, just shut up and vote for Biden. That I feel like I'm hearing such a great argument from Bernie people that are like, you know what you could do instead of yell at people is get on the phones and call people who are undecided and convince, like, convince us of his amazing policies and not just yell at people, just vote for him. This other guy's worse. You yeah. know, like, like, yeah, it's a really, um, yeah, it's He's disturbing. despicable. Joe Biden is a despicable, pathological liar. His first fundraiser was held at a corporate lawyer's penthouse in Philadelphia. This corporate lawyer has made his bones as a union buster. Mm. Okay. And now Joe Biden doesn't have any money and he's doing fundraisers with top donors. And this week he's hosting a virtual fundraiser and it's being run by Joe Chiani, who's the chairman of Massimo. It's a medical device company. So, you know, he's in bed with the pharmaceutical lobbyists, mm -hmm. the hospitals, the medical device manufacturers. He is not going to give us Medicare for all. He's not going to bring down prescription drug prices, no matter what he promises. Who should be his running mate? He, do you hear that in the background, the sirens? Mm -hmm. I'm in Manhattan. Those sirens, they don't stop. No matter how many times I've called to complain. They don't stop. Could you turn down the volume I on the sirens, please? I'm, We're trying to sleep. I'm trying to do my patriotic duty and shelter in place. We're trying to watch old movies here. As, as we were told to do, and instead, <laughs> I'm two blocks away from this hospital all night with the sirens. I have said this the whole time that you've been affected the worst. Thank you. Thank you. You're they're, welcome. They're showboating. Hey, yeah, look at me. Uh, I'm, yeah, saving, I'm saving yeah, lives. People. Yeah, you're better than us. We get it. Yeah. Well, as I said to Jeff Ross on today's show, at 7 o'clock every night, New York City applauds the doctors and the nurses. Now, you're a comic, right? Yes. You don't want applause. You want laughs, right? Well, not from a doctor. I'm saying if, if, if these doctors and nurses were doing their job, we'd be giving them laughs. You applaud when, when something, you kind of go, okay, that's, I appreciate the effort, so I'm going to applaud you. Oh, that a laugh is further? I don't know. I love the applause. I'm not, I, I have to have a strong disagreement with you. When you're performing and you get... I don't really have anything to disagree with. I, the applause is cool. To me, laughs 
to me, the applause is beyond the laugh. Like, it's like, oh, that's funny. Laugh, laugh, laugh. And then when people are like, oh, that's so funny. A laugh doesn't even cover it. You start applauding. No, people applaud because they don't think it's funny, but they want to give you a trophy for showing up. Oh, I never even understood that until just now. Do you ever go down there and take credit? Like, are there videos of people filming themselves when the applause starts and just... (laughs) I hold the applause sign, actually. (laughs) I have one of my old applause signs from late night television that I hold up. (laughs) Nice. I do the warm-up. For the workers. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. The, the doctors doctor. are going to be out here shortly. Let's, uh, mm-hmm. by the way, Boris Johnson is here. Oh. <laughs> He's charming. This is why comedy clubs won't be opening for a while. Oh. Oh, yeah. Laughs must spread it fast. That's why they should book me. <laughs> You're the safest comic. You're the safest pandemic comic. The <laughs> germs flying here. All you have to do is clap. Bring your washed hands. He'll make you clap. He's a clap a minute. He's a clap riot. David Feldman. No? I like it. Okay. So Biden has promised to choose a woman to be his running mate. That's such a weird thing to dangle out there. Because I was also seeing on... Here's here's what hit me with that. was So I was seeing that on Twitter. And, like, somebody, like... I guess Elizabeth Warren was asked on, on Maddow, you know, would you say yes? And she's like, yes, I would say yes. And then somebody... Then the next, you know, as I go down the news feed, oh, but what if it's this woman? And then what if it's that woman? And, like... As a woman to exist right now, the idea that it, to frame it like women are fighting over a guy is like mm-hmm. the most like a hundred years back in time thing you could possibly do of like, like it's when they just name a woman, like just name her, like just go, oh, it's this person and she's a woman and we can have that conversation. But right. to be like, I'm picking a woman. Who's it going to be? And now we're fight. Now it looks like women are fighting to yeah. over a stupid guy. So you're saying they should wrestle in jello to determine. No, no, I'm saying. Is that what I'm you're saying? saying? No, no, I'm saying. You're saying that Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris should wrestle in jello and the winner gets to be the vice president. That's an it's interesting so, idea, Laura. I wouldn't no, say that because I'm a man. That's not what I'm David. No. You're saying a wet T-shirt contest between David, Elizabeth no. Warren and Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan should determine. Who- you just put women in this bizarre thing to be like, here's what I could do for Joe Biden. And it's just like, ugh. How about a beauty pageant to be Joe Biden's vice president? We have a good old-fashioned Miss America pageant. One of these contestants will be. So, like, Warren is, like, juggling. Yeah. <laughs> have this fun. Well, now you've sold me on it, David. He promised us a woman. Why not bring back a beauty pageant? Yeah. Well, also, what if Trump hosted that beauty pageant? Since he owns a beauty pageant. That's a great idea. And then that's called reaching across the aisle. Yes. Well, he would reach across the aisle and grab something that... (laughs) That's called working together. Yes. So if you had to choose, if you were Joe Biden, would you pick Elizabeth Warren... Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, 
or Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan or Stacey Abrams of Georgia? I think Stacey Abrams is is a good move. Um, what about Bernie and pumps? What? Bernie and pumps. Suppose Bernie agreed to wear pumps. <laughs> what if Bernie bosom buddied <laughs> and was like, I'm Bernadette. <laughs> the whole country doesn't notice. <laughs> I don't care what you say. This is my... This is we my just see Bernie and... Yeah, the opening credits of he's he's yeah. sneaking in to he's putting on his wig because someone's at the door. We should be right. Um, we should. But be as right. a whole country, he goes, "It's Bernadette Sanders out of Vermont." <laughs> like we've never even heard of this person. Like no one questions because <laughs> he just takes off his glasses and puts on a wig. <laughs> and, he just, <laughs> and in the movie, just nobody. <laughs> Everybody goes, wow, she's amazing. She has so many interesting ideas. Yeah, I like that idea. I don't know. I, I, is it weird to like Elizabeth Warren? I, sure. Here's, here's why I don't like politics, David, because I'll I'll be like, I, I went to college and I, I'm of a, a fair intelligence, and there's always so much more to know with politics. The same way, like, I grew up, like, oh, Thanksgiving is good. And then you learn, like, oh, God, <laughs> this is terrible. Like, it's like, oh, is Obama was great, right? Oh, no, this information is a nightmare. And then, so I find it hard. So I'm like, I like Elizabeth Warren. And then I'm, I'm always afraid of, like, what is, what bad thing now? Like, I just find all politics so I don't know how you do it. Well, Tom Hayden, I, I find it also so frustrating. I interviewed Tom Hayden. Yeah, and uh, he wrote the Port Huron statement. Great, great man. And he said to me, "That's what they want you to do. They want you to just be worn down and say, ah, politics, and you stop paying attention, and then they steal." Everything from you. All right. This next question comes to us from Richard. He's a Leo. You think it's weird that I have a listener in South Africa? You ready for this? How weird that you have a listener as a Leo. This listener is from Nashville, Tennessee. I understand it. I understand a South African listening to this show, but somebody from Nashville. All right. I just couldn't believe you had such a wide reach. All right, so should we play country music while we listen to this question? Or sleep with your brother. That's going to take some more scheduling. Oh, okay. Mr. Feldman, I've heard you mention the subject of guns in passing, once when joking that you are sponsored by a gun manufacturer and that you brandish the gun during your stand-up show, which is funny. I have not heard an in-depth discussion of guns, although you may have done so in the past. I am curious to get your take on the subject. What does he think you haven't talked about? Your podcasts are like nine hours long. He he thinks you haven't talked about guns? He is a member of the Socialist Rifle Association. They have 4,500 members nationally. Okay. And and I, I believe in the Socialist Rifle Association, a bullet for everybody. 
<laughs> Everybody gets a bullet. You get a bullet. You get the Socialist Rifle Association. Look under your chair. You get a bullet. Uh, I think that's kind of interesting. He says warmest regards and wishes for a virus-free summer. I like the idea that uh, socialists carry rifles. I like the idea that the black, he brings this up in his letter, the Black Panthers carried rifles in the 60s. That's why California initiated gun control, because Ronald Reagan was freaked out that African Americans were carrying rifles. I like the idea of leftists. I've heard that. I'm sorry? I've heard that. Yeah, I like the idea of leftists. Uh, you know, I, I'm not Antifa. I don't want to own a gun. But I like the idea of leftists also being crazy. I think it, you know, why, why do the why does the right wing get to be a militia? What about a leftist militia, right? Yeah, I mean, once people have guns, then it's it's hard for the opposing side to be like, well, I'm going to strictly not have guns. Yeah, guns guns win a lot of fights. Yes, they do. Because I'm, I'm yeah. from Texas. I'm sorry. Guns, or they they prevent a lot of fights. I guess, but yeah, I mean, the, it's such an effective way to kill someone that they they tend to have the last word. So right. it's hard to it's hard to battle the gun argument without gun. You know, once mm-hmm. there's guns involved, obviously. Now you grew up. I, I brought big words to a gunfight. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, tough. Yeah. yeah. So wait, so the Tom Hayden thing, I understand they want you to feel worn down by it all, but I, but it's also hard to not be worn down by it all. Is Trump so like, worn down? Is he worn down? No, but I mean, on any side of it, like, this is how I felt, not just in the past three years with politics, it's the... It's how I've always felt about politics. Like, you get behind a politician, and then you're like, oh, you're a dick, too? hmm So I feel like that's just the case overall with politics. I don't know what you're supposed to, what the answer is there when you're just like, like, you can only make the most informed choice that you you can make. Like, and you can only deal with the options you're presenting unless you obviously create a new option. Here's how I look at politics. Bernie is our Lord and Savior. And when you look at any organization, the people at the top count. The rest are just the rank and file who take orders. The same Mm -hmm. applies to, you know, the Senate and the House. So it's who is the majority leader, who's the speaker, who's the whip. If they're good, the rest of the imbeciles get in line. Uh, you need spineless people in Washington, D.C., otherwise nothing would get done. But but the problem is Nancy Pelosi is a neoliberal predatory capitalist. Right. So, yes, most politicians are scum. It's the people who rise to the top of the scum. And had Bernie been the nominee, he would have change the complexion, the demeanor of the Democratic Party for the better. Now we have a scumbag rising yeah. to the top. Joe no, Biden. I, I understand that. I'm just saying, like, w- w- as far as participating in politics, where are you supposed to go with that? Like, so to me, I was frustrated 
in the last one, when it came out, like Debbie Wasserman had, you know, in as chair of the DNC, had been suppressing, you know, basically they were just like closing the door on Bernie at that time. And then it became widely known. And then she stepped down as chair, but still gets to live in the world and have a job and go to work and function. Mm-hmm. When I was like, you kept a guy who had more momentum from getting to participate. So to me, it's like, I, then I just go, well, I don't know. Like I can't root for Democrats and then I can't root for not that there's not a, there's not something I feel more strong. So it, what are you, how do you not, how are you not warned? Da- I mean, that's what I'm like. Oh, if you. you get, They wear you down and then you take crumbs. So, you know, like Biden says he'll forgive $10,000 in federal student loan debt. He'll raise Social Security payments by $200 a month. Right. He'll lower Medicare to 60. And you have well-meaning, well-intentioned dupes in the Democratic Party who say, well, it's a start. It's a start. They don't realize it's the end. That right. He'll, he, you know, he'll lower Medicare to 60, and then four years later, the Republicans will raise it to 72. You got to go all in. This incrementalism yeah. just doesn't work. No, that I understand. And yeah. And that's what wearing you down does. They say you, you have to compromise. You're tired. You know, you're what if you're wrong? Why not go half in so that maybe you're wrong? So don't commit. Right. Sometimes you just have to jump into the pool naked. At the party, you can't dip your toe into the pool. They want to see you take off your top and just dive into that pool. Yes. They don't want to see. I guess that's why to me, I've been like, well, I don't like, I don't know what to do with you politics. Right. You know, you can't. Because I I can't think of a situation where it's been different. Well, it would have been different had Bernie gotten the nomination. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. But it, it was so clear that our system itself, even on the side that he, even on his side, was, you know, the system is of the corporate stronghold, mm-hmm. but that's not, that that proved impenetrable in this sense. The system is impenetrable, and what's going to happen is we're going to be told that this recession is over and everybody's back to work. We're going to turn on the TV and they're going to distract us with something else, and we're we're going to be broke, but the stories on the news will be about how Wall Street is roaring back. The unemployment rate is going down. Mm-hmm. And we'll think, well, it must be my fault. It's got to be my fault because the man on the news says uh, America's back better and stronger than ever. That's what they're going to that's what they're going to do. That's what the system does. Yeah, I mean, that but that genie seems to be out of the bottle from because of social media, like since we're not all listening to the same news, yeah, but they have psychological with that at least. You know, we're not that smart, and they can hit pleasure centers in our brain to to manipulate us into thinking against our own interest. 
That's what Facebook and Twitter understand. They can, con- I hate to, you know, let me just adjust my tinfoil. They can adjust Facebook and Twitter so that we're following the party line and we become consumers again. There's this idea that Americans are going to stay home and learn how to cook and the virtue of the hearth and stop being consumers and they're going to save the planet. No, the minute they turn this economy back on, we're going to be brainwashed into buying all the useless crap we bought before. We have no control over our impulses. They've, they've got us through social media and television. We can't control our appetites. Our appetites are at the mercy of the corporations. Hello? I'm so sad. Okay. This is from Newburgh, New York. Michael says, Howie Klein is a rich, privileged white man. He's taking his marbles and going home. For him to implicitly urge others not to vote for Biden is disgraceful and ignores the effect of Trump on less privileged Americans and the overwhelming importance of Supreme Court appointments to life in America. See? There are two sides to this Biden story. Yeah, for sure. I mean... November's months away, obviously, but like, so the day, let's say it's tomorrow, the election. Yeah. And taking a stand against Biden, a significant portion doesn't vote for him and Trump is in again. Is the argument like, well, it might as well, because at least we've shown the Democrats to have a better option for us. Mm-hmm. Is that the idea? I, I don't know. I don't know. Because I've also seen it argued that the people who are saying that, like, it's such a small... it, The people who are saying, I was Bernie, I will not vote for Biden, wouldn't swing the election anyway. People are saying there were millions of people, because there were millions of people who didn't even vote, go after those people. There were millions of people who had voted for Obama, who then did vote for Trump, go after mm-hmm. those people, like that it's like not even a significant, you know, that it's like quit yelling at the people who are, you know, committed to Bernie. Right. Because that's not really the problem either. Right. All right. This next question comes to us. I like just making fun of stuff at the end. Yeah. This is a, from an unemployed African-American listening to us in Minneapolis, and he's a Libra. We had talked about... Did you make people put that or give their birthday? Yeah, they, they have to give some, so we know that they're real. What's your zodiac sign? Where are you listening? What information can you share about yourself? And what's your favorite part about David? No, we don't ask that. Um, yeah, that wouldn't be good for you to hear. Yeah, Uh so we had Colleen Worthman and Frank Conniff on the show last week, and I said... They're beloved. They're beloved. And I said, what is your top priority? There, there are a hundred issues out there. What is the number one concern of yours? And Frank said reproductive rights, and Colleen said reproductive rights. Or at least it was in the top two or three. And 
this unemployed African-American from Minneapolis, who's a Libra, writes, people like Colleen and Frank that prioritize abortion rights over universal basic income or Medicare for all are so entitled. To think Americans need cheap birth control pills to limit births, which sounded like she didn't want poor black kids to be born, is infuriating. Affluent white liberals have destroyed the Democratic Party and this economy. Mm. What do you think of that? Again, not a question. What do, what do you, you think? What about? do you think about? What do you think? No, what do you think? I'm so afraid that's correct. This was so. I was at a, a thanks. So I've never thought of myself as I've thought of myself as liberal. I've never thought of myself as elite. I'm from a small town. I went to a state school. I have like the word elite never, you know, I made okay grades. And then I was at a Thanksgiving a few years ago when for some reason, like the way people were talking politics and who was at the table and what I, it was the first time I went, Oh my God, I'm the liberal elite. Like I'm not necessarily thinking of, I, I have had to look at myself in a way that's really uncomfortable to be like, oh, you kind of have felt like, not consciously, but like if it's not a pro, it's not a problem for you, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. And now, certainly with, um, you know, a pandemic obviously really shines a light on the critical aspect of what that guy was saying of like, you know what? People need a fair amount of money and they need healthcare, which goes hand in hand with money because it's so financially draining in the system that we have. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know that, you know, name, like I wouldn't name call, you know, people as like, you know, you're uncaring, but I think it's, it's such a valid point of like, you know, what's really important is that people have jobs and money to live and, you know, healthcare is provided to live. And then so abortion rights, the fixation on the right of a woman to choose, he feels is a, a way to get rid of poor black people and not a top priority. However, if you ask women, as I have, They say the right to choose informs your economic future, that if you can't abort a baby, then you can't work. You have to stay home and raise that child. It it almost turns your economic potential, it it cuts it in half. You you are responsible for this. Yeah, I get get that for sure. Um, And I think... And it's not even saying like, oh, this is a problem. That is not at all a problem. It was this guy's talking about what do you prioritize? And it seems like, I mean, they're all important. <laughs> but I just, I guess I'm just saying I take his point of, for one, not everyone is a woman. And for two, not everyone is a, is a pregnant woman who needs this. Um, Yeah. Who needs an abortion? Let me mansplain to you why. Like, Let me mansplain something to you. Men want to control women. And the be- the best and most efficient way to control women is to deprive them of reproductive rights. If you keep them pregnant, yes. you keep them enslaved. I am. Did I mansplain that 
Do you understand what I'm talking yeah, about? I get it. Okay. This might be a little complicated for no, a it. woman to understand. <laughs> I get all that. Okay. I just, I, I'm saying, I understand what that listener was saying of like, okay, yes, that's a problem. But you know what is maybe a bigger problem affecting more people is like, there's an idea of. Hey, well, all I'm saying, he says UBI. I say IUD. That's what I say. <laughs> Maslow, there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. So you have to take care of like the base, like these are our survival needs, and move up from there. And what are they? Let's review. First, you need pornography, shelter, food, and shelter. No, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The first thing you need is pornography to watch, and then oranges. You need oranges, a boiled orange, because it has to go somewhere, right? Okay. Yes. And then a cool, a cool car. Well, no, you need a garbage bag to throw the boiled orange out so your mother and father don't realize what you're doing. Okay. Okay. Bag of socks. A bag of gym socks. White. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Mm-hmm. And then you need shelter. And then you need, then you need to, like, like entertainment, like to go to movies. <laughs> no, then you, then, what I, then you hey, need a boner you, pill. Here's my, here's my viewer question. What do you think of the challenge that was going around of, like, in, for entertainment people to, like, are you in entertainment? Everybody's sitting home watching entertainment now. So you're super important, so you should post a picture of yourself on set or whatever it is that you do in entertainment because to show, like, to let people know you're doing this thing that's really helping them. Mm-hmm. Where, What do you think of that? I, I have pictures of me throwing darts at a picture of Rob Reiner. Oh. That's, what, that's how I'm sheltering in place. <laughs> I just was like... For an industry that's so problematically self-important, I was mm-hmm. like, that's amazing that it's like four weeks into a pandemic and it's like, you know who's who's really helping now? Content providers. So you, if you're one, then put it, I was just like. We're essential, the content providers. It's just, I was, also if you, if for any one of those pictures, if you're like, really? You're the costumer on Maury. That was the, <laughs> like, that's what's saving people right now. Like, mm-hmm. okay, all right. Yeah. That made me so sad. And also, like, also I know a ton of people who are like, okay, here's it. Like, it's fine that you don't have anything to do. You're meeting a challenge. But I felt that was like, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> that- I did the toilet licking challenge. Oh yeah, how was that? Of like, did see if you get it? Yeah, see, like a disease roulette. You know, I've done a lot of things when I was younger to become famous, and it's gotten to the point where people actually licked toilets at the height of a pandemic to become famous. Oh, who? That was a thing on Twitter. To show yourself doing that as saying, I don't know. I don't don't see any upside to that. 
Okay. At least if you post a picture of yourself on set, there's, you know, there's going to be at least like 50 of your friends who go, ah, oh, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. The Pickleball Pirate writes, Joe Biden is a shit sandwich I can't bite. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still trying to digest the Billery Burger. Oh, boy. Yeah. A lot of hot sauce on that one. Yeah. <laughs> people don't like, people don't like Hillary. Or Bill. All right. See, that was a really hard one for me because that was like when I was coming into like call, like I was the age that like like Clinton was my Obama, like I was the a college a oh and this guy and I relate to finally someone in politics and that like he was my Obama like Kennedy was people's Kennedy you know like oh here's. Here's the thing I can I'm resonating. I'm involved. I'm he cares about this. And then, you know, 20, 30 years of unpacking this difficult to look at box where you go, well, why, (laughs) why get involved? Like, that's when I just go, I don't know what. You're being manipulated. Well, yeah, but there was, that's also like what the system is, is like this thing or this thing. And you go, oh, I prefer this thing over that thing. So I'll go that direction. And then it really sucks as an adult where you're like, I, I, where you, more information comes out, more things come out that you just feel like, oh, I was a part of this shitty thing. Well, I think that if we had voting rights in this country and everybody were allowed to vote, we'd have better candidates and better government. But we keep people from voting in America. We really don't believe in democracy here. Yeah. Donald Trump has pretty much admitted that if you allow mail-in ballots, Republicans can't get elected. I think the debate in this country, believe it or not, should be, do you believe in democracy? I have spoken to neoliberal Democrats, and I've asked them, do you believe in democracy? And they pause to think about it. They have contempt for the great unwashed. I'm talking about Democrats. You Um, talk about these, you know, these Harvard technocrats. I've had them on the show. And I say, do you think more and more people should vote? And they go, eh. They're not so sure because they think people are stupid. They don't trust the American people. That's where the elitism comes from. That's how Donald Trump can get away with calling Obama an elitist. Because the people he surrounds himself with are hyper-educated who think they're two types of people. And they don't trust the American people. They don't. We have to wrap it up. Let's do one more listener question. I wasn't helpful with your questions. You were fantastic. Wow. You were. Let's do one more listener question. I I ordered this book, Bigger Than Bernie. Yeah. How do we go from the Sanders campaign to democratic socialism? It was was an impulse buy. Good good impulses. And how do we... yeah, well, how do you implement those ideas? It's I, I've been kind of radicalized by my friends on on Twitter. So have I. So have it, I. Yeah, it is stunning that it's like, uh, yeah, it's that capitalism is 
you know, has shoved democracy in a closet to me is just the caring about money. I don't know. I just, I can't, it's hard to wrap my mind around how much like, and how it comes out in conversations like on the surface, even yeah. now. Like, it's very we've revealing. Got to, we've it, got to get back to work, you know, even if people have to die. And it's right. like, you just said that out loud. Right. <laughs> like, you know, and I remember my, my dad, I had talked to him about, um, and he was a Republican dude. Um, I talked to him about healthcare one time and like, cause I had, I had healthcare at the time, but my appendix ruptured, no fault of mine. It just happened. And the bill, it would have been $35,000. And I was like, dad, <laughs> like we can't live in a system where this is the case. And he was like, well, who's supposed to pay for it? Just the government. I was like, if the government paid for it, it wouldn't have cost $35,000. Exactly. Like exactly. they would make a rule that says you can't charge $300 for a pill or, you know, $50 right. for a Tylenol or whatever. And he, and it's just, you know, he would just walk away from that. But it's like, I can't wrap my pea brain around that there are so I if there were five people who felt that way I would go okay those guys are jerks <laughs> but that there's a like so many people who are like no no obviously Amazon shouldn't pay taxes look at them they're this great company right right <laughs> look at how many jobs they provide why should they pay taxes like they're helping us in this other way is like why do you, uh, whatever yeah, I'll, I'll give you the last word. This is what this is how I explain it. I have a billion dollars, and I don't want to share that billion dollars with you. And I'm going to make a billion dollars next year, and I don't want to share that with you. And I don't want anybody to compete with me. I, I want to make sure that I make a billion dollars next year. I am going to say anything and everything to confuse you and wear you down so that I get to keep my billion dollars that I have and the billion dollars that I'm going to make next year. So whatever argument you throw at me, I will pretend to listen, and then I will confuse you. I will obfuscate. I will say and do anything so that you are worn down and confused and give up trying to collect the $1 billion of mine that I kind of owe you. I kind of owe you half of that in taxes. I'll wear you down. I have the money, the power, and the time to wear you down. But what I don't understand, I yeah, I hear that, and I, I can understand that thinking. I have a billion dollars. Even people who are like, I earned this billion dollars. Why should I share it with you, et cetera? You know, like, don't make a system where I can't earn a billion dollars just because you, you didn't. But what I don't understand is what they don't see of for you to have that billion dollars, all these people have to work under you. And if you're killing them, they will not be there. And then you will not <laughs> have your billion. You know, they, like, they can be replaced. You know what? Just, Here's the thing. We can't. Just like, you can't imagine. You can't imagine the depravity of these people. <laughs> But they can be replaced. They think these people can be replaced. Oh, yeah. There was this one headline somebody posted that was like, um, I, I don't know if it was warehouse. or I don't remember where the workers were, if it was post office or warehouse or what. But it was like so, somewhere workers are 
are dying, can they be replaced fast? It was like maybe meatpacking, you know, like these workers are dying. Can they be replaced fast enough to, to not interrupt the supply chain? And somebody was just like, that's the head. It's like, yeah, I see what you're saying. So if you, if you just see it as like, I remember when I learned the word peon in junior high social studies. He's in a sentence. Donald Trump is visiting Russia. He wants a hooker to pee on him. (laughs) Exactly. A peon is what you pee on. Mm -hmm. But it was like, I guess, so it really has just been that same thing of like, oh, citizen people, those are just, they're just the batteries, right? They're Mm -hmm. just like disposable. Okay. Now I see, now I understand their point of view better. Hey, I got a uh, an email from Ethan, and he says there's a David Feldman who teaches. He's a professor at Liberty University. I have to check that out. Imagine that. Laura House. I am Laura House. Is that your Twitter handle? I'm Laura House. The letter I, the letter M. Mouth punch. Mouth. And Instagram. Mouth punch. Buy it. Rent it. Share it. I don't know. Will you do listener questions next week with me until we You even want me to? I yes. I'm smart enough to understand the questions. Well, this is, it's a different tone with you. It's different, so it'll change as people get used to you. I got to tell you, I'm on the listener's side of a lot of these. I know. Well, it was great with Liam because he was antagonistic. He played the role of the heel. And I, I like that. that. I like that. I like having a guest who kind of insults my listeners. But with you doing it, it'll be different. It'll be a love fest. (laughs) Um, All right. All right. Stay on the line, Laura House. Oh, what's the name? What else do we plug? How about your meditation series? Oh, yeah. I started doing... I've been better about my podcast. I'm doing it more. Uh, Will You Med With Me is the podcast. Will You What With Me? Med. You Medicine. are a a world class meditator. Sure. No, no, don't undersell yourself. You are. T- I teach meditation. But you're like, like you have like a black belt in meditation. You can I take did. a man's eyes out with meditation. I've done a lot right? of studying. What? I mean, I feel yeah. I mean, uh, no, I can't take a man's. <laughs> Your breath is a registered weapon. Your deep breath. Mm-hmm. You have to register your deep breaths with that the police. Be, I wish you could aim your meditation. It's like I wish I could just aim it at the press conference, and then suddenly this guy's like, "Wait, what am I doing?" You're 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 underselling your accomplishments as a. Rogue. I have had extensive training in meditation. I teach meditation, but it's also it's not a huge. You don't have to have a black belt to do it. It's not a. It's not that hard. But people in the Hollywood community come to you. Well-respected people who are trying to learn to, to meditate yes. come to you. And so, how do how do my listeners? Well-respected people in the com, in the Hollywood community have come to me to learn meditation. Yes. And so, how would they? Let's say somebody in South Africa or Nashville, listening, wanted to learn how to meditate. How would they contact? Well, me? again, there's. I mean, I, I there's a private kind that I do that is is uh, like more involved it's a it's a sort of a short course and this is called Euro dreams of sushi type meditation right is that what it's called Euro dreams of sushi meditation 
Vedic meditation. What is it? Vedic. It's From not Jiro, Jiro dreams of sushi. That's You've not... gotten all riled up again. Okay, I thought that's what the meditation is called. <laughs> um, What's it called? Vedic. Vedic meditation. And you Vedic. teach that to people. I teach it, but I, I also teach a simple mindfulness technique for free. And I and that's on the podcast of um, usually we're meditating alone, and I'm not just telling you how to meditate. I'm like, I talk about a little thing, and then I'm like, let's meditate. And you can join me for meditation because sometimes it feels very, like, kind of hard to do it on yeah. your own or hard to motivate or, like, right. it's easier to do with someone. So I'm like, you can do it with me. And, and what's the name of your podcast? Will you med with me? Will you med with me? Will you med with me? And do you do this on Instagram as well? Weren't you doing I something on a, Instagram? I'm going to start doing, I did last night, I did a live meditation talk, and I'm going to offer a, a group meditation, like a meditation class is coming up. But Great. right now there's a podcast, Will You Med With Me, and a bunch of apps, and sometimes I, I, sometimes I teach people to meditate on the show. And Okay. You just don't have to be all alone with meditation. So people can contact you how? Uh, they can reach out on Twitter. I'm Laura House is an easy way. Or Instagram also. I'm Laura House. Fantastic. I'm so easy to find. And uh, for the purposes of... I can of- send fan mail to you. It can make you mad and you can tell me. Okay. Yeah, contact Laura. For the purpose of this joke, uh, I'm very rich and I have a personal assistant. Okay. Okay. You ready? Okay. My personal assistant, can she meditate for me? I don't have time. Would that help if I send her to your? Yeah. Okay. Because I don't have, I I I believe in meditation. I just don't have time. So my personal assistant could do it for me. Like she can pick up my dry cleaning and meditate Mm -hmm. for me. I could teach her to meditate, and then she would meditate until she awakened to the idea that she can do better than working for you. And then she can get on with her life. I've never needed a personal assistant. (laughs) I don't understand why people need personal assistants. Do you? Yeah. Why do people need personal assistance? Do they just get busy to a point where they're like, I, I'm finding all this hard to manage? Okay. Isn't that part of it? Is People who have personal like, assistance. I, like I run, I worked for a guy who had two two assistants. Yeah. If you have a per, I think if you have a personal assistant, you don't know what you're doing. Or you don't want to pay somebody to do a job. But that's for another conversation. Laura House, stay on the Next line. Time. Thank you. Stand line for one second. We believe in democracy, not oligarchy. <laughs> Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. Health care is a human 
right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump.